Chapter 35 With all the benevolence she'd had going on, I sort of forgot that Mother Summer wasn't human. She took me from the gates back to her cottage in silence, smiled, touched my head with her hand, and sent me back to my freaking grave. I landed on my ass in the muddy, broken ice, and could still hear the echoes of the crackling detonation when Mother Winter's ugly mitt had smashed up through it and grabbed my noggin. I could still hear the raucous cawing of startled crows. Time had all but stopped while I was gone. Or, more accurately, time had flown by extremely swiftly where I had been in the never-never relative to Chicago. I'd been on the other side of that kind of time dilation while dealing with beings of fairy before, but this was the first time I'd actually benefited from it, gaining time rather than losing it, which I hadn't even considered until now. If things had gone the way they usually did when one got pulled into fairy business, I could have been gone for an hour and come back a year later to what would presumably have been a blasted wasteland. The thought made my stomach churn with anxiety. But I suppose I hadn't exactly volunteered for the trip. It wasn't like I'd taken a hideous risk on that score. It had been something entirely outside of my control. That was scary, too. While I was sitting there, wondering whether that meant that I was a control freak or just sane, a goth kid poked her head into view atop my grave and peered down at me. She took a cigarette in one of those long holders out of her mouth, exhaled smoke through her nose, and said, Dude, that is pretty hardcore down there. Are you, like, gonna cut yourself or something? No, I said, self-consciously hiding my hand behind my back. I looked down, and only then did I realize that my outfit had changed from the she-armor back to the second-hand clothes I'd been wearing before. I fell. Other gothlings appeared. The girl repeated herself, and the others agreed that I was hardcore down there. I sighed. I gathered my things and clambered out with some reluctantly offered help. I didn't need it, but I thought it might be good for some kid's self-esteem. Then I looked around at all the people staring at me, hunched my shoulders up around my head, and hurried out of the graveyard before anyone else could become helpful. When I got back to Molly's place, she asked, Why do you smell like cloves? Kids today, I said. I'm just glad they weren't smoking marijuana. Ah, uh, she said, goths. So I guess that's grave dirt on you? Stop Sherlocking me, I said. And yes, it is. And I'm showering. Any word? Not yet, Molly said. Toots waiting outside for his crew to get back. I had to promise him extra pizza to keep him from going out to look himself. I figured we needed him to coordinate the guard. Good thinking, I said. One sec. I went into my temporary quarters and got clean. It wasn't just because I had mud from a century-old graveyard on me, along with an open wound on my hand, and because I feared about a million horrible things that could be made from those ingredients. The whole wizard metabolism thing means that our immune systems are pretty much top of the line. I doubted the winter night's mantle was slouchy in defending against such mundane threats either. It was mostly because I'd been up close and personal with some extremely powerful creatures, and such beings radiate magic like body heat. It's the sort of thing that can cling to you if you aren't careful.
maybe coloring the way you think a bit, and definitely having the potential to influence anything you do with magic. It happens with people, too, but with people, even wizards, their aura is so much less powerful that the effect is negligible. Running water cleanses away the residue of that kind of contact, and I wanted to be sure that whatever happened tonight, I wasn't going to be handicapped by any mystic baggage from today's visits. I hit the shower, bowing my head under the hot water, and thought about things. The mothers had been trying to tell me something, something they hadn't said outright. Maybe they hadn't wanted to just give me what I wanted, but way more likely, maybe they were incapable of it. I had bullied Maeve and Lily into straight talk, such as it had been, and it had obviously been uncomfortable for them. I would never have tried the same thing on Titania or Mab. For whatever reason, it seemed that the essential nature of the Queens of Fairy was to be as indirect and oblique about things as possible. It was built into them, along with things like not being able to tell a direct lie. It was who they were. And the farther up the chain you went, the more steeped in that essential nature the Queens became. Maybe Titania or Mab could be a little bit straightforward at times but I doubt they could have laid out a simple declarative statement about the issue at hand without a major effort. And if that was true, then maybe the mothers couldn't have done it even if they wanted to. There'd been a message in all their talk, especially Mother Summers. But what the hell had it been? Or maybe this wasn't a human fairy translation problem at all. Maybe this was a male-female translation problem. I read an article once that said that when women have a conversation, they're communicating on five levels. They follow the conversation that they're actually having, the conversation that is specifically being avoided, the tone being applied to the overt conversation, the buried conversation that is being covered only in subtext, and finally, the other person's body language. That is, on many levels, astounding to me. I mean, that's like having a freaking superpower. When I, and most other people with a Y chromosome, have a conversation, we're having a conversation, singular. We're paying attention to what's being said, considering that and replying to it. All these other conversations that have apparently been going on for the last several thousand years, I didn't even know that they existed until I read that stupid article, and I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. I felt somewhat skeptical about the article's grounding. There were probably a lot of women who didn't communicate on multiple wavelengths at once. There were probably men who could handle that many just fine. I just wasn't one of them. So, ladies, if you ever have some conversation with your boyfriend or husband or brother or male friend, and you are telling him something perfectly obvious and he comes away from it utterly clueless, I know it's tempting to think to yourself, the man can't possibly be that stupid. But yes... Yes, he can. Our innate strengths just aren't the same. We are the mighty hunters who are good at focusing on one thing at a time. For crying out loud, we have to turn down the radio in the car if we suspect we're lost and need to figure out how to get where we're going. That's how impaired we are. I'm telling you, we have only the one conversation. Maybe some kind of relationship veteran like Michael Carpenter can do, too, but that's pushing the envelope. Five simultaneous conversations? Five? Shh. Sure.
that just isn't going to happen. At least not for me. So maybe it was something perfectly obvious and I was just too dumb to get it. Maybe the advice of someone less impaired than me would help. I went back into my head and made sure that I remembered the details of my recent conversations, putting them in order so that I could get a consult. Once my brain had resolved that, it went straight down a road I'd been trying to detour around. If I blew it tonight, people I loved were going to die. People who weren't involved in the fight. People like Michael and his family and... And my daughter, Maggie. Should I call them? Tell them to hit the road and start driving? Did I have the right to do that when so many other people's loved ones were at risk too, with no possible way to get them out of reach of harm? Did that matter? Was I going to be responsible for my daughter's death, the way I was for her mother's? The lights didn't waver, but it got really, really dark in that shower for a minute. And then I shook it off. I didn't have time to waste moaning about my poor daughter and my poor life, and gosh, do I feel bad about the horrible things I've done. I could indulge my self-pity after I'd taken care of business. Scratch that, after I'd taken care of business. I slammed the water off hard enough to make it clack, got out of the shower, dried, and started getting dressed in a fresh set of second-hand clothes. Why do you wear those? asked Lacuna. I jumped, stumbled, and shouted half of a word to a spell, but since I was only halfway done putting on my underwear, I mostly just fell on my naked ass. Gah! I said, don't do that! My miniature captive came to the edge of the dresser and peered down at me. Don't ask questions. Don't come in here all quiet and spooky and scare me like that. You're six times my height and fifty times my weight. Lacuna said gravely. And I've agreed to be your captive. You don't have any reason to be afraid. Not afraid, I snapped back, startled. It isn't wise to startle a wizard. Why not? Because of what could happen. Because they might fall down on the floor? No, I snarled. Lacuna frowned and said, You aren't very good at answering questions. I started shoving myself into my clothes. I'm starting to agree with you. So, why do you wear those? I blinked. Clothes? Yes. You don't need them unless it's cold or raining. You're wearing clothes. I am wearing armor for when it's raining arrows. Your t-shirt will not stop arrows. No, it won't, I sighed. Lacuna peered at my t-shirt. Smith. Smith, does the shirt belong to your weapon dealer? No. Then why do you wear the shirt of someone else's weapon dealer? That was frustrating in so many ways that I could avoid a stroke only by refusing to engage. Lacuna, I said, humans wear clothes. It's one of the things we do. And as long as you're in my service, I expect you to do it as well. Because if you don't, I, I might pull your arms out of your sockets. At that, she frowned. Why? Because I have to maintain discipline, don't I? True, she said gravely. 
Papa has no clothes. I counted to ten mentally. I'll find something for you. Until then, no desocketing. Just wear the armor. Fair enough. Lacuna bowed slightly at the waist. I understand, my lord. Good. I sighed. I flicked a comb through my wet hair for all the good it would do, and said, "How do I look?" Mostly human, she said. That's what I was going for. You have a visitor, my lord. I frowned. What? That is why I came in here. You have a visitor waiting for you. I stood up, exasperated. Why didn't you say so? Lacuna looked confused. I did. Just now, you were there. She frowned thoughtfully. Perhaps you have brain damage. It would not shock me in the least. I said. Would you like me to cut open your skull and check, my lord? She asked. Someone that short should not be that disturbing. I, no, no, but thank you for the offer. It is my duty to serve. Lacuna intoned. My life, hell's bells. I beckoned Lacuna to follow me, mostly so I would know where the hell she was, and went back out into the main room. Sarissa was there. She sat at the kitchen table, her small hands clutched around one of Molly's mugs, and she looked like hell. There was a dark red mouse on her left cheekbone, one that was swelling and beginning to purple nicely. Her hands and forearms were scraped and bruised, defensive injuries. She wore a pale blue T-shirt and dark blue cotton pajama pants. Both were soaked from the rain and clinging in a fashion that made me want to stare. Her dark hair was askew and her eyes were absolutely haunted. They darted nervously toward me when I appeared and her shoulders hunched slightly. Molly said something quiet to her and rose from the table, crossing the room to me. She said you knew her. Molly said, "I do." She all right? She's a mess, Molly said. Showed up and begged security to call me before they called the cops. And it isn't the first time this has happened to her. She's terrified to be here, terrified of you personally. I think. I frowned at my apprentice. Molly shrugged. Her emotions are really loud. I'm not even trying to pick anything up. Okay, I said. Is she on the level? I thought about it for a second before I answered. She's Mab's BFF, so that would be a no, then. Molly said, "Probably so." I said, "There's bound to be an angle here, even if she doesn't know that there is one. She's a pawn in winter. Somebody has got to be moving her." Molly winced. She's also a lifelong survivor in winter, so don't let your guard down. The last creature who did wound up as frozen kibble. I jerked my head toward the exit. Heard anything from the scouts yet? She shook her head. Okay, we'll talk to her. Stay close. I might need to pick your brain about something later. Right, Molly said, blinking a little. Then she followed me back over to Sarissa. Sarissa gave me a nervous smile, and her fingers resettled on the mug a couple of times. Harry, I didn't realize you made house calls all the way to Chicago. I said. I wish it were that. She said. I nodded. How did you know where to find me? I was given directions, she said. By who? She swallowed and looked down at the tabletop. The red cap. 
I sat back slowly in my seat. Maybe you better tell me what happened. He came for me, she said quietly without meeting my eyes. He came this morning. I was hooded, bound, and taken somewhere. I don't know where. I was there for several hours. Then he came back, took my hood off, and sent me here, with this. She reached down to her lap and put a plain white envelope on the table. She pushed it toward me. I took it. It wasn't sealed. I opened it, frowned, and then turned it upside down over the table. Several tufts of hair bound with small bits of string fell out, along with a small metal object. Molly drew in a sharp breath. He said to tell you that he's taken your friends, Sarissa said quietly. I picked up the tufts of hair one at a time. Wiry black, slightly crinkled hairs, sprinkled with silver ones. Butters. Red hairs, luscious and curly. Andy. And a long, soft, slightly wavy lock of pure white hair. I lifted it to my nose and sniffed. Strawberries. I let out a soft curse. Who? Molly asked, her voice worried. Justine, I said. Oh, God. I picked up the metal object. It was a plain bottle cap, slightly dented where it had been removed. And Mac, I said quietly. He had someone following me everywhere I went. He took someone from each place. He told me to tell you... Sarissa said, that he'll trade them all for you, if you surrender to him before sundown. And if I don't, I asked. He'll give their bones to the raw head, she whispered. Chapter 36 Silence fell. Okay, I said into it. I've just about had enough of that clown. Molly looked up at me, her eyes worried. You sure? Guy gets his jollies dipping his hat in people's blood, I said. You can bargain with the she sometimes, Molly said. But not this time, I said, my voice hard. If we do, he'll keep the letter of his word and he'll make sure they don't make it out anyway. The only way we're getting our friends back is to take them away from him. Molly grimaced, but after a moment she nodded. I picked up the clumps of hair and put them in a neat row on the table. Molly, on it, she said, collecting them. What are you doing? Sarissa asked, her eyes wide. The jerk was kind enough to give me some fresh cuttings from my friends, I said. I'm going to use them to track him down and thwart him. Thwart? Sarissa asked. Thwart, I said to prevent someone from accomplishing something by means of visiting gratuitous violence upon his smarmy person. I'm pretty sure that isn't the definition, Sarissa said. It is today. I raised my voice. Cat Sith, I need your assistance, please. Sarissa went completely still when I spoke, like a rabbit who has sensed a nearby predator. Her eyes widened, then flicked around the room, seeking escape. It's okay, I told her. I'm getting along with him. You're a wizard and the winter night, Sarissa hissed. You have no idea how vicious that creature is, and I don't have the Queen's Aegis protecting me. You have mine, I said. I raised my voice, annoyed. Cat Sith! Kitty, 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 kitty! 
Are you insane? Sarissa hissed. He might not be able to get through, Harry, Molly said. It's not just a threshold here. The Svartalves have wards over the building as well. Makes sense, I said. Be right back. I went out and looked around, but Sith didn't appear. I called his name a third time, which, as we all know, is the charm. With beings of the never-never, it's a literal truth. I mean, it's not an irresistible force like gravity. It's more like a kind of obsessive-compulsive disorder that happens to be present to varying degrees in most of them. They respond strongly to things that happen in threes, be they requests, insults, or commands. So, in a way, three really is a magic number. Hell, just ask Menaja Thomas. Jerk. I waited for a while, even going so far as to turn about and take a few steps backward before turning forward again, just to give Sith some really rich opportunities to appear abruptly and startle me. Except he didn't. I got a slow, squirmy feeling in the pit of my stomach. The rain was still falling in spits and showers, but the clouds had begun to gain the tint of a slow autumn sundown. Sith had always appeared almost instantly before. Had Mab been setting me up? Had she given me the eldest Malk's assistance so that she could pull the rug out from under me when I needed Sith the most? Had she gotten the nemesis brain mold? I hadn't seen Sith since the confrontation at the gardens. Had the enemy she brought him down? Or worse, the adversary? I felt actively sick to my stomach. If Cat Sith had been turned, there was no telling how much damage he might cause, especially to me. I felt a little stupid about the kitty-kitty-kitty thing. Hopefully he hadn't been listening. I went back into the apartment, pensive. Molly gave me an inquiring look. I shook my head. Molly frowned at that. I could see the gears whirling in her brain. Okay, I said. Plan B. Lacuna? Come here, if you please. After a moment, a little voice said from the direction of my room, What if I don't, please? You come here anyway, I stated. It's a human thing. She made a disgusted noise and came zipping out of the room on her blurring wings. What do you want me to do? You can read, I said. Can you read a map, right? Yes. You're on house duty, then, I said. If any of the little folk come back with a location where a rite is taking place, I want you to write down their descriptions and mark the location on the map. Can you do that? Lacuna looked dubiously at the maps spread out on the table. I think so. Probably. Maybe. And no fighting or duels. What about when I'm done writing things? No. Lacuna folded her little arms and scowled at me. Your breath smells like celery, I replied. Molly, how are those spells coming along? I think there's some kind of counterspell hiding them, she said. It's tricky, so stop bumping my elbow. I'm concentrating over here. I let out an impatient breath and fought against a surge of anger. She was the apprentice, and I was the wizard. There were wizards who would have beaten unconscious any apprentice who spoke to them like that. I'd always been kind to her, maybe too kind. And this disrespect was what I got in return? I should educate her to respect her betters. I made a low, growling sound in my chest and clenched my fists. That impulse wasn't mine. It was Winter's. 
Molly and I had a relationship built on structure, trust, and respect, not fear. We had always bantered back and forth like that. But something in me wanted to, I don't know, put her in her place, take out my frustrations on her, show her which of us was the strongest, and it had a really primitive idea of how to make that happen. But that was unthinkable. That was the mantle talking, loudly. Hell's bells. As if I didn't have enough trouble thinking my way past the influence of my own glands already. I heard a slight sound behind me and turned in time to see Sarissa vanish into the bathroom, moving in absolute silence. The rabbit had given up the statue routine and bolted. Sarissa had good instincts when it came to predators. I turned back to Molly to find her looking at me, her eyes wide. Molly was a psychic sensitive. She could feel emotions the way most of us can feel the temperature of a room. Sometimes she could even pluck someone's thoughts out of the air. She knew exactly what I was feeling. She had all along. And she hadn't run. Are you okay? she asked quietly. It's nothing, I said. I forced myself to think my way past the mantle's influence. Find a steel needle to use as the focus, I said. Should give you an edge against whatever magic the she are using. Should have thought of that, Molly chided herself. That's why they pay me the big bucks. I turned and walked away from my apprentice to let her work without the distraction of my tangle of winter's urges blaring into her skull like an air horn. I rummaged around in her fridge and made a sandwich from a bagel I split down the middle and a small mountain of two different colored deli meats. I wolfed it down. Less than five minutes later, Molly tied a needle onto a piece of wood with one of each of the human hairs. She then placed it gently into a bowl of water and performed the tracking spell without a hitch. The needle slowly swung around to point east, directly toward my abducted friends, probably. There were ways to futz about with tracking spells, but it appeared that the addition of steel to our own spell had overcome whatever the red cap had cooked up. I extended my senses and checked the tracking spell. It was as solid as one of my own. Good work, I said. Then I walked over to the bathroom door and knocked gently. Sarissa, I said, can you hear me? Yes, she answered. We're going out, I said. I hope we won't be long. You should be safe here, but you're free to leave if you want to do so. I think you might be followed if you do, but you aren't a prisoner or anything, okay? There was a hesitant moment of silence, and then she said, I understand. There's food in the fridge, Molly called, and you can sleep in my room if you're tired. The door has a lock. There was no answer. Let's get moving, I said to Molly. I want to make a stop before we track them down. The Svartalv's security guy stopped us before we could leave and informed us that my car had been repaired and delivered and that they would bring it around for me. Molly and I traded a glance. Um, how sure are you that the vehicle is secure? Molly asked. Mr. Etri personally requested a security sweep, the guard said. It's already been screened for weapons, explosives, toxins, and any kind of enchantment, Miss Carpenter. Right now, they're running it under a waterfall to wash away any tracking spells that might be on it. It's the same procedure Mr. Etri uses to secure his own cars, miss. Who brought it? Molly asked. The guard took a small notebook from his pocket and checked it. A local mechanic named Mike Atagi. 
think there's a picture. He thumbed through the pages and then held up a color printout that had been folded into the notebook. This is him. I leaned forward to peer at the photo. Well, son of a gun. It was my old mechanic, Mike. Mike had been a miracle worker when it came to repairing the old Blue Beetle, working with a talent that was the next best thing to sorcery, bring the car back from the dead, over and over again. Did he say who delivered it to him? I asked. The guard checked his notes. Here, that it was waiting at his shop when he got there, along with a deposit and a rush order, reading, Repair this for Harry Dresden and return it to the following address or suffer, mortal Smith. Cat Sith, I said. Well, at least he was on the job while we were out at the island. There was a low growling sound, and the Munstermobile came gliding up out of the parking garage, dripping water from its gleaming surface like some lantern-eyed leviathan rising from the depths. There were still a few dents and dings in it, but the broken glass had all been replaced, and the engine sounded fine. Okay, I'm not like a car fanatic or anything, but the guitar riff from Bad to the Bone started playing in my head. Wheels, I said. Excellent. The Monstermobile came gliding up to us and stopped, still dripping water, and another security guy got out of it, left the driver door open, and came around to open the passenger door for Molly. I touched Molly's shoulder to stop her from moving to get in immediately, and spoke to her very quietly. How much do you trust your friend, Mr. Etry? Etry might oppose you, Molly said. He might break your bones, he might cut your throat in your sleep, or make the ground swallow you up, but he will never, ever lie about his intentions. He's not a friend, Harry, but he is my ally. He's good at it. I wanted to say something smart-ass about not trusting anyone who lived anywhere near the fairy realms, but I held back. For one thing, smart elves take paranoia to an art form, and I had no doubt they would be listening to everything everyone said on their own property while not in private quarters. It would have been stupid to insult them. For another thing, they had an absolutely ironclad reputation for integrity and neutrality. No one crossed a Svartalf lightly. But on the other hand, the Svartalfs rarely gave anyone a good reason to cross them either. That garnered them a boatload of respect. They also had a reputation for rigid adherence to promises, to bargains, and to the law, or at least to the letters it consisted of. What are the terms of your alliance? I asked, walking around the car toward the driver's side. I get the apartment, Molly said. I mean, it's mine. I own it. They handle any maintenance for the next fifty years, and as long as I'm on their property, they consider me to be a citizen of their nation, with all the rights and privileges that entails. I whistled as we got in and shut the doors. And what did you give them for that? Their honor. And there might have been this bomb problem I handled for them. Hell's bells, I said. Look at you, all grown up. You have been, Molly said. All day. I tried not to give her a guilty glance as we pulled out. Um, I feel it, you know, she said. The pressure inside you. I've got it buttoned down, I said, and started driving. Don't worry, I'm not going to let it make me take anything away from you. Molly folded her hands in her lap, looked down at them, and said in a small voice, If it's given, freely offered, you can't really take it away. 
All you're doing is accepting a gift. Part of me felt like something had torn in my chest. So deep was the ache I felt at the hope, the uncertainty in the grasshopper's voice. And another part of me wanted to howl and attack her, take her, now. It didn't even want to wait to stop the car. If I went purely by the numbers, there was no reason at all not to give in to that urge. Except for the car crashing, I mean. Molly was an adult woman now. She was exceptionally attractive. I'd seen her naked once, and she was really good at it. She was willing, eager even, and I trusted her. I taught her a lot over the years, and some of that had been extremely intimate. Master-apprentice relationships were hardly unheard of in wizarding circles. Some wizards even favored that situation, because on the spooky side, sex can be a whole hell of a lot more dangerous than recreational. They regarded the teaching of physical intimacy as something as inextricably intertwined with magic as it is with life. It's possible that, from a standpoint of pure, unadulterated reason, they might even have a point. But there was more to it than reason. I'd known Molly when she was wearing a training bra. I'd hung out in her treehouse with her after she'd come home from high school. She was the daughter of the man I respected most in this world, and the woman who I least wanted to cross. I believed that people in positions of authority and influence, especially those in the role of mentor and teacher, had a mountainous level of responsibility to maintain in order to balance out that influence over less experienced individuals. But mostly, I couldn't do it because Molly had been crushing on me since she was about fourteen years old. She was in love with me, or at least thought she was, and I didn't feel it back. It wouldn't be fair to her to rip her heart out that way, and I would never, ever forgive myself for hurting her. It's okay, she almost whispered. Really? There wasn't anything much to say, so I reached over, took her hand, and squeezed gently. After a while, I said, Molly... I don't think it's ever going to happen. But if it does, the first time damn well isn't going to be like that. You deserve better. So do I. Then I put both hands back on the wheel and kept on driving. I had someone else to pick up before I gave the red cap my version of a hostage crisis. We got to Shea Carpenter around five and I parked the Munstermobile on the street. It was the single, gaudiest object for five miles in every direction, and it blended in with the residential neighborhood about as well as a goose in a crowd of puffer fish. I turned off the engine and listened to it clicking. I didn't look at the house. I got out of the car, shut the door, and leaned back against it, still not looking at the house. I didn't need to. I'd seen it often enough. It was a gorgeous colonial home, complete with manicured landscaping, a pretty green lawn, and a white picket fence. The grasshopper got out of the car and came around to stand beside me. Dad's at work. The sand crawler is gone, Molly noted, nodding toward the driveway where her mother always parked their minivan. I think Mom was going to take the Chawas trick-or-treating at the Botanic Gardens this afternoon, so the little ones won't be home which was Molly's way of telling me that I didn't have to face my daughter right now, and I could stop being a coward. 
Just go get him, I said. I'll wait here. Sure, she said. Molly went up to the front door and knocked. About two seconds after she did that, something huge slammed against the other side of the door. The heavy door jumped in its frame. Dust fell from the roof over the porch, dislodged by the impact. Molly stiffened and backed away. A second later, there was another thump, and another, and the sound of the frantic scratching of claws on the door. Then more thumping. I hurriedly crossed the street to stand beside Molly on the lawn, facing the front door. The door wiggled, then opened unsteadily, as if being manipulated by someone with his hands full. Then the storm door flew open and something gray and shaggy and enormous shot out onto the porch. It cleared the porch railing in a single bound, hurtled across the ground and the little picket fence, and hit me in the chest like a battering ram. My dog Mouse is a temple guard of Tibet, a foo dog of a powerful supernatural bloodline, though he could have passed for an exceptionally large Tibetan mastiff. Mouse can take on demons and monsters without batting an eye, and he checks in at about 250. He knocked me down as easily as a bowling ball does the first pin, and super dog though he may be, he's still a dog. Once I was down, he planted his front paws on either side of my head and proceeded to give me slobbery dog kisses on the face and neck and chin, making happy little sounds the whole time. Ack, I said, as I always did. My lips touch dog lips. Get me some mouthwash. Get me some iodine. I shoved at his chest, grinning, and managed to lever myself out from underneath him and stand. That didn't diminish Mouse's enthusiasm in the least. He cut loose with a series of joyous barks so loud that they set off a car alarm on a vehicle a hundred feet away. Then he sprinted in a tight circle, came back to my feet, and barked some more. He did that over and over for about a minute, his tail wagging so hard that it sounded like a helicopter might have been passing in the distance. Whoop, 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 whoop. All right, I said, grinning. Enough. Come on. It's not like I died or anything, boy. He quieted, his jaws parted in a canine grin, tail still wagging so hard that it pulled his hindquarters left and right with it. I knelt down and put my arms around him. If I'd been an inch or two shorter, I doubt I could have done it. Damn pooch is huge and built like a barrel. He laid his chin on my shoulder and panted happily as I hugged him. Yeah, I said quietly. I missed you too, buddy. I nodded toward the house. Anyone home? He tilted his head to one side slightly, one ear cocked at a slightly different angle from the other. He says no, Molly said. I blinked at her. First Sherlock, now Doolittle? She blushed slightly and looked embarrassed. It's just something I picked up. A dog's thoughts and emotions are a lot more direct and less conflicted than a human's. It's easier to listen for them. It isn't a big deal. Mouse came over to greet Molly by walking back and forth against her legs, nearly knocking her down. He stopped and looked fondly up at her, tail wagging, and made a little woofing sound. You're welcome, she said, and scratched his ears. I need your help, boy, I said. Bad guys took Butters, Andy, and Justine. Mouse shook his head vigorously and half sneezed. Mouse thinks Andy should be locked in the garage at night until she learns not to get abducted. Once we get her back, we'll start calling her danger-prone Daphne, I promised him. She's even got the hair for it. You in, Scoob? In answer, Mouse hurried to the street, looked both ways, 
then crossed it to sit down at the back door of the Munstermobile. Then he looked at me as if asking me why I wasn't opening it for him. Of course he's in, Molly translated, smiling. Good thing you're here, I said. He's tough to read. Chapter 37 We used the spinning needle in the bowl of water like a compass, driving north to south first to let us triangulate on our friend's location. As tracking spells went, this one was a little clumsier than most. We had to pull over the monstermobile and let the water settle to use it, but hey, nothing's perfect. We tracked our friends and presumably the Red Cap and Company to the waterfront. The sun was setting behind us and had briefly appeared from behind the clouds. The city's skyline cast deep, cold shadows over us. Harry, Molly said. You know that this is a trap, I said. Yep. The red cap knew exactly what I would do with those bits of hair. Molly looked a little relieved. Okay, then what's the plan? Once we're sure where they are, I said, I'm going to go in the front door. That's the plan? I'm going to be very, very noisy, I said. Meanwhile, you and Supermud are going to sneak in the back, all sneaky-like, neutralize any guards that aren't watching me, and get our crew out. Oh, Molly said. Are you sure you don't want me to be the distraction? It was a fair question. Molly's one-woman rave spell could get more attention than a crash at an air show. Does she know all about veils, I said. Mine aren't good enough to get anywhere near them. Yours are. It's that simple. Right, she said and swallowed. So we're going to depend on me for the important part, saving people. You've been playing Batman for a while now, kid, I said. I think you've got this. Mostly I was the only one in danger if I screwed up, Molly said. Are you sure this is the right plan? If you think you can handle it, I said. Or if you don't. Oh. I put a hand on her shoulder. We don't have time to dance around on this one. So we go dirt simple. When it starts, if someone gets in your way, I want you to hit them with everything you've got, right in the face. Mouse will be with you as muscle. Shouldn't he be with you? I mean, if you're going to fight, I'm not going to fight, I said. No time to prepare, no plan. I'd lose a fight. I'm going to be a big, noisy distraction. But what if you get in trouble? That's my part. You do your part. Keep focused on your objective. Get in, get them, get out. Signal. Then we all run away. Got it? She nodded tightly. Got it. Woof, said Mouse. Huh, I said a few moments later. We had triangulated with a tracking spell and narrowed down their location to one building, and we now lurked in an alley across the street. I've actually been in there before. You have? Yeah, I said. Client had lost a kid or something to some half-assed wannabe warlock. He had the cheesy dialogue and everything. Was going to sacrifice the kid with his big, cheap, spiky knife. How did it turn out? If I remember right, I got beat up, I said. Didn't make much money on it either. The bad guy ran away and the client walked out threatening a lawsuit. Except she left the kid. Turns out she wasn't even his mom, and his real parents tried to have me arrested. Never heard from her again. No clue what it was about. Chalk. 
Molly reached into her bag and came out with a stick of chalk, which she passed to me. I crouched and quickly sketched a diagram of the rectangular warehouse. Here's the front door, office door, back door. There's some windows up high, but you'd have to be a bird to get there. The rear of the warehouse actually protrudes over the water, but there's a wooden deck around the back. That's where you'll go in, at the back door. Watch for trip wires. Mouse can help with that. Trust him. We're basically blind and deaf by comparison. Right, Molly said, nodding. Okay. Don't get hung up on what could happen if it goes wrong, I said. Focus. Concentrate, just like we do for a spell. Get in. Get them. Get out. Let's just do it, she said, before I throw up. I'll give you five minutes to get into position. Don't go in until I get noisy. Right, Molly said. Come on, Mouse. The big dog came up beside Molly, and she didn't even have to bend to slip the fingers of one hand through his collar. Stay this close to me, okay? She said to Mouse. He looked up at her and wagged his tail. She gave him a shaky smile, nodded at me, then spoke a word and vanished. I started counting to three hundred and briefly wondered why I kept running into repeat uses of various locations around town. This wasn't the first time I'd dealt with the bad guys choosing to reuse a location different bad guys had used before them. Maybe there was a villainous timeshare association. Maybe my life was actually a basic cable television show and they couldn't afford to spend money on new sets all the time. Or, and this seems more likely, maybe there was a reason for it. Maybe the particular vibe of certain spots just felt more like home to predators. Predators like to lair in a place with multiple ways in and out, isolated from casual entry, near supplies of whatever it was they like to eat. Supernatural predators would also have some level of awareness of the nature of the never-never that abutted any given part of our reality, even if it was only an instinct. It would make sense that they would be more at ease in places that join parts of the never-never where they would be comfortable. I mean, everyone likes to eat somewhere that feels like home. If I lived throughout the next day or so, I needed to start keeping track of where these jokers like to get their bloodthirsty freak on. It might give me an edge someday. Or at least a list of places that could use a nice burning down. I hadn't burned down a building in ages. 299, 300. Ready or not, I muttered. Here I come. I strode out of the alley across from the warehouse, gathering my will into a ready shield around my left hand and ready to lance a force in my right. Hell's bells, I missed my equipment. Mab had forced me to learn how to do without, but that didn't mean I could do it as well. I missed my shield bracelet. I missed my blasting rod. I missed my spell-armored coat. With that gear, this would be pretty simple. I could protect myself better from every direction, and have a lot more range on my spells to make the bad guys keep their heads down. But it would take me weeks to build new ones, and I had to work with what I had, which was pretty much just me. My shields would be as strong, but I couldn't sustain them for as much time or in every direction, so I couldn't walk in with a nice comfortable bubble of force around me. Without the bracelet or a tool like it, I could protect myself only from the front and only for a few seconds at a time. My offensive spells would hit just as hard, but they'd have a shorter range. 
and they would take a few more crucial fractions of a second to enact. Man, I missed my toys. The warehouse had a little fence covered in plastic sheeting and topped with barbed wire. There was a gated area in front of the main entryway, though the gate had been blasted off its hinges by some deranged ruffian who did not look like me, no matter what the witnesses said, and apparently no one had replaced it since. Awful lot of open space out there. I'd be a really juicy target. Which was sort of the point. Make myself so attractively vulnerable that no one was watching the back door. It wasn't the best idea in the world to walk out into that, but Halloween night was maybe an hour away, and there wasn't time to be smart. That said, there's a difference between being reckless and being insane. I didn't especially like the idea of stumbling over a trip line tied to, let's say, an antipersonnel mine, so before I went in, I flung my right arm forward in a large sweeping underhand motion, as if I were trying to throw a bowling ball at the pins two lanes over from where I was standing. I muttered, Forzare! as I threw the spell, focusing on shaping the force I'd released into what I needed. Energy rippled across the ground in a shockwave that threw up dust and bits of gravel and irregular chunks of broken asphalt. It rippled across the ground to the warehouse and landed against its front doorway with a giant hollow boom. Say who's there! I shouted at the warehouse, already walking forward rapidly while the dust still hung in the air. It would make it more possible, if not likely, to spot any of the red-capped she-buddies who might be hiding under a veil inside it. I dare you! I double-dog dare you! I hurled another blast of force at the big loading doors in the front of the warehouse, something meant to make a lot of noise, not to tear them down. It succeeded. A second enormous concussion made the building's steel girders and metal walls ring like some vast, dark bell. The Furious Wizard, that's who! I shouted. You've got ten seconds to free my friends unharmed? or I'm going to fucking smite every last mother's son of you. I had maybe half a second's warning, and then a streaking black form dived down from above me and raked at my eyes with its talons. I snapped my head back out of the way, only to see a hawk beating back up out of the nadir of its dive. It rolled in the air, and as it did, it shimmered. And in an instant the hawk was gone, and one of the she was there in its place arcing through the air in free fall, holding a bow and an arrow in his hands. He drew and shot in the same instant he shifted, and I barely caught the arrow on my shield. Before he could begin to fall, he completed the roll and shifted again, back into hawk form, then beat his wings and continued rising into the sky. Hell's bells. That looked awesome. It took a serious mastery of shape-shifting to bring equipment and clothes and things with you when you changed form but that guy had made it look as easy as breathing. I mean, say what you will about the fairies, but they've got style. Not so much style that I didn't hurl another bolt of force after the flying archer, but I missed him, and he winged away with a mocking shriek. Then I felt a small, sharp pain in my left leg. I looked down to see a little wooden dart sticking out of the back of my calf. It was carved, perfectly smooth and round, and fletched with a few tiny slivers of scarlet feather. I snapped my gaze around behind me and caught a single glimpse of the red cap poised in a crouch atop a fence surrounding the warehouse, 
balancing his weight with apparent effortless ease along a strand of barbed wire that had to have been a sixteenth of an inch wide. His mouth was spread in a wide, manic grin. He held a short, silvery tube in one hand, and as my eyes found his face, he touched two fingertips of his other hand to his lips, blew me a kiss, and plummeted back off of the fence and out of sight. I whirled toward him and brought up my shield, then spun around and angled it that way, then jittered about, rubbernecking everywhere at once. But that was it. Assuming the she weren't simply undetectable to my senses, they were gone. A slow, burning sensation began to spread from the wound in my leg. A cold shiver oozed down my spine. I tugged the dart out of my calf. It hadn't done much. The slender spear of wood had penetrated maybe a quarter inch into my skin, but when I rolled up my pant leg to look, I found an inordinately large trickle of blood coming from the tiny wound. And that burning sensation became an almost infinitesimally greater presence with each heartbeat. This hadn't been a hostage crisis at all. It had been an assassination, or... or something. God damn it, I snarled. I just got played again. I am so sick and tired of this backstabby bullshit. I more or less stormed into the warehouse, shoving open the office door and stalking out onto the main floor. The place was just as empty as I remembered, give or take the leavings of several apparent transients between the present and the past. Molly was at the rear of the warehouse near the door. She was helping Justine to sit up. Mac was there too, and he and Butters were between them, helping a wobbly-looking Andy to remain on her feet. Mouse was standing guard between the group in the front of the warehouse, and he started wagging his tail when he saw me. Clear, I called out to them, hurrying over. Or at least clear-ish. What happened? They were under a sleeping enchantment, Molly reported. Pretty standard stuff. I woke them up. Everyone okay? Andy got hit on the head when they took her, she said. Other than that, I think we're good. When she spoke, Molly's voice never quavered, but her eyes flickered uncertainly toward Mac. I took a closer look at everyone. Andy, Butters, and Justine had all been bound. Justine was only now getting the ropes cut off of her wrists, and as Molly saw them away with a pocket knife, I could see the deep red marks they'd left on Justine's slender wrists. Butters and Andy had them too, visible even in the dimness of the warehouse. Mac didn't. That was interesting. Why hadn't Mac been tied up? Or if he had, how come there wasn't a mark to show for it? Either way, that was odd. My first instinct was to grab him and demand answers, but the direct approach hadn't gotten me anything but more confused as I went through this stupid day. I might have been a better thug than at any point in my life, but that wouldn't matter if I couldn't figure out where to apply my muscle. And I was damn tired of being sneaked up on. So, it was time to get sneaky. I ground my teeth and pretended that Molly hadn't clued me into anything. All right, people, I said. Let's move. I think they're gone, but they could be back. That it? Molly said. I was expecting more trouble than that. She broke off, staring at the floor behind me. My leg throbbed and burned a little more, and I glanced down at it in irritation. To my shock, I saw a long line of small smears of my blood on the tile floor. The little wound had continued bleeding, 
soaked through my sock and my shoe, and dribbled down onto my heel. What happened? Molly breathed. It was another stupid trick, I said. The point wasn't to hold them for ransom. It was to get me here, under pressure, and too keyed up to defend myself from every direction. I held up the dart. We better find out what this thing is, and what kind of poison is on it. Oh, my God, Molly breathed. I'll take whatever help I can get, I said. Let's go. But before I could finish the sentence, there was a loud crunching thump of a sound, and the entire warehouse shook. I barely had time to think demolition charges before there was a deafening crack and the floor tilted. And then the back twenty feet of the warehouse, including all of us, fell right off of the street and into the cold, dark water of Lake Michigan. Chapter 38 We didn't drop straight down. Instead, there was a scream of shearing bolts, and our part of the building lurched drunkenly and then plunged into the water at an oblique angle. The confusion of it was the worst part. The loud noise, the disorientation inherent in the uneven motion, and then the short surge of terror as gravity took over, all served to create a panicked reaction in my head. And I'm not a guy who panics easily. That's what most people don't understand about situations like this one. People are just built to freak out when something goes wrong. It doesn't matter if you're a kindergarten teacher or a special forces operative. When life-threatening stuff happens, you get scared. You freak out. That's just what happens. When it's because you've woken up to a hungry bear in your camp, that's usually a pretty good mechanism. But being dropped into black water in an enclosed area is not a place where panicked adrenaline is going to help you out. That's when you have to somehow set that fear aside and force yourself to use your rational mind to guide you out of the situation. There are two ways to get yourself into that terrified but rational state of mind. First is training, where you drill a reaction into yourself so hard and so many times that it becomes a form of reflex you can perform without even thinking. And the other way you get there is to have enough experience to have learned what you need to do. So the first thing I did as the cold water swallowed me was to close my eyes for a second and focus, just as I would if I were preparing a spell, relaxing my limbs and letting them float loosely in the water. I gathered my thoughts and laid out my options. First, I had time, but not much of it. I had gotten a good breath before I went under. The others might or might not have done the same. So I had about two minutes to act before people started trying to breathe Lake Michigan. Two minutes doesn't sound like long, but it was enough time to spend a few seconds thinking. Second, we were surrounded by steel siding. I wasn't getting through that with anything short of a full power blast, and that wasn't going to happen while I was surrounded by water. Water tends to disperse and ground out magical energies just by being nearby. When water is all around you, it's all but impossible to direct any energy out of your body without it spreading out and diluting to uselessness. The edges of the building might or might not have grounded themselves into the mud at the bottom of the lake, trapping us all like bugs under a shoebox lid. There wasn't time to search through them systematically, not before people started drowning. That meant that we had to go out through the only way I could be sure was available, the back door. 
except that everyone was spread out in the blackness now, and at least one person, Andy, was already disoriented from the blow to her head. It was possible others had been hurt in the fall, or would get hurt as they struggled to get out. There seemed to be very little chance that I could find the door, then find all of them in the dark, then get them pointed at the door and out. It seemed just as unlikely that everyone would stop to think and come to the same conclusion I had. There was a very real chance that one or more of my friends might be left behind. But what other options did I have? It wasn't as though I could lift the entire thing out of the water. No, I couldn't. But winter could. I opened my eyes into the darkness, made a best guess for down, and swam that way. I found mud within a few feet. I thrust my right hand down into the mud, thrashing rather awkwardly to get it done. Then I went limp again, floating a bit weirdly, tethered by my hand in the mud, and focused my mind. I wasn't going to try to lift the freaking building. That was just insane. I'd known things that might have been able to pull it off, but I was certain I wasn't one of them, not even with the power of the winter night's mantle. Besides, why do it the stupid way? I felt myself smiling, maybe smiling a little too widely in the dark water, and unleashed the cold of winter directly into the ground beneath me through my right hand. I poured it on, holding nothing back, reaching deep into me, to the source of cold power inside me, and sending it out into the muck of the lake bottom. Lake Michigan is a deep lake, and only its upper layers ever really warm up. Beyond a few feet of the surface, the cold is a constant, an absolute, and the mud at the bottom of what I was guessing to be fifteen or twenty feet of water at the most was clammy. As the power poured out of me, the water did what it always did with magic. It began to diffuse it, to spread it out, which was exactly what I was going for. Ice formed around my hand and spread into a circle several feet wide in the first instant, conducted more easily through the mud than through the water. I poured more effort in, and the circle widened, more ice forming, spreading out. I kept up the cold, and the water touching the bottom began to freeze as well. My heart began to beat harder, and there was a roaring sound in my ears. I didn't give up sending more and more cold into the lake around me, building up layer after layer of ice across the entire bottom of the lake beneath the collapsed warehouse. At sixty seconds, the ice was three feet deep and forming around my arm and shoulder. At ninety seconds, it had engulfed my head and upper body and had to have been five or six feet deep. And when my internal count reached a hundred and ten, the entire mass of ice tore loose from the lake's bottom with a groan and began to rise. I never let up on it, building it into a miniature iceberg, and the steel beams and walls of the warehouse moaned and squealed as the ice began to lift them free. I felt it when my feet came out of the water, though most of the rest of me was still stuck in the ice. I tore and twisted and seemed to know exactly where to apply pressure and torque without being told. The ice crackled away, and I slipped out of it with a minimum of fuss. When I pulled my head out, go ahead, make a joke, I was sitting in dim light atop a sheet of ice, floating several inches out of the waters of the lake. I was still in the rear section of the warehouse, 
The back door was open, straight above my head, and was letting in most of the light. The broken ends of the room, the floor, and the two walls had been embedded in ice, but crookedly. The ragged edge of the ceiling was a couple of feet out of the water. Several very startled-looking people and one fur-plastered dog were shivering on the ice. I took a quick head count. Everyone was there. I sank down onto the ice in relief, fatigue making my body feel like it weighed an extra ton, and just lay there for a moment as the wreckage bobbed gently in the water. After a few seconds, I became aware of eyes on me, and I looked up. My friends were all sitting or kneeling on the ice, damp and shivering, and staring at me with wide eyes. Molly's eyes were bright and intense, the expression on her face unreadable. Justine's mouth hung slightly open, and her big dark eyes looked afraid. Butters stared first at me and then down at the ice, his eyes flicking around. The wheels clearly churning in his head as he calculated how much ice there was and how much energy it would have taken to freeze it. Mac regarded me impassively, still supporting the dazed Andy. Sweetly curved Andy was the most vulnerable. If I could isolate her from the herd, things could get interesting. I had just saved her life, after all. She owed me. I could think of a few ways that she could express her gratitude. I pushed the predator thought out of my head and took a deep breath. When I exhaled, it condensed into a thick, foggy vapor, more so than it ever would have naturally, even on the coldest days. I looked down at my hands, and they were covered in frost, and my fingertips and nails were turning blue. I put a hand to my face and had to brush away a thin layer of frost. Hell's bells, what did I look like to make my friends stare at me like that? Time for mirrors later. I stood up, my feet sure, even on the wet ice, and found the nearest point of the shoreline. I extended a hand, murmured, Infriga, and froze a ten-foot-long bridge for my improvised iceberg to land. Come on, I said, as I started walking toward the shore. My voice sounded strange, rough. We don't have much time. The sun had slipped below the cloud cover, and the sky was a bank of hot coals, slowly burning down toward ember and ash when we got back to Molly's apartment. Thomas and Karen were waiting outside. The two of them were leaning against the wall near the security checkpoint. Thomas had a tall coffee cup in one hand and a bagel in the other. Karen was staring down at a smartphone, her thumbs flicking over its surface. Thomas took note of the car as it pulled up and nudged Karen. She looked up, then did a double-take at the monster-mobile. She rolled her eyes, then apparently turned the phone off and slipped it into a case on her belt. I stopped the car and rolled down the window. You've got to be kidding me, Karen said, eyeing the car. This? I think it's a company car, I said. Karen leaned down and looked at everyone in the back. What happened? Inside, I'll explain. We got parked and everyone made their way to Molly's place, some of them more slowly than others. You're limping, Thomas noted, walking beside me, and bleeding. No, I'm... I began. Then I sighed. Yeah, Red Cap shot me with some kind of dinky dart. 
Maybe poisoned or something. Thomas made a low growling sound in his chest. I'm just about done with that clown. Tell me about it. Molly opened the door, and the moment I stepped in, Lacuna came zipping over to me. The little armored fairy hovered in the air near my face, her dark hair flying wildly in the turbulence of her own beating wings. You can't do it, she cried. You can't just give them all that pizza. Do you have any idea how much harm you're doing? Can I please fight now? Whoa, I said, leaning back and holding up my hands. Hey, shortcake, my brother snapped. Back off. You aren't important. Lacuna declared to Thomas, evidently dismissing him entirely as she turned back to me. I wrote down everything, just like you said, and now they're going to get that awful pizza all over themselves without the least regard for properly protecting themselves, and I'm going to fight them for the pizza. In the first place, that is not a fight you're going to win, I said. And in the second place, they found something? And they wrote it down like you said, and now no duels, I said, and headed for the dining table. Sure enough, Lacuna had drawn precise little X's at all of the sites marked on the map. Most of them had been done with a green pen, but two locations were marked in red. One of them was next to one of the primary sites I'd marked earlier, on this side of the lake, north of town. The next was at one of the secondary sites, a little farther inland and on the far side of the lake. Lacuna. Were they sure that ritual preparation was underway at both of these locations? And the others were clear, the little fairy replied impatiently. Yes, yes, yes. Crap, I muttered. Molly, time? Twenty-five minutes to sundown, more or less, she replied. She came to the table with a first aid kit in her hands. Waldo, can you take a look at this? The minute I'm sure Andy isn't bleeding into her brain, Butters snapped. I've already sent for an ambulance, Molly said back in a calm, iron tone that sounded creepily like her mother. Andy will die with all of the rest of us if Harry doesn't stop things from going boom. So get over here and see to him. Butters turned toward Molly with absolute murder in his eyes, but then he looked at me and back to the dazed Andy in her chair. Mac was supporting her. The bartender looked up at Butters and nodded. I hate this, Butters said, his voice boiling with anger. But he came over to the table, grabbed the kit, and said, Try to hold still, Harry. I planted my foot and kept standing still as he started cutting away my jeans at the knee. Okay, I said. Karen was already standing beside me, and Thomas joined us across the table. What's the word for Marcone's Vikings? Strike team standing by, Murphy said. Waiting for my word, I grunted. Thomas? Lara's team is ready, too, he said. Butters, what do we have from the Paranet? Damn it, Dresden, I'm a medical examiner, not an intelligence analyst. He gave the little wound a prod with something, and a white-hot needle went up my leg to the hip. <clears throat> I said, nothing? He took a wipe to the wound, and that didn't feel very good either. About half a dozen sightings of the little folk all over. Aren't those yours? Murphy asked. Some, probably, I said. But I think they're the rest of Ace's crew. Murphy grunted. I thought the prisoner wouldn't tell you anything about him. I shrugged. 
I figure it was Ace who threw the explosives at the Munstermobile last night when the little folk jumped me afterward. He showed up right when Lacuna jumped me at the Botanic Gardens. Then, when I go to get my friends back from his dad, something else blows up. He's learned to play with explosives, Karen said. Yeah, but you've barely seen this guy, Thomas said. It makes sense, I said, especially if he's playing smart, which he is, just by rounding up a group of the little folk as allies. He knows he couldn't handle a straight fight, so he's kept his distance. We've barely seen him, and he's nearly killed me three times in the past sixteen hours. Huh, Thomas said. What's he got against you, Molly asked. He was part of Lily and Fix's crew back when they were all just folks, I said. They were friends with Aurora in the last summer night. When Mab hired me to find Ronald Rule's killer, Ace pitched in with this ghoul hitter in the winter night to stop me. Betrayed his friends. Billy and his crew almost killed him, but I let him skate. And he hates you for it? Molly asked. I killed Aurora, I said. His friend Merrill died in that same fight. And you can be damn sure that Lily and Fix haven't wanted anything to do with him since. So from where he's standing, I killed one of his friends, got another one killed in battle, and took the ones who were left alive away from him. Then I beat him up in front of his dad. Guy's got a forest of bones to pick with me. Cheery image, Thomas said. I grunted. What about your nut job, Butters? What's his name? Gary. Gary turn up anything else? About twenty updates in all capital letters about boats, boats, boats. I thought about that one for a moment. Then I said, Huh. We have to move, Harry, Karen said. I grunted. Guards still have her chopper? Yes. Right, I said. I thumped my finger on the site on the far side of Lake Michigan. Lacuna, what's the word on this one? The little fairy was still flitting about in the air around the table, fairly bursting with impatience. It's behind big stone walls on a human's private land right where I marked it. I nodded. Vikings get that sight then. Get them moving. Right, Murphy said, and headed for the door, reaching for her phone on the way. Thomas frowned. We're going to depend on Lara's people to back us up? Hell no, I said. No offense, but I don't trust your sister. Send her crew to the second site. This is damned odd, Butters muttered. I looked down at him. What? The bleeding won't stop, he said. It's not really all that dangerous in a wound this small, but it isn't clotting up. It's like some kind of anticoagulant was introduced. Do you still have the dart? Dart, I said. I patted my pockets. Uh, I guess not. It was in my hand when the warehouse dropped into the water. Bah, Butter said. Inflammation in the skin around it. This hurt. He poked me. It did. I told him so. Huh, he said. I can't be sure without tests, but I think this might be some kind of allergic reaction. How? I asked. I'm not allergic to anything. I'm just saying what it looks like on your skin, Butter said. The trickle factor seems to imply some kind of toxin, though. You need a hospital. Test. Later, I said. Just get it wrapped up and keep it from running down my leg. Butters nodded. So, Thomas asked, if Lara's crew has one side and Marcone's the other, which one are we going to? Neither. What? We're not going to either one. Why not?
Because all day long, I said, I've been moving in straight lines, and it's gotten me nothing but grief. I pointed at the locations marked on the map. See those? Those are the perfectly rational places for our bad guy to make something happen. Thomas rubbed at his chin and narrowed his eyes. They're a distraction? It's how the she think, how they move, how they are. They put pressure on you, get you to look over there, and then kapow, sucker punch. What if they're expecting you to expect that? Thomas asked. Ah, I said, waving my hands on either side of my head as if brushing away wasps. Stop it. If I'm wrong, we've got professional badasses to cover it, but I'm not wrong. Didn't you say that they required a ley line site to perform a ritual that big? Butters asked. He had taped a pad over the little injury and was securing it with a roll of gauze. Yes, I said. Hadn't the little folk cleared all of them but those two? No, I said. They cleared almost all of them. There was one place the little folk couldn't check. Thomas's eyes widened as he got it. Boats, he said. Yeah, I said. Boats. Chapter 39 Thomas rose, glancing around the room, and said in a quiet voice, She needs fuel, and I'd better talk to Lara about the second sight. But his eyes had drifted over to where Justine now sat by the fire, basking in warmth after our icy dunk, and staring at it with a peaceful expression on her lovely face. Get moving, I said. I lowered my voice. You taking her with you? You kidding? Bad guys have been all over us today. That creep took her right off the street in front of our apartment. I'm not letting her out of my sight. Look, if you leave her here, the building has security that... So does my building. And Cat Sith breezed right past all of it when he came in, Thomas said. I'm not letting her out of my sight until this thing is settled. I grimaced and nodded. All right, go. We'll be right behind you. My brother arched an eyebrow. All of you? We'll see, I said. Did you talk to her? Thomas asked. I gave him a steady look and said, No, Maggie was out trick-or-treating. Right. She's what, nine years old? She might as well have vanished into the Bermuda Triangle. How could you possibly be expected to find her? Magic? He gave me a sour look. What about the other one? He meant Karen. We've both been kind of busy. Maybe later. Later. Bad habit to get into, Thomas said. Life's too short. It almost sounded like you were attempting to enlighten me about bad habits. The path of excess leads to the Palace of Wisdom, he said and turned for the door. At the exact moment he moved, even though she was not looking at him, and though he said nothing to her, Justine rose from her seat by the fire and started toward the door. The pair of them met halfway there, and she slipped herself beneath his arm and up close to him in a motion of familiar, unconscious intimacy. They left together. My brother the vampire, whose kiss was a slow death sentence, had a stable and loving relationship with a girl who was crazy about him. By contrast, I could barely talk to a woman at least about anything pertaining to a relationship. 
Given that my only long-term girlfriends had faked their own death, died, and broken free of enslaving enchantments to end the relationship, the empirical evidence seemed to indicate that he knew something I didn't. Keep your life tonight, Harry. Complicate it tomorrow. Murphy came back in with a pair of EMTs I recognized, Lamar and Simmons. They got Andy loaded up onto a stretcher, and Lamar blinked when he saw me. He didn't look as young as he had the last time I'd seen him. A few threads of silver in his hair stood out starkly against his dark hair and skin. Dresden, he said, that you? Mostly. I heard you were dead. Close. It didn't take. He shook his head and helped his partner secure Andy to the stretcher. They picked up the stretcher and toted her outside, with Butters hurrying along beside them, his hand on Andy's arm. Once they were gone, I stood in the room with the grasshopper, Karen, and Mac. Mouse dozed on the floor near the door, but his ears twitched now and then, and I doubted he was missing anything. Molly, I said, would you ask Sarissa to join us, please? She went off to her room and returned a moment later with Sarissa. The slender, beautiful woman came into the room silently and didn't meet anyone's eyes. Hers were focused in the middle distance as she tried to keep track of everyone in the room through peripheral vision. All right, I said. Things are about to hit the fan. They're confusing as hell, and I'm getting tired of feeling like I have no idea what's going on. There are some unknown quantities here, and some of you aren't telling me everything, but there isn't enough time to pry it all out of each of you. I pointed a finger at Sarissa. Maybe you really are everything you say you are, Maybe not. But I figure there are about two chances in three that you're playing me somehow, and I think you're way too good at backstabbing to leave you standing around behind me. Everything I've told you, Sarissa began. I slashed a hand at the air. Don't talk. This isn't an interrogation. It's a public service announcement. I'm telling you how it's going to be. She pressed her lips together and looked away. Mac, I said. Much as it pains me to level suspicion at the master craftsman of the best beer in town, you're hiding something. That outsider talked to you as if it knew you, and I don't think it was an aficionado of your ale. Do you want to tell me who you really are? Mac was silent for a moment, then he said, No, that's mine. I grunted. Didn't think so. I figure it's more likely that you are an ally, or at least neutral, than it is that you're a plant for somebody, but I'm not completely sure about you either. I looked at them both and said, I'm not sure if you're my friends or my enemies, but I heard something once about keeping them close and closer. So until things have shaken out, you're both staying where I can keep track of you. And you both should be aware that I'm going to be ready to smack you down if I pick up on the least little hint of treachery. I am not, Sarissa began. I stared at her. She bit her lip and looked away. I turned my eyes to Mac. He didn't look thrilled about it, but he nodded. Okay, I said. We'll be on the lake. There are a couple more coats in the guest bedroom closet. Better grab one. Mac nodded and beckoned Sarissa with a tilt of his head. Miss? They went to the guest bedroom, and that left me facing Murphy with the grasshopper hovering in the background. 
I made a little kissing noise with my puckered lips, and Mouse lifted his head from the ground. You pick up anything weird about either of them? I asked. Mouse sneezed, shaking his head, and laid it back down again. I grunted. Guess not. I took a deep breath. Grasshopper, maybe it's a good time to take Mouse for a W-A-L-K. Mouse's head snapped up. Molly looked back and forth between Karen and me and sighed. Yeah, okay. Maybe take those two with you when you go. And have security bring the car around, too. We'll leave shortly. Right, Molly said. She collected Mac and Sarissa, now clad in badly fitting second-hand coats, and they left. It was just me and Karen. The fire crackled. Karen said, You picked up Mouse. Did you get to see Maggie? Christ, everyone wants to know about... I shook my head. She was out. She nodded. Did you get out of the car or just wait at the curb? I gave her a flat stare. She looked back at me with her cop face. I failed to terrify her off the subject. Curb, I said. She smiled faintly. I've seen you walk into places that should have killed you seven, eight times. You didn't flinch, but now you're petrified with fear? Not fear, I said, so quickly and with such vehemence that it became immediately clear to me that fear was exactly what I was feeling when I thought of approaching Maggie. Sure it isn't, Karen said. Look, I said, we don't have time for... My dad said that a lot, Karen said. I can't right now. We'll do that later. He was busy, too. Then he was gone. I am not going to deal with this right now, Karen nodded. Right. Not right now. Later. Christ, I said. Karen looked down at the floor and smiled briefly, then looked back up at me. I never liked being shrunk. Had to a couple of times. After I shot Denton, stuff like that. So, I said. Some things can't just sit inside you, she said. Not when... She spread her hands. Harry, you're dealing with serious pressures here. With something that could change who you are. I don't blame you for being afraid. I've got the winter night thing under control, I said. Winter night, Mab, whatever, she said, as if it were an everyday annoyance. Magic stuff. You deal with it, fine. I'm talking about something real. I'm talking about Maggie. Oh, I said. I figure it'll take Thomas at least ten minutes to fuel the boat, she said. It's been about five since he left which gives you five minutes with no city to save, no evil queens, and no monsters. No one to protect right in front of you, no apprentices to look strong for. I looked at her blankly and felt my shoulders sag. I hadn't slept in too long. I wanted to find a nice bed somewhere and pull the covers over my head. I don't... What are you looking for here? What do you expect from me? She stepped closer and took my hand. Talk to me. Why didn't you go see Maggie? I bowed my head and let my fingers stay limp. I can't. I just can't. Why not? I tried to speak and couldn't. I shook my head. Karen stepped closer to me and took my other hand in hers, too. I'm right here, she said. What if... 
I whispered. What if... She remembers. Remembers what? She was there, I said. She was there when I cut her mother's throat. I don't know if she was conscious, if she saw, but what if she did? In my head, I've run this scenario about a thousand times, and if she saw me and started screaming or crying, I shrugged, that would be hard. You know what's going to be harder? Karen asked quietly. What? Not knowing. She shook my hands gently. Leaving a hole in that little girl's life. She's your daughter, Harry. You're the only dad she's ever going to have. Yeah, but if I show up and she remembers me, I'm not her father. I'm her father, the monstrous villain. I'm Darth Dresden. She'll learn better, Murphy said, eventually, if you try. You don't understand, I said quietly. I can't. I can't do anything that might hurt her. I just can't. I barely know that little girl, but she's mine. And I'd rather double kneecap myself with a frying pan than bring her an ounce of pain. Pain passes, Karen said. If you think about it, you don't get it, I half snarled. She's blood, Karen. She's mine. Thinking has no place in this. She's my little girl. I can't see her get hurt again. I stopped suddenly with my mouth hanging open. Hell's bells. How could I have missed what the mothers were trying to tell me? I couldn't bear to see my child in pain. And maybe I wasn't the only one who couldn't. Stars and stones, I breathed. That's what's happening here. Karen blinked up at me several times. Excuse me? I kept thinking about it, following the logic. That's why Mab sent me to kill Maeve. She's no different from Titania. She knew it needed to be done, but... But what? Karen asked. Maeve is still her little girl, I said quietly. Mab isn't human, but there are... Remnants in all the she. Mother Winter called Mab a romantic. I think this is why. Mother Summer went on and on about how humans have influenced the she. That's what this whole thing is about. I don't understand, Karen said. Mab loves her daughter, I said simply. She won't kill Maeve because she loves her. I let out a bitter little laugh. And there's a kind of symmetry here that the fairies are crazy about. I killed the last summer lady. It's only fitting that the same hand deal with the winter lady. My brain was running along with my mouth, and I stopped talking so that I could poke at the logic of the theory that my instincts, or maybe my heart, told me was obviously true. If Mab wasn't out to wreck the world, if she hadn't been taken by the adversary, then someone else had been lying to me. Someone who shouldn't have been able to lie. Okay, Karen said. If not Mab, then who is going to pull off this apocalypse ritual magic? I kept following the lines of logic and felt myself grow abruptly cold. Oh. Oh, God. All this time.
I turned and started for the door. Outsiders. At the end of the day, this is all about the outsiders. We've got to go, right now. Harry? Karen said. I turned to face her. Why won't you explain? She frowned. You don't trust me. So you're going to keep me close, just like the others. I looked down at the floor. Don't take it hard. I don't trust myself right now. She shook her head. This is the thanks I get. It's Halloween, I said. It's the night when everyone looks like something that they aren't. I turned toward the door. But I'm about to start ripping off masks. And we'll both see where everyone stands. Come on. Chapter 40 I had a word with Toot Toot once we were outside, and by the time the Munstermobile rolled out of the lot, we had a ring of tiny, nigh-invisible escorts pacing us, making it their business to dislodge any enemy tiny observers our foes might have sent to keep tabs on us. It didn't make me think that we would avoid the attentions of enemy little folk altogether, but every little thing I could conceal from the people working against me could prove to be a critical edge. Karen saw the car's paint job again, rolled her eyes, and declined my offer of a ride. She followed us on her Harley. Molly rode shotgun with me, holding her backpack on her lap. Molly was a big believer in shaping the future by way of carrying anything you might need in a backpack. Tonight it looked particularly stuffed. As I drove, the burn in my calf continued every time I worked the clutch or pumped the brake getting slowly worse beneath the layers of gauze Butters had wrapped it in. The rest of my lower leg was tingling and itching, too, but at least the wound wasn't soaking through the bandages. What the hell had that dart been? Why plug me with it unless the red cap thought it would kill me? I, uh, Molly said as I pulled the caddy into the marina parking lot, I got you something. Huh? I asked. I had them rush it out this morning and we got it this afternoon. I mean, you know, as long as I was using Thomas's card anyway. You embezzled funds from the white court to get me a present? I like to think of it less as embezzling and more as an involuntary goodwill contribution, she said. Careful, I told her. You don't want to get entangled with Lara and her crew. Even owing the money isn't smart. I didn't borrow it, boss. I stole it. If they weren't cautious enough to stop me, that isn't my problem. They should be more careful who they hand these cards to. Besides, they can afford it. The entitled younger generation, I swear, I said. Well done. I found a space big enough for the Munstermobile and parked, then set the emergency brake and killed the engine. What is it? Molly got out of the car. Come see. I started to, but she hurried impatiently around to meet me, digging into her backpack. I shut the car door behind me, and she presented me with a paper-covered package tied with string. I opened it by tearing paper and snapping string, and a long leather garment unrolled. Molly sang the opening riff from Bad to the Bone. I felt myself smiling and held up a long coat of heavy black leather, like one of those old cowboy dusters, except for the long mantle hanging down over its shoulders. It smelled like new leather and shone without a scuff mark to be seen. Where the hell did you find an Inverness coat? I asked her. Internet, she said. Security guy helped me shop for it. You don't know his name? I asked. His name is Guy, and he's building security, Molly said. 
security guy. And he did this for you, why? I asked. Because I'm pretty, and because he might have gotten a gift certificate out of the deal. Remind me never to give you one of my credit cards, I said, and I put the coat on. The weight of the leather settling around me was familiar and comforting, but this coat wasn't the same as my old coat. The sleeves were a little longer and fit better. The shoulders were a little narrower and actually matched up with mine. The mantle hung down a bit more. The pockets were in a slightly different place. Most significantly, it didn't have the layers of protective enchantments that took about half a working week to lay down. But, yeah, I decided, I could get used to it. I looked up to see my apprentice grinning widely. I put my hand on her shoulder for a moment, smiled, and said, Thanks, Malls. Her eyes shone. Mouse piled out of the car and hurried over to sniff the coat, tail wagging. What do you think? I asked him. Woof, he said seriously. He thinks it suits you, Molly said, smiling. Goofy motorcycle cowboy meets Scotland Yard. Mouse wagged his tail. I grunted as Karen pulled in and parked her Harley far down the row from the Munstermobile in a motorcycle parking space. She eyed me as she came walking up to us, then Molly, and gave her an approving nod. That's more like it, she said. Feels good, I said. I nodded toward the water, where the water beetle was chugging slowly back into its berth. Thomas was at the wheel, maneuvering the tub deftly. I waved at him, and he replied with a thumbs-up gesture. The boat was ready to go. I turned to speak to the others, but before I could, I felt my concentration disrupted. An eerie, cool frisson rolled down my spine, all the way down my body to my legs. There was a flicker and a chill from the little wound, and the pain became a little less. At the same moment, I sensed the air grow a fraction of a degree colder, something I would never have noticed on my own. Sundown. That's it, I said a second later. Sun's down. It's on. What if you're too late? Sarissa asked. What if they're starting right now? Then we're wasting time talking about it, Molly said. Let's get to the boat. She beckoned Mac and Sarissa. This way, please. I glanced at Mouse and jerked my chin toward Molly. He heaved himself up and went after her, walking just behind our two unknown quantities. Karen had opened a storage compartment on her Harley. She shrugged out of her jacket and then slipped into a tactical harness and clicked it shut around her. She added a number of nylon pouches to it, then took out a gym bag and dropped heavy objects in before shutting the compartment and locking it. She looked up at me and nodded. All set? I miss my gear, I said. P90 in there? His name is George, Karen said. You want my backup gun? Nah, I've already got the finest killing technology 1866 had to offer on the boat. Glad I didn't name it George. How embarrassing would that have been? George isn't insecure, she said. What about, uh, the swords? The swords. No, Karen said. Why not? She frowned and then shook her head. This isn't their fight. That doesn't make any sense, I said. I've wielded one, she said, and it makes perfect sense to me. To use them tonight would be to make them vulnerable, no. But, I began, Harry, Karen said. Remember the last time the swords went to the island? When their actual adversaries were there? Remember how that turned out? 
My best friend, Molly's dad, had been shot up like a Tennessee speed limit sign. The swords had a purpose, and as long as they kept to it, they were invulnerable, and the men and women who wielded them were avenging angels. But if they went off mission, bad things tended to happen. Trust me, Karen said quietly. I know it doesn't make sense. Sometimes faith is like that. This isn't their fight. It's ours. I growled. Fine, but tell the Almighty that he's missing his chance to get in on the ground floor of something big. Murphy punched my chest, but gently, and smiled when she did it. The two of us turned toward the dock and began to follow Molly and the others. I was just about a step out onto the dock when I heard something. I stopped in my tracks and turned. It started low and distant, a musical cry from somewhere far away. It hung in the darkening air for a moment, like some carrion bird over dying prey, and then slowly faded. The wind started picking up. Again the tone sounded, nearer, and the hairs on my arms stood straight up. Thunder rumbled overhead. The rain, a fitful drizzle most of the day, began to fall in chilly earnest. And again the hunting horn sounded. My heart started revving up, and I swallowed. Footsteps approached, and then Thomas was standing beside me, staring out the same way I was. Without speaking, he passed me the Winchester rifle and the ammunition belt. Is it? I asked him. His voice was rough. Yeah. Damn it. How soon? Soon. Coming right through the heart of downtown. Fuck, I said. Karen held both hands up. Wait, wait, the both of you. What the hell is happening? The wild hunt is coming, I said, my throat dry. Um, I sort of pissed off the Earl King a while back. He's not the kind of person to forget that. The King of Earls? Karen asked. Now who isn't making sense? He's a powerful lord of fairy, Thomas explained. He's one of the leaders of the wild hunt. When the hunt comes to the real world, it starts hunting prey, and it doesn't stop. You can join it, you can hide from it, or you can die. Wait, Karen said. Harry? They're hunting you? My heart continued to beat faster, pumping blood to my muscles, keying my body to run, run, run. It was hard to think past that and answer her question. Uh, yeah, I can... I think I can feel them coming. I looked at Thomas. Water? They'll run over it like it was solid ground. How do you know that? Karen asked. I joined, Thomas said. Harry, Justine. I clenched my hands into fists on the heavy rifle. Get on the boat and go. I'm not leaving you. Oh, yes, you are, I said. Wraith and Marcone have the other two sites covered, but we are the only ones left to get to Demon Reach. If we blow it there and the ritual goes off, we're all screwed. If I go with you, the hunt follows me and then goes after whoever is close. We'll never pull off an assault with them on our heels. My brother ground his teeth and shook his head. Let's go, Harry, Karen said. If they follow us out over the lake, we'll take them on. You can't take them on, I said quietly. The hunt isn't a monster you can shoot. It's not some creature you can wrestle with or some kind of mercenary you can buy off. It's a force of nature, red in tooth and claw. It kills. That's what it does. But, Karen began, 
He's right, Thomas said, his voice rough. Damn it, he's right. It's chess, I said quietly. We've been checked with that ritual on the island. We have no choice but to try to stop it with everything we've got. If it means sacrificing a piece, that's how it has to be. I put a hand on my brother's shoulder. Go, get it done. He put his cold, strong hand over mine for a second. Then he turned and ran for the boat. Karen stared up at me for a second, the rain plastering her hair down. Her face was twisted with agony. Harry, please, she swallowed. I can't leave you alone, not twice. There are eight million people in this city, and if we don't shut the ritual down, those people will die. Karen's expression changed from pain to shock, from shock to horror, and from horror to realization. She made a choking sound and ducked her head. Her face turned away from me. Then she turned toward the boat. I watched her for a second longer. Then I sprinted for the monstermobile as the haunting cry of the wild hunt's horn grew nearer. I jammed my key into the door lock and... and it wouldn't fit. I tried it again. No joy. Half panicked, I ran to each of the others, but every single one of the locks was out of commission. I was going to bust out a window, but I checked the car's ignition through it first. It had been packed with what looked like chewing gum. The monstermobile had had been sabotaged with gum and superglue. It was a trick I'd had Toot and company play on others more than once, and now what I had done unto others had been done unto me at the damnedest moment imaginable. Ah! I screamed. I hate ironic reversal! The Zawlord's guard had been escorting us along the way, but I hadn't said anything about staying on the job once we reached our destination. Given the distance I'd had them covering today, they probably dropped down exhausted the second I'd set the parking brake. The thunder rolled closer, my unthinking panic rose, and my wounded leg felt like it might burst into flames. My leg. My eyes widened with horror of my own. The red cap had killed me at that ambush, and I was only now realizing it. The trickle of blood flowing steadily from that tiny wound would leave a powerful olfactory and psychic trail behind me. Tracking me would be easier than whistling. I could run, but I couldn't hide. Thunder roared, and I saw a cluster of dim forms descend from the cloud cover overhead and into the city light of Chicago. I could run, but the hunt was moving at highway speeds. I wouldn't even be able to significantly delay the inevitable. Shadowy hounds rushed down at me from the north, along the shoreline, and behind them came a blurry cluster of dark figures on horseback, carrying bows and spears and long blades of every description. I couldn't beat the hunt, not even with Mab's roids in my system. But maybe... Then there was another roar, this time not of thunder, but of a hundred and forty horses, American-made. Karen Murphy's motorcycle slid to a stop, close enough to me to throw gravel over my shoes, and I turned to find her revving the engine. Karen, what the hell are you doing? Get on the bike, bitch, she called over the next horn blast. Let's make them work for it. She smiled a fierce, bright smile, and I found my own face following her example.
Fuck yeah, I said, and threw myself onto the back of the Harley as darkness, death, and fire closed in around my city. Chapter 41 I dropped the cartridge belt for the Winchester over one shoulder and hurried to rake in the tail of my new duster before the motorcycle's rear wheel snagged it and killed me. I damn near fell off as Karen accelerated, but managed to cling to her waist with the arm holding the rifle. Karen scowled at me, grabbed the rifle from my hand, and slipped it down into a little section on the side of the Harley that fit the short rifle suspiciously well. I held on to her with a free hand, and with the other made sure my coat wouldn't get me killed. Which way? she shouted back to me. South, fast as you can. She stomped one of her feet onto something, twisted a wrist, and the Harley, which had been doing around fifty, leapt forward as if it hadn't been moving at all. I shot a quick glance over my shoulder and saw the nearest elements of the hunt begin to slowly fade back. I guess maybe the wild hunt hadn't ever heard about Harley-Davidson. But she couldn't maintain the speed, not even on a wide Chicago street in chilly, rainy weather. There were just too many other people around, forcing her to weave between traffic, and she had to slow down to keep from splattering us all over some family sedan. Indignant car horns began to blare as she slipped in and out of lanes, adding an abrasive harmony to the horns of the wild hunt. How we doing? she called. I looked back. The wild hunt was less than a hundred yards away, and they didn't have to contend with traffic. The jerks were racing along fifty feet off the freaking ground, up in the dark and the rain, unseen by the vast majority of people going about their everyday business. They're cheating! Go faster! Head for the bush! Karen turned her head enough to catch me in the edge of her vision. Is there a plan? It isn't a very good plan, I shouted. But I need a big open area for it to work, away from people. In Chicago? She shouted. Then her eyes widened. The mills? Go! I shouted. Karen blitzed a red light, narrowly avoiding a left-turning car, and continued her furious rush down Lakeshore Drive. Chicago is a city of terrific demands. Demand for a military presence helped establish the early colonial-era forts, which in turn provided security for white settlers, traders, and missionaries. They built houses, churches, and businesses, which accreted over time into a town, then a city. Chicago's position as the great crossroads of the emerging American nation meant that more and more people arrived, building more homes, businesses, and eventually heavy-duty industry. By the end of the 19th century, Chicago was a booming industrial city, and its steel mills were nearly legendary. U.S. Steel, Youngstown Steel, Wisconsin Steel, Republic Steel, all thriving and growing on the shore of Lake Michigan, down by Calumet City. The lakefront in that entire area was sculpted to accommodate the steel works, and much of the steel that would fuel the Allied efforts in two world wars was produced in that relatively tiny portion of the city. But all things wither away eventually. The American steel industry began to falter and fade, and by the end of the 20th century, all that remained of an ironmongery epicenter was a long stretch of industrial-strength wasteland and crumbling buildings on Lake Michigan's shore. A decade later, the city started trying to clean the place up, 
knocking down most of the buildings and structures. But here and there, stone and concrete ruins remained, like the bones of some vast beast that had been picked clean by scavengers. Nothing much grew there as the city around it thrived, just weeds and property values. That portion of the waterfront was slated for renewal, but it hadn't happened yet, and right now it was blasted heath, a flat, dark, empty, and desolate stretch of level land dotted with lonely reminders of former greatness. There was no shelter from rain or cold there, and on a miserable night like this there shouldn't be anyone hanging around. All we had to do was make it that far. We flew by the Museum of Science and Industry on our right, then flashed over the bridge above the 59th Street Yacht Harbor, moving into a section of road that had a little distance between itself and the nearest buildings and a decided lack of foot traffic on a cold autumn evening. As if they'd been waiting for an opening away from so many prying eyes, the wild hunt swept down on us like a falcon diving onto a rabbit. But they were not attacking a rabbit. They were attacking a wabbit. A wascally wabbit. A wascally wabbit with a Winchester. Something that looked like a great gaunt hound made of smoke and cinders with glowing coals for eyes hit the ground just behind the Harley and began sprinting, keeping pace with us. It came rushing in, dark jaws spread to seize the back tire, the same motion it might have used had it been attempting to hamstring a fleeing deer. Mindless animal panic raged inside my head, but I kept it away from the core of my thoughts, forcing myself to focus, think, act. I saw Karen's eyes snap over to her rearview mirror as it closed, and felt her body tensing against mine as she prepared to evade to the left. I gathered my will but waited to unleash it, and as the charhound closed within inches of the tire, Karen leaned and took the Harley left. The charhound's jaws clashed closed on exhaust fumes, and I unleashed my will from the palm of my outstretched right hand with a snarl of, Forzare! Force hit the charhound low on its front legs, and the beast's head went into the concrete at breakneck speed, literally. There was a terrible snapping sound, and the charhound's limp body went tumbling end over end, bouncing up into the air for a dozen yards before landing, shedding wisps of darkness all the way. What landed in a boneless sprawl on the road was not a dog or a canine of any sort. It was a young man, a human, wearing a black T-shirt and torn old blue jeans. I barely had time to register that before the body tumbled off the road and was out of sight. Good shot! Karen cried, grinning fiercely. She was driving. She hadn't seen what was under the hound's outer shell. So that's how one joined the wild hunt. It was a mask. A huge, dark, terrifying mask. A masquerade. And I just killed a man. I didn't get any time to feel angst over it. Karen gunned the engine of the Harley, and it surged ahead, running along a spit of land that bifurcates Jackson Harbor. Even as she did, two riders descended, one on either side of the road, their steeds' hooves hammering against empty air about five feet up. Like the charhound, the steeds and riders were covered in a smoky darkness, through which shone the amber fire of their eyes. Karen saw the one on the right and tried to move left again, but the second rider pressed in closer, 
the dark horse's hooves nearly hammering onto our heads, and she wobbled and gunned the accelerator. I recognized another hunter's tactic. The first had forced us to close distance with the second. They were driving us between them, trying to make us panic and think about nothing but running straight ahead in a nice, smooth, predictable line. The second rider lifted an arm and he held the dark shape of a spear in his hand. He flung it forward, leading the target perfectly. I flung up my left hand, extending my shield spell. It got mixed results. The spear flew into it and through it, shredding my magic as it went. But instead of flying into my face, the spear was deflected just enough that its blade sliced across the back of my neck, leaving a line of burning pain behind it. The adrenaline was flowing and the pain didn't matter. Hell, it really didn't matter if the wound had opened an artery. It wasn't as though I could stop to get medical attention if it had. I twisted around to fling another bolt of force at the rider, but he lifted a hand and let out an eerie screech, and my attack was dispersed, doing little more than inconveniencing my target. His horse lost a step or two, but he dug black spurs into the beast's hide, and it soon made up the pace. Big surprise, magic wasn't a big threat to the huntsman. Solution? Winchester. I drew the rifle from the rack on the Harley, thumbed back the hammer while still holding it in one hand, then twisted at the waist to bring it to bear on the rider, the heavy weapon's forearm falling into my left hand. I didn't have much time to aim, and it might have actually been counterproductive given our speed, the irregularities of the chase, the darkness, and the rain. Plus, I'm not exactly Annie Oakley, so I made a best guess and pulled the trigger. The rifle let out a crack of thunder, and a burst of disintegrated shadow flew up from the shoulder and neck and jawline of the rider. I got a look at the armor beneath the mask and a portion of his face, and realized with renewed terror that I just put a bullet into the Earl King. And an instant later, I realized with a surge of incandescent hope that I just put a bullet into the Earl King on Halloween night. The Earl King reeled in the saddle, and his horse faltered and veered away, gaining altitude again. I levered a new round into the chamber, gripped the weapon like a pistol, and whirled it back over Karen's ducked head to point it one-handed at the rider on the right, who was even now making his own approach, spear uplifted. I guessed again and shot. I didn't hit him, but the thunder of the gun came just as he flung the spear. I didn't rattle the rider, but the flame-eyed horse flinched, and the spear flew wide of us. The rider was not deterred. He brought his steed under control first. Then he let out a weird, bubbling screech and swept a long, dark-bladed sword from the scabbard at his side. He started closing the distance again. It was impossible to lever another round into the rifle quickly while riding behind Karen. That thing John Wayne does, whirling the rifle one-handed to cock it? It really helps if you have one of those enlarged, oblong lever handles to do it with, and mine was the smaller, traditional rectangle. Also, it helps to be John Wayne. I had to draw the rifle into my chest and hold it steady with my left hand to get it done. The rider swerved in at us and I shot again, and missed as his steed juked and abruptly changed speed, briefly falling back before boring in again. I repeated that cycle three times before I realized that the rider was playing me for a sucker. 
He respected the gun, but knew its weakness. Me. He wasn't dodging bullets. He was dodging me. Tempting me into taking shots with little chance of success in an effort to get me to use up my ammo. And all the while, the rest of the hunt kept pace with us. Dozens of riders like this one, plus maybe twice that many shadowy hounds, all keeping about fifty yards back and up, clearly giving the first two hunters the honor of first attempt. His horse! Karen screamed. Shoot the horse! I ground my teeth. I didn't want to do that. For all I knew, that thing was only a horse costume. There could be another human being underneath that shadowy outer shell. The rider screeched again, the sound weirdly familiar and completely hair-raising. Again and again he came in on us, and I kept holding him off as we raced at insane speed through the rainy night, trading bullets for time. There! I shouted suddenly, pointing off to our left. Over there! The walls! We had reached the old steelwork grounds. Karen gunned the engine and swept the Harley out onto the open ground, racing frantically toward one of the only structures remaining, a trio of concrete walls maybe thirty or forty feet high, running parallel to one another for at least a quarter of a mile, the last remains of U.S. steel. As the steed's hooves started hitting the ground, they abruptly threw off clouds of angry silver sparks with every strike. The dark horse screeched in agony, and I let out a howl of defiance. After a century of labor in the steel mills, there had to be unreal levels of trace steel and iron in the ground where they had stood. And whatever power sustained the wild hunt didn't like it any more than the other beings of fairy did. Between the walls! I shouted. Go! 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 That's crazy! Karen shouted. I know! She guided the Harley around a pile of rubble and raced into the heavy shadows between two of the walls, and the rider was right on us as she did. Closer! I screamed. Force him to the wall! Why? A quarter of a mile goes by fast on a roaring Harley, and the only thing in front of us was the cold water of Lake Michigan. Hurry! I shrieked. Ah! Karen howled, and abruptly the Harley slowed and cut right. In an instant, we were even with the rider, and though no expression could show through the darkness surrounding his face, his body language was one of shock. Now for the dangerous part, I thought, which made me start giggling. Now it was getting dangerous. Before the rider could change speed or take on altitude, and while the Harley was still leaning toward the rider, I hauled my left foot up onto the seat and sprang at him, still holding the now-emptied Winchester in one hand. I slammed into the rider, but whoever he was, he was strong. I had the power of the winter night at my disposal, but compared to the rider, my strength was that of a child. He threw a stiff arm into my chest and nearly sent me tumbling, but I grabbed onto his sleeve, and as he fell, I simply hung on. That changed things. It wasn't an issue of strength against strength. This made it a contest of mass and leverage versus muscle, and muscle lost. I dragged the rider from his saddle, and we both hit the rough ground at speed. My hand was torn from his arm on impact, and I remember trying to shield my head with my arms. The Winchester flew clear of me, too. 
I could see the rider tumbling as well, silver fire blowing up from the shadowy mask around him. I stopped tumbling yards later and frantically staggered back to my feet. I spotted the Winchester lying a few yards away and leapt for it. I grabbed the weapon, but before I could load it, I heard a footstep behind me and I spun, raising the gun up over my head parallel to the ground. It was in the nick of time. I felt the staggering power of an enormous blow, and a sword rang out against the steel of the Winchester's octagonal barrel. Kringle recovered from the block swiftly. Scraps of shadow mask hung from him, but he still wore the armor and a blood-red cloak and hood trimmed in white fur. His sword was silvery and unadorned, and he whipped it through a swift series of strikes. I blocked frantically with the Winchester, but I knew enough about fighting to know that I was utterly outclassed. He'd have that sword in me in a matter of seconds. So I ducked, sprang back from a backhanded slash, and raised the rifle to my shoulder as if I were about to shoot. That stopped him, forcing Kringle to twist to one side to avoid the theoretical bullet. And when he did, I slammed every bit of will I had into a lance of magical force. Farzari! Kringle slipped aside, incredibly nimble for a man his size, and the strike missed him completely. It did not miss the base of the ruined wall behind him. What must have been a couple of tons of aged concrete collapsed with a roar. Kringle was fast and skilled, but he wasn't perfect. He kept himself from being crushed, but several large stones clipped him and sent him staggering. I let out a primal scream and rushed him. I hit him at the shoulders, and he was too off-balance to bring the sword into play. We both crashed to the ground, but I wound up on top, kneeling over him, gripping the steel barrel of the Winchester in both hands, holding it like a club. Kringle froze, staring up at me, and I suddenly realized that the night had gone utterly silent. I glanced around. The wild hunt had surrounded us, horses coming to a stop, their riders watching intently. Hounds paced nervously around at the horse's feet, but came no closer. The Earl King was there, too, his shadow mask tattered, greenish blood smearing the visible armor on his shoulder. His right arm hung limply. I turned back to Kringle. Join, hide, or die, I growled. Those are your options when the wild hunt comes for you. Kringle narrowed his eyes. Everyone knows that's true. Not anymore it isn't, I growled. I got to my feet, slowly, and just as slowly I lowered the rifle. Then I extended a hand to Kringle. Tonight, the hunt is joining me. I swept my gaze around the silent assembly, filling it with all the steel and resolve I had. I just put the Earl King on the bench and laid a beat down on freaking Santa Claus, I told them. So you tell me, who's next? Who comes to make an end of the winter night, a peer of the winter court, and Mab's chosen? Who is at the top of this food chain? Because tonight is Halloween, and I am damn well not afraid of any of you. Firelight eyes stared at me from all around, and nothing stirred. Then Kringle's chuckle came rumbling out of his throat, a pulsating sound of deep and hearty mirth. 
One of his huge hands closed on mine, and I hauled him back to his feet. I glanced over at the Earl King as I did. I could see nothing of his face, but he nodded his head toward me very slightly. There was something ironic about the way he did it, and I sensed a kind of quiet amusement. There was a low rumble as the Harley came purring slowly over the ground toward us. Karen stared at the scene, her eyes wide, and drew the bike to a stop next to me. Harry, she asked, what just happened? A change of leadership, I said, and swung one leg over the Harley to hop up behind her. Even as I did, shadows began to whirl and slither. They crawled up Kringle's legs, restoring the concealing mask. And as they did, they also started climbing the Harley and both of the people sitting on it. It was a bizarre sensation. Everything about my physical perception sharpened, and I could suddenly sense the world around me with perfect clarity. I could feel the other members of the hunt, knew exactly where they were and what they were doing on sheer instinct, an instinct that guided them as well. The night brightened into a silvery fairyland that remained night while being as bright as the noonday sun. The shadow masks became something translucent so that if I peered closely enough, I could see what was behind it. I didn't do much peering. I had a feeling that I didn't want to know what was behind all of those shadows. Karen twisted the throttle on the Harley nervously, gunning the engine, but instead of a roar, it came out as a primal screech. The cry was instantly taken up by every single member of the hunt, even as Kringle, his shadow mask restored, remounted his steed and whirled it to face me. Sir Knight, Kringle said, inclining his head slightly to me, what game amuses you this fine, stormy evening? I started loading shells from the ammo belt into the Winchester until the rifle was full again. Then I levered a shell into the pipe, slipped a replacement into the tube, shut the breech with a snap, and felt a wolfish smile spreading my mouth. Tonight, I asked. I raised my voice to address them all. Tonight, we hunt outsiders. The bloodthirsty screech that went up from the wild hunt was deafening. Chapter 42 Pipe down, I shouted. We're going quiet until we get there. The hunt settled down, though not instantly. Karen revved the Harley's engine, and it was completely, entirely silent. I could feel the vibration of the increased revolutions, but they did not translate into sound. The shadows around the Harley shifted and wavered, and after a second I realized that they had taken on a shape that of an enormous black cat, muscled and solid, like a jaguar. That was astounding to me. Magic was not some kind of partially sentient force that did things of its own volition. It wasn't any more artistic than electricity. Okay, I said to Karen. Let's move. Um, she asked without turning her head. Move where? The island, I said. Harry, this is a motorcycle. It'll work, I said. Look at it. Karen jerked as she noted the appearance of the Harley. You want me to drive into the lake? 
You have to admit, I said, it isn't the craziest thing I've ever asked you to do. It isn't even the craziest thing I've asked you to do tonight. Karen thought about that one for a second and said, You're right. Let's go. She dropped the Harley into gear, threw out a rooster tail of dirt and gravel, and we rushed toward the shore of the lake. The steel mills had been engaged in actual shipping traffic in their day, and the level field of construction marched right up to the water's edge and dropped off abruptly, the water four or five feet straight down. Karen gunned the engine, covering the last two hundred yards in a flat-out sprint, and the torque on that Harley's engine was something epic, its bellow too loud to be wholly contained by the shadow mask, emerging from the shadow tiger's mouth as a deep-throated roar. Karen let out a scream that was two parts excitement to one part terror, and we flew twenty feet before the tires crashed down onto the surface of the lake and held. The bike jounced a couple of times, but I held on to Karen and kept from flying off. It was an interesting question, though. If I had, would the water have supported me like an endless field of asphalt, or would it have behaved as it normally would? The entire hunt swept along behind us, silent but for the low thunder of hooves and the panting of the hounds, when suddenly the silver starlight turned bright azure blue. Whoa, Karen said. Did you do that? I don't think so, I said. I looked over my shoulder and found Kringle and the Earl King riding along behind me. I jerked my head at them in a beckoning gesture and they obligingly came up on either side of the Harley Tiger. What is that? I asked, pointing at the sky. A temporal pressure wave, the Earl King said, his flaming eyes narrowed. A what? I asked. The Earl King looked at Kringle. This is your area of expertise. Explain it. Someone is bending time against us, Kringle said. I stared at him for a second, and then it clicked. We're being rushed forward so that we'll get there too late, I said. We're looking at a Doppler shift. Is what he said correct? The Earl King asked Kringle curiously. Essentially, I. We've already lost half an hour by my count. Who could have done this? I asked. You have encountered this before, wizard, Kringle said. Can you not guess? One of the queens, I muttered. Or someone operating on their level. Can we get out of this wave? The Earl King and Kringle traded a look. You are the leader of the hunt, Kringle said. What you write with your power will grace each of us. Would you like to do it? Was he kidding me? I had almost as much of an idea of how to screw around with the fabric of time as I did which of my clothes could be safely washed in hot water. I probably need to save myself for what's coming, I said. Kringle nodded. If it is your will, he said diffidently, we can set our hands against it. Do it, I said. They both nodded their heads at me in small bows, and then their steeds raced out in front of the pack. Sparks began to fly from their horses' hooves, first blue, then abruptly darkening to scarlet. The air seemed to shimmer, and strange, twisted sounds writhed all around us. Then there was a reverberating crash that sounded like something between thunder and the discharge of a blaster. The air split in front of the two of them like a curtain, 
and as the hunt hurtled through it, the stars washed out to their normal silver hue again. Well done, I guess, I shouted, and then I noticed that Kringle was no longer there, though the Earl King still raced along. Over the next few moments, he slowed enough to pace Karen and me. Hey, where'd bowl full of jelly go? Kringle was our stepping stone out of the rapids of the stream, he called back. To lift us out, he had to remain behind. He will rejoin us farther down the shore. Harry, Karen said. How much farther down the shore? The Earl King shrugged with his uninjured arm. Time may hold no terror for us immortals, Sir Knight, but it is a massive force, all but beyond even our control. It will take as long as it takes. Harry, Karen snapped. I turned my eyes front and felt them widen. We had arrived at Demon Reach, and the island was under attack. The first thing I saw was the curtain wall around the island's shoreline. It was nothing but a flicker of opalescent light, like a dense aurora borealis, stretching from the water's edge up into the October sky. It cast an eerie glow over the trees of the island, steeping them in menacing black shadow, and its reflection in the waters of the lake was three or four times bigger and more colorful than it should have been. As the hunt rushed closer, I could make out other details, too. There was a small fleet of boats surrounding the island. It looked like something out of World War II's Pacific Theater. Some of the boats were modest recreational models, several at least the size of the water beetle, and three looked like tugboat barge units, the kind that could ferry twenty loaded train cars around the lake. I could see motion in the waters around the shore. Things were swarming up out of the lake, hideous and fascinating, hundreds of them. They smashed into Demon Reach's curtain wall. Light pulsed in liquid concentric circles where they touched it, and shrieks of alien agony stretched the air toward a breaking point. The waters within twenty feet of the shore bubbled and thrashed in a demonic frenzy. I felt a pulse of power stir in the air, and a bolt of sickly green energy lashed across the waters and slammed into the curtain wall. The entire wall dimmed for a second, but then resurged as the island resisted the attack. I tracked the bolt back to the barge and saw a figure in a weird, writhing cloak standing on the deck facing the island. Shark face. As I watched, I saw a Zodiac boat carrying a team of eight men in dark clothing rush in toward the shore. The man in the nose of the boat lifted something to his shoulder. There was a loud thump, and a fire blossomed in the brush, burning with an eye-searing chemical brilliance. Then the Zodiac whirled and rushed back out again, as if to escape a counter-strike, or maybe they just didn't want to stay anywhere close to waters full of piranha-like frenzied outsiders while sitting in a rubber boat. Half a dozen other boats were doing the same thing, and several other similar craft were sitting still, full of armed men waiting silently for the chance to land on shore. I stared in shock. The recent rain meant that the island wasn't likely to burst into flame any time soon, but I had utterly underestimated the scope of tonight's conflict. Ye gods and little fishes, this wasn't just a ritual spell. This was an all-out amphibious assault 
My very own miniature war. Earl King, I said. Can you veil the hunt, please? The Earl King glanced at me, then back at the hunt, and suddenly the cold, weirdly flat-sounding dimness of a veil against both sight and sound gathered around us like a cloud. This doesn't make any sense, I said. The ritual would still need a platform, and that would take time and work to set up, at least a day. It would show. They haven't even gotten onto the island yet. Then the truth hit me in a flash. The barges, I said. They set up a ritual platform on one of the barges. It's the only thing that makes sense. The waters of the lake would diminish the power they could draw from the ley lines running beneath it, the Earl King said. Yeah, I said. That's why they're assaulting the shore. They're going to force a breach and then run the barge aground on the island. That'll put them in direct contact with the ley line. There are many outsiders here, Sir Knight, he noted. More than enough to do battle with the hunt if we become bogged down in their numbers. They will react to us as one beast once they know the danger we pose to them. Have a care for where we enter the fray. We'd better make the first punch count, I said. Three barges. Which one has the platform? Why assume there's only one, Karen asked. If it was me, I'd set the spell upon all three of them for redundancy. They might have set the spell up on all three of them for redundancy, I said. She drove one of her elbows back against my stomach lightly. We start this by sinking a barge, I decided. Then I blinked and looked at the Earl King. Can we sink a barge? The shadow-masked Earl King tilted his head slightly to one side, his burning eyes narrowed. Wizard, please. Right, I said. Sorry. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a shark face by the toe. I pointed at the barge in the middle, where I'd seen the outsider a moment ago. That one. And once it's down, we'll split into two groups. You'll lead half the hunt for the barge on the far side, and I'll take my half to the nearer one. If we can nix any possibility of the ritual happening, maybe they'll call it a night and go home. That seems unlikely, said the Earl King. He slowly flexed the arm I'd shot him in, and I could sense that, while it was not comfortable, the Lord of the Goblins was already functionally recovered from the injury. Never know until you try, I said. I looked back at the hunt and pointed toward the center barge. I repeated my instructions to them, and soot-black hands drew dozens of shadowy weapons. I leaned into Karen a little and said next to her ear, You ready for this? Only a lunatic is ready for this, she said. I could hear her smile as she spoke. Then she turned her head and, before I could react, planted a kiss right on my mouth. I almost fell off the Harley. She drew her head back, flashed me a wicked little smile, and said, For luck, Star Wars style. You are so hot right now, I told her. I lifted my Winchester overhead, then dropped it to point forward, and the hunt surged ahead at its full, insane speed, silent and unseen and inevitable. Go right past its rear end, I told Murphy. You mean its stern? Yes, that, I said, rolling my eyes, and then I began to gather in my will. It was hard, a slow and heavy strain, 
like trying to breathe through layers of heavy cloth. It was like holding a fistful of sand. Every bit of energy I drew in wanted to slip away from me, and the harder I tried to hold it, the more trickled through my fingers. So I gritted my teeth, accepted that I wasn't going to have a lot of energy to work with, and tried to hold it loosely, gently, as we closed in on the barge. We were the first to pass it, and as we did, I flung out my hand, crying out, Forzari! Raw will leapt through the air, shattering our concealing veil. The energy was focused into the shape of a cone, needle-pointed at the top, and widening gradually to about six inches across, an invisible lance. I couldn't have done any more with the limited energy I had at my disposal. It hit the hull of the barge with a clang and a shriek of tearing metal, and then we were past it, and Karen was tugging the Harley into a tight, leaning turn. I checked over my shoulder and saw the Earl King, his sword in hand, lean over the saddle and strike. There was a hissing sound and a howl of screeching steel, and, starting at the hole I'd punched in the barge's hull, a straight line of red-hot metal appeared where his sword had simply sheared through it. Behind him the next riders struck, their weapons carving steel like soft pine slashing at the weakened section and tearing the original hole I'd made wider and wider. I heard a howl of rage and looked up on the deck of the barge to see Shark Face there, already gathering energy to hurl at the riders of the hunt. He didn't take the hounds into consideration. Before he could unleash his power, a dozen of the beasts hit him all together in a single psychotic canine wave. Since they were running fast enough to get themselves a speeding ticket in most of Illinois, the impact was formidable. Hounds and outsider alike flew out over the rails of the barge and vanished into the waters of Lake Michigan, and somehow I knew the fight continued beneath its waves. The Earl King let out a shriek of encouragement, one that was echoed by the other riders as the tail end of the column passed the barge. As the last rider struck, a column of eerie green fire rose up from the glowing edges of the shredded steel hull, and with a groan of strained seams, the barge started to list badly to the right, starboard, I guess, as water rushed in through the hole the hunt had made. Karen had already wheeled the Harley into a snarling turn, one that let us see the deck of the ship as it began to sink. Smart. She'd been thinking farther ahead than me. I could clearly see the dozens of lines and figures that had been painted onto the barge's deck, along with burning candles, incense, and the small, still remains of animal sacrifices, mostly rabbits, cats, and dogs, it looked like. Rituals, whatever form they take, always involve the use of a circle, explicit or otherwise. The circle had to be there to contain the energy that they'd been building up with all the sacrifices, if nothing else. This one had been established invisibly, maybe originally set up with incense or something, but as the water lapped over the edge of the circle, it immediately began to disperse the pent-up energy, visible as clouds of fluttering sparks like static that danced along the surface of the water. And for just a second, everything in the night went silent. Then there was a disturbance in the water, with more ugly green light pouring up from below the surface. 
Water suddenly rushed up, displaced by something moving beneath the surface, and then Shark Face exploded up from the depths. His freaky rag cloak spread out around him in an enormous cloud of tentacle-like extrusions. He turned his eyeless face toward me, me exactly, not Karen, and not the Earl King, and let out a howl of fury so loud the water for fifty feet in every direction vibrated and danced in time with it and a wave of pure, violent, blinding, nauseating pain blanketed the face of Lake Michigan. Chapter 43 Suddenly, I wasn't on the bitch seat of Karen's Harley. I was hanging, suspended in midair, and I was in agony. I opened my eyes and looked wildly around me. Barren, icy earth, cold, gray sky. My arms and legs were stretched out into an X shape, and ice, the color of a deep blue sky, encased them, holding them stretched out against what felt like an old, knotted tree. Muscles and ligaments from my everywhere were at the trembling breaking point. My own heartbeat was torment. My face burned, exposed to cold so severe that it hurt even me. I tried to scream, but couldn't. A slow, gargling moan came out instead, and I coughed blood into the freezing air. You knew this was coming, said a voice, a voice that still made my entire body thrum in response, something simple and elemental that did not care how long she had held me in torment. You knew this day would come, I am what I am, as are you. Mab walked into my vision from the left. I barely had enough strength to keep my eyes focused on her. You saw what happened to my last night, she said, and began to take slow steps closer to me. I didn't want to give her the satisfaction, but I couldn't help it. I heard myself make a soft noise felt myself make a feeble effort to move or escape. It made her wide eyes glint for an instant. I gave you power for a purpose, and that purpose is complete. She turned her hand over slowly and showed me something she held in it. A small metal spike, too large to be a needle, too small to be a nail. She walked closer to me, rolling the fine-pointed etcher between two fingers and smiled. Her fingertips traced over my chest and ribs, and I shuddered. She'd carved the word weak upon my body in dozens of alphabets and hundreds of languages, etching it into my flesh, the palms of my hands, the soles of my feet, with miles upon miles of scars. I wanted it to be over. I wanted her to kill me. She leaned close to my face. Today, she breathed, we start carving your teeth. Cold enveloped me, and water slithered into my mouth, though I tried to keep it out. Some seeped through my cracked lips. More went up my nostrils and took the long way around, and then it froze into ice, slowly forcing my jaws apart. Mab leaned in close to me, lifting the etcher, 
and I caught the faint scent of oxidation as the instrument began scratching at my incisors. Oxidation, the smell of rust. Rust meant steel, something no fairy I had ever seen, apart from Mother Winter, could touch. This wasn't actually happening to me. It wasn't real. The pain wasn't real. The tree wasn't real. The ice wasn't real. But I still felt them. I could feel something behind them, a will that was not my own, forcing the idea of pain upon me, the image of helplessness, the leaden fear, the bitter vitriol of despair. This was a psychic assault like nothing I'd ever seen before. The ones I'd felt before this one were feeble shadows by comparison. No, I thought. No, I moaned. And then I drew a deep breath. This was not how my life would end. This was not reality. I was Harry Dresden, wizard of the White Council, knight of winter. I had faced demons and monsters, fought off fallen angels and werewolves, slugged it out with sorcerers and cults and freakish things that had no names. I had fought upon land and sea, in the skies above my city, in ancient ruins and in realms of the spirit most of humanity did not know existed. I bore scars that I'd earned in dozens of battles, made enemies out of nightmares, and laid low a dark empire for the sake of one little girl. And I would be damned if I was going to roll over for some punk outsider and his psychic haymaker. The words first. Damn near everything begins with words. I am, I breathed, and suddenly the ice was clear of my mouth. I am Harry, I panted, and the pain redoubled. And I laughed, as if some freak who had never loved enough to know loss could tell me about pain. I am Harry Blackstone Copperfield Dresden, I roared. Ice and wood shattered. Frozen stone cracked with a sound like a cannon's blast, a spiderweb of tiny crevices spreading out from me. The image of Mab flew away from me and blew into thousands of crystalline shards like a shattering stained-glass window. The cold and the pain and the terror reeled away from me, like some vast and hungry beast suddenly struck on the nose. The outsiders loved their psychic assaults. And given that this one happened about two seconds after Sharkface came up out of the water, it was pretty clear who was behind this one. But that was fine. Sharkface had chosen a battle of the mind. So be it. My head, my rules. I lifted my right arm to the frozen sky and shouted, wordless and furious, and a bolt of scarlet lightning flashed from the seething skies. It smashed into my hand and then down into the earth. Frozen dirt sprayed everywhere, and when it had cleared, I stood holding an oaken quarterstaff, carved with runes and sigils, as tall as my temple and as big around as my joined thumb and forefinger. Then I stretched my left arm down to the earth and cried out again, sweeping it up in a single beckoning gesture. I tore metals from the ground beneath me, and they swirled like mist up around my body, forming into a suit of armor covered in spikes and protruding blades. Okay, big guy, 
I snarled out at the dark will that even now gathered itself to attack again. Now we know who I am. Let's see who you are. I took the staff and smote its end down on the ground. Who are you? I demanded. You play in my head? You play by my rules? Identify yourself! In answer, there was only a vast roaring sound, like an angry arctic wind gathering into a gale. Oh, no, you don't, I muttered. You started this, creep. You want to get up close and personal? Let's play. Who are you? A vast sound, like something you'd hear in the deep ocean, moaned through the sky. Thrice I command thee! I shouted, focusing my will, sending it coursing into my voice, which boomed out over the landscape. Thrice I bid thee! By my name I command thee! Tell me who you are! And then a vast, swirling form emerged from the clouds overhead. A face, but only in the broadest, roughest terms, like something a child would make from clay. Lightning burned far back in its eyes, and it spoke in the voice of gale winds. I am Gatebreaker Harbinger. I am Fear-Giver Hope-Slayer. I am he who walks before. For a second, I just stood there, staring up at the sky, shocked. Hell's bells. It worked. The thing spoke, and as it did, I knew, I knew what it was. As if I'd been given a snapshot of its core identity, its quintessential self. For one second, no more than that, I understood it. What it was doing, what it wanted, what it planned, and... And then that moment was past. The knowledge vanished the way it had come, except for one thing. Somehow, I'd held on to a few crumbling fragments of insight. I knew the thing trying to tear my head apart was a walker. I didn't know much about them, except that nobody else knew much about them either, and that they were extremely bad news. And one of them had tried to kill me when I was sixteen years old. He who walks behind had nearly done it. Except, from where I stood now, I wasn't sure he'd really been trying to kill me. He'd been shaping me. I don't know for what, but he'd been trying to provoke me. And this thing in my head, the thing I'd named Sharkface, was like him. A walker, a peer. It was huge, powerful, and in a way utterly different from the kinds of power I'd seen before. This thing wasn't bigger than Mab, but it was horribly, unbearably deeper than her, like a photograph of a sculpture compared to the sculpture itself. It had power at its command that was beyond anything I had seen, beyond measure, beyond comprehension, just plain beyond. This thing was power from the outside, and I was a grain of sand to its oncoming tide. But you know what? That grain of sand might be the last remnant of what had once been a mountain, but that which it is, it is. The tide comes and the tide goes. Let it hammer the grain of sand as it may. Let lofty mountains fear the slow, constant assault of the waters. Let the valleys shudder at the pitiless advance of ice. 
let continents drown beneath the dark and rising tide. But that grain of sand? It isn't impressed. Let the tide roll in. The sand will still be there after it rolls out again. So I looked up at that face, and I laughed. I laughed scorn and defiance at that vast, swirling power, and it didn't just feel good. It felt right. Go ahead, I shouted. Go ahead and eat me, and then we'll see if you've got the stomach to keep me down. I lifted my staff, and golden white fire began to pour from the carved runes as I gathered power into it. The air grew chill with winter, and frost formed on the razor-edged blades in my armor. I ground my feet into place, setting them firm, and the glow of soul fire began to emanate from the cracks in the earth around me. I bared my teeth at the hungry sky, flew the bird at it with my free hand, and screamed, Bring it on! A furious voice filled the air, a sound that shook the earth and sky alike, that made the ground buckle and the swirling clouds recoil. And then I was back on the Harley, clutching Karen's waist in one hand and clinging to the Winchester with the other. The motorcycle was still in motion, but it wasn't accelerating. It felt like we were coasting. Karen let out a low, gurgling cry and suddenly sagged forward, panting. I pulled her back against me, helping her to sit up, and after a few seconds she gave her head a few quick shakes and snarled, I hate getting into a Vulcan mine meld. It hit you, too, I asked. It, she cast a look over her shoulder up at me and shuddered. Yeah. You okay now? I'm starting to get angry, she said. A hideously mirthful sound spread over the air. The sound of the Earl King's laughter. His great steed swerved in close to the motorcycle, and he lifted his sword in a gesture of fierce defiance. Then his burning eyes turned to me, and he spoke in a voice that was murderously merry. Well done, Starborn! Uh, I said, thank you? The Lord of the Goblins laughed again. It was the kind of sound that would stick with you and wake you up in the middle of the night, wondering whether perhaps poisonous snakes had surrounded your bed and were about to start slithering in. I looked back. The hunt had spread out into a ragged semblance of its former cohesion, but even as I watched, the riders and hounds poured on extra effort to gather together again. I looked around, but saw no sign of Sharkface. I did see something else. V-shaped ripples coming toward us through the water. A whole lot of them. Here they come! I shouted to the Earl King. Good hunting! That much seems certain, he called in that same cheerfully vicious voice and wheeled his horse to the right. Half of the riders and hounds split off with him, while the other half continued streaming after me. I pointed at our target as the Earl King headed toward his. There, I called. Let's do it! The Harley Tiger let out another snarling roar, and Karen raced toward the second barge. Hellish shrieks went up from both groups of the hunt, and the oncoming things in the water smoothly split into two elements as they came forward. We raced the enemy toward the barges.
This time, we didn't have surprise on our side. It couldn't have been more than a minute or two since the hunt had announced its arrival, but I saw figures stirring on the deck of the barge ahead of us. Gun! shouted Karen. Incoming! Crap! Out over the water like this, I didn't have access to anywhere near enough magic to provide a continuous shield. And I couldn't try to slap down individual bullets either. By the time I saw the gunfire, the round would already be going through us. Which meant that this was going to happen the vanilla way. The way soldiers worldwide have done it for a few centuries now. Advance, 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 and hope that you didn't get shot. Then Karen snatched the rifle out of my hand and screamed, Take the bike! I fumbled for a moment, but found the handlebars reaching around her to make it happen. I gunned the throttle as Karen raised the Winchester to her shoulder, half rose, and squinted through the buckhorn sights. Flashes came from the boat, and something that sounded like an angry hornet flicked past my ear. I saw bits of spray coming up from the water ahead of us as the shooters misjudged their range, and I kept on racing straight ahead. When we got to within a hundred yards, Karen started shooting. The old rifle boomed, and sparks flew up from the barge's hull. She worked the lever action without lowering it from her shoulder and fired again. One of the dark shapes on the deck vanished, and two more flinched away. More gunfire came from the boat, panic fire, splashing wildly everywhere and mostly nowhere close to us. Whoever was over there, they didn't like getting shot at any more than I did. As we closed the last yards, Karen fired three more times in a rapid, assured pace. I couldn't see whether she hit anyone until we went roaring past the barge, no more than ten feet away, when a man holding a distinctive shape of a shotgun rose into sight. Karen was covering the barge's stern with the Winchester when he popped up. The old gun roared again, and the gunman fell away and out of sight. We raced by unharmed, but the enemy gunfire had done its work. The riders and hounds of the hunt had been distracted by the flying bullets, and they didn't do nearly as much damage to the barge as in the initial attack. Even as I watched, more and more figures with guns appeared on the barge and started shooting. I checked the oncoming rush of outsiders. We weren't going to sink the barge before they got here. To sink it? Karen was shouting. What? We don't have to sink the barge? She shouted. It can't move on its own. We just have to kill the boat that's pulling it. Right, I said, and leaned the Harley into a turn that would take us arching back toward the barge. This time at its front, or prow, or bow, or something, where a rig containing a tugboat a bit bigger than the water beetle had been built on. It also brought us closer to the oncoming outsiders, and I couldn't tell which of us would get there first. As I sped up, Karen dug into the compartments on the Harley, reaching around me, then said, Hold it steady! Then she stood up, and I couldn't see a damn thing. But I did see the way she pulled the pin out of a freaking hand grenade and let the spoon spin off into the night. The Harley buzzed past the tugboat's rig, maybe ten feet ahead of the outsiders, and Karen gave the grenade a rather feeble little flick as we went by. I heard it smash into glass like a stone thrown against a window, and then we were past the barge, and a huge sound thudded through the air, 
like an entire library of books all dropped flat at the same instant, and an incandescent white light flared from the tug. I looked back over my shoulder and saw that the tugboat was on fire, pouring out thick black smoke and leaning sharply to one side. Murphy saw it too, and let out an ululating war cry before she sat back down and pushed my hands off the handlebars, reassuming control of the Harley. Two down, she said. One to go. I looked back behind me. The outsiders had begun swarming at the barge, and one of them actually came out of the water at one of the rearmost riders of the hunt. This horrible thing that was all pustules and multiple limbs with too many joints. As it leapt, the rider raised a shadowy bow and loosed a darkling arrow. It struck the outsider and burst into red-amber flame, the same color as the burning eyes of the hunt. The outsider let out an unearthly wail and plunged back beneath the surface. Come on, I said to Karen. Head for the other boat. Should we? she asked. That Earl King guy seems a little do-it-yourself-y. She was right about that. Like any of the other seriously powerful beings of fairy, the Earl King had a strong sense of pride. And you crossed that pride at your own risk. If I showed up and the Earl King thought I was making the statement that I judged him unfit to finish the task, it could come back to haunt me. On the other hand, I'd already insulted him once, and there was a lot on the line. If he didn't want me making calls like this, he shouldn't have let me shoot him and take over his hunt, I said. I turned to beckon the riders and hounds behind me and shouted, Come on! My voice came out as both my own and in the howling screech of the hunt the two interwoven, and the rest of my group joined in the shriek and formed up around the Harley as it raced across the water toward the third barge, where the fight wasn't going well. There were several long, straight streaks of molten steel where the Earl King and his riders had struck the barge's hull, the edges marked with flickering tongues of eerie green fire, but they had not torn a hole in it like we had the first barge either, and the outsiders had gotten to this barge faster than they had to mine. Even as we approached, I saw a racing hound of the hunt vanish in a spray of water as things, plural, too twisted and too confusing to count, surged up from below and began to drag the hound down. A shriek loud enough to cause spray to rise from the water shook the air, and the Earl King himself plunged down from overhead, leading a trio of hunters behind him. Blades and arrows struck down at the outsiders in plumes of ember fire. The Earl King seized the hound by the scruff of its neck and dragged it up out of the grasp of the creatures beneath the surface. The Earl King and his riders had fallen into a formation, a great tilted wheel. At the far end, the riders were maybe fifty feet above the waves, circling in the air to then charge down at the surface of the water where it met the hull of the barge. The outsiders would throw themselves up out of the waves, meeting each individual rider. Hounds would, in turn, try to throw themselves on the outsiders, smothering their defense so that the rider could strike the barge. Meanwhile, figures aboard the barge fired rifles wildly into the night, though the deck of the thing was actually bobbing with the thrashing of the outsiders in the water around it. Whoever they were, they struck me as amateurish though maybe it was only because I'd been exposed to real soldiers before, who were a deadly threat even on the scale of supernatural conflict. 
These guys weren't the Einherr Jaren, but at the end of the day, they still had deadly weapons, and more than one rider and hound had been struck by rounds and bled molten light from their shadow-masked bodies. The piercing screech of the hunt met with the howls of the outsiders and the crack of rifle fire, and bit by bit, the barge's hull bled red-hot steel. But it wasn't happening fast enough. With a groan, the barge's tugboat, this one mounted behind it, began shoving the thing forward through the water and toward the shore of Demon Reach. I shouldn't have split us up, I said. We didn't cover twice as many targets. We just got twice as half-assed. Karen made a sputtering sound, then said, You and Math are not friends. Regret later. Lead now. Right, I said. The barge wasn't exactly leaping into motion, but it wouldn't stop on a dime once it got moving, either. Do you have any more grenades? I asked Karen. I used them a couple of weeks ago, she said. With Kincaid? I asked. There was an edge to it. She and the assassin were kind of an item the last time I looked. Harry, she said, focus. Hell's bells, she was right. I didn't need the winter mantle turning me into a territorial alpha dick right now. I stared at the barge for a long second, pushing that instinct away, and then said to the hunt, Join the Earl King! Attack the barge! Hounds and riders streamed past us, joining the madman's wheel of death in the sky, and I lowered my voice, speaking only to Karen, as I reloaded the Winchester. Get me to the tugboat. She gave me a quick, wide-eyed glance, and then seemed to get it. She gunned the motor, sending the Harley shooting past the Earl King's very large, very threatening, and very distracting formation as we raced alone toward the chugging tugboat. She brought us right alongside it, and once again I leapt from the back of the Harley. I hit the side of the tug pretty hard, but managed to get the fingers of my left hand around the top of the rail, and with a few kicks managed to swing myself up onto the deck. I landed in a crouch, clutching the rifle, got my bearings, and headed toward a stairwell that would lead me to the boat's bridge. I went up it as quietly as I could, which is pretty damn quiet for a guy my size, Winchester at the ready. The bridge of the tug was big enough to merit its own enclosed space, and I slipped up to the door, took a breath, then ripped it open, lifting the Winchester as I did. The bridge was empty, the wheel secured with a pair of large plastic ties. There was a piece of paper taped to the wheel, and on it was written in large black marker, Look Behind You. I started to turn, but a cannonball hit me between the shoulder blades. I flew forward onto the bridge and slammed my head against the plexiglass forward windows. I fell back from that, stunned, and a heavy weight hit me from the side, slamming me into a bulkhead, which felt almost exactly like being slammed into a steel wall. I wound up prone, my face to the deck, and once more the heavy weight slammed into me, landing on my back. And Cat Sith, who had told me not to turn my back on anyone, purred, Wizard, knight, fool, too ignorant even to know how to die properly. His skin-crawling voice came out in a throaty buzz next to my ear. Allow me to educate you.
Chapter 44 The reasonable thing to do would have been to whimper or flinch or just freak out and look for the nearest exit. But instead of doing any of those things, I felt a chill settle over my brain, and a very cold, calm part of me studied the situation objectively. Join, hide, or die, I said. I heard the faint echo of the wild hunt's screech in my voice. Excuse me, Cat Sith said. You have excellent hearing, I said, but I will repeat myself. Join, hide, or die. You know the laws of the hunt. I do know them, wizard. And once I have slain you, the hunt will be mine to do with as I please. The real Cat Sith wouldn't be having this conversation with me, you know. He'd have killed me by now. A blow struck the back of my head, sharp, painful, but not debilitating. I am Cat Sith, the one, the only. I turned my head slightly and said, So why do I still have a spine? And I threw an elbow at the weight on my back. I connected with something, hard, and slammed it off me. It hit the other wall of the bridge, and I flung myself to my feet in time to see the large, lean form of Cat Sith thrash his tail and bound at me. I ducked him, moving forward under his leap and spun, and it left the two of us facing each other across the full length of the bridge. Slow, I said. I've seen him move. Cat Sith is faster than that. A hideous, snarling sound came from the form of the Malk. I am he. Give me a Coke, I snarled. What? You heard me, Mittens. Get me a freaking Coke and do it now. Sith remained in place, as if locked to the floor, though his whole body was quivering, his claws sheathing and unsheathing in rhythm. But he didn't fly at me, ripping and tearing, either. You see, I said, Cat Sith is a creature of fairy, and he swore an oath to Queen Mab to obey her commands. She commanded him to obey mine. And I just gave you a command, Kitty. Did Mab release you from her command? Did she suspend the duties of her vassal? Sith snarled again, his eyes getting wider and rounder, his tail thrashing around wildly. They got to you, didn't they? I said. They jumped you back at the Botanic Gardens while you were covering my exit. Freaking Sharkface was watching the whole thing, and he got you. Sith began quivering so hard that he was jitterbugging back and forth in place on the floor his head twitching, his fur standing on end, and then abruptly lying flat again. Fight it, Sith, I urged him quietly. It doesn't have to win. Fight it. For a second I thought I saw something of Cat Sith's smug, contemptuous self-assurance on the Malk's face. And then it was gone. Just gone. Everything went away, and the Malk stood for a second with its head down. Then it lifted its head, and the motion was subtly wrong, something that simply didn't have the grace I'd seen in the Elder Malk before. It faced me for a moment, and then it spoke, its voice absent of anything like personality. Ah, pity. 
I would have been more useful to them as an active, covert asset. I shuddered at the utter absence in that voice. I wasn't talking to Sith anymore. I was speaking with the adversary. Like Mab wouldn't have figured it out, I said, like she did when you infected Leah. Further conversation is not useful to our design, not Sith said, and then the Malk's form flew at me in a blur. It was a testament to the power of the Winter Knight's mantle and the Wild Hunt's energy that I survived that first leap at all. Sith struck straight at my throat. I got my arms in the way. The black shadow mask of the hunt over my arms and chest blew apart into splinters, dispersing some of the impact energy of the Malk's spectacular leap, and instead of pulping me against the wall behind me, I just got slammed into it with tooth-rattling force. Sith bounced off me, which was what I had hoped would happen. In my line of work, I've dealt with more than one critter that is faster than fast. When I've got their feet underneath them, it's the next best thing to impossible to land anything on them. But when they're in the air, they're moving at the speed gravity and air resistance dictate, like everybody else. For that one portion of a second, Sith was an object moving through space, not a blindingly fast killing machine. Someone who didn't know that wouldn't have known to be ready for it. But I did. And I was. The blast of raw force I summoned wasn't my very best punch. But it was the best I was going to get out here over the lake. It slammed into the creature that had been Cat Sith and plowed it out through the plexiglass window. The plastic didn't break. It came entirely out of its housing, and the malk and the slab of plexiglass the size of a door went whirling out into the madness of the night. Sith flew out over the bow of the tugboat and plunged down into the water through the open spaces of the pipe steel rig between it and the barge. I stared hard after the departed malk for a few seconds, to be sure he wasn't going to bounce right back into my face somehow. As I did, I watched in the other half of the bridge's forward window while the shadow mask of the hunt slithered back up over my arms and face. I gave it to a three-count, nodded, and then went to the tug's wheel. I snapped the plastic ties, securing it with a pair of fast jerks, then started rolling the wheel as far as it would go to the right. There was a big lever that looked like a throttle, and when I pushed it forward, the boat's engine started to roar with effort. The barge groaned as the tug changed the direction in which it applied force, and the barge's back end began slowly slewing out and to the left. That drew shouts of consternation from the deck of the barge. I didn't feel like getting shot in the face, so I knelt down out of sight while I pulled the second-hand belt off of my old jeans and used it to secure the wheel in position. Then I recovered the Winchester and backed out of the bridge, hurrying away from it as quietly as I could. What I'd done was a delaying tactic at best. It wouldn't turn the barge around, but it would set it to spinning in place, and maybe cost the enemy time to turn it around if they took control of it again. But that was exactly what the hunt needed to sink her. Time. The longer the barge played sit and spin, the better. So I found a nice quiet patch of shadow where I could see the stairs leading up to the tug's bridge and where I could stand behind a very large steel pipe. I rested the Winchester on the top bend of the pipe, sighted on the doorway, 
and waited. It didn't take long for the first couple of crewmen to arrive. I wasn't sure whether they came up from below decks or somehow swarmed over from the barge, but two men in dark clothing, carrying pistols at the ready, came hurrying along and started up the stairs. I'm not a great shot, but when you're resting a rifle on a solid surface, one that is perfectly still, at least relative to all the solid surfaces around it, and when the range is about 40 feet, you don't have to be an expert. You just have to take a breath, let it out, and squeeze. The Winchester cracked with thunder, and the first man arched into a bow of agony just as he reached the top of the stairs. That ended up working in my favor. He fell back into the second man, just as the second guy spun and raised his pistol. The first man fell into the second, sending his first shot wild, and knocked him about halfway over. The second man couldn't hold the gun with both hands, but he kept pulling the trigger as fast as he could. At forty feet, terrified, in the dark, unsure of his target's exact location, and sprawled out with the dead weight of another man flopping against him, the poor bastard didn't have a chance. He got off seven or eight rounds, none of them coming anywhere close. I worked the action on the Winchester, took a breath, let half out, and squeezed the trigger. It wasn't until the flash of light from the shot illuminated him that I recognized Ace. His expression panicked. His gun aimed at a point ten feet to my left. The light flashed and burned his face into my retina for a moment as the dark returned, and the tugboat was silent again. It didn't take long for the Earl King to finish his work. Maybe three minutes later, a chorus of hideous screams went up from the lake's surface, and the hunt howled its triumph and circled into the sky, horns blaring, hounds baying. I saw a green fire burning fiercely from the spot the hunt had started carving, and then the barge started to list toward that side as the water poured into her. Barges aren't warships or even maritime vessels. If they have below-deck spaces at all, they generally aren't fitted with flood compartments and sealable doors. They sure as hell don't have automatic systems. They're just soup bowls. Poke a hole in the bottom, and a bowl isn't going to hold much soup. I didn't feel like getting titanicked, so I hustled over to the spot where I'd boarded the tug. There was a roar from the Shadow Tiger mask around the Harley, and Murphy swept up alongside the boat. I leapt down onto the back of the bike in a single smooth motion, which I felt was cool, and landed with way too much of my weight on my genitals, which I felt was not. Go, 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 I gasped in a pained falsetto, and Murphy peeled away from the doomed ships. Within moments, the hunt had fallen into formation around me again, and the Earl King was laughing maniacally, whirling his sword over his head. A shadow mask over one leg and a section of his ribs had been torn away, and I could see wounds beneath. But already the shadows were stretching over them again. I love nights like this, he bellowed. I love Halloween. Yeah, it's pretty badass, I said in my wobbling, creaky voice. Sir Knight, he said, that was passably done. But from here, I believe it shall take more experience and expertise than you possess to continue the hunt. Do I have your leave to resume command and pursue these outsider vermin in a more appropriate fashion? He asked me. Um, I squeaked. You aren't going to come after me with it, are you? 
He broke into laughter that could have been heard for miles. He was smiling so hard it went right through the shadow mask, turning his face into a crazed jack-o'-lantern of soot and fire. Not this night. I give you my word. Have I your leave? Rather than answer the Earl King in my Mickey Mouse voice, I gave him the thumbs up. The Lord of the Goblins threw back his head and let out another screech, and his steed began to gain altitude. The rest of the hunt followed him. Ah, uh, Harry, Karen said. Yeah? This is a motorcycle. It didn't register for a second, and then I blinked. We were cruising down the surface of Lake Michigan, and it was chock full of monstery goodness, and we had just left the wild hunt. Oh, crap, I said. Head for the island. Go, go, go. Murphy leaned hard into a turn and opened up the throttle. I looked over my shoulder at the Earl King, wheeling in the skies above the lake, spiraling higher and higher, the hunt following after. We went by a couple of Zodiacs so fast that their occupants didn't have time to shoot at us before we were gone. Then the motorcycle slowed. What are you doing? I screamed. We can't hit the beach at this speed, Karen shouted back. We'll pancake ourselves into those trees. I don't really feel like taking a swim tonight. Don't be such a pussy, Karen snapped. She leaned the bike into another turn, one that angled our direction to run parallel to the shore and cut out the accelerator. I felt the Harley slowing, and for a second I thought I felt it beginning to sink. Then the Earl King cried out again and dived, his horse sprinting straight down, trailing the fire of the hunt from its hooves. The rest of the hounds and riders followed in formation, and their horns and cries rebounded around the night. Then... Maybe a second before they hit the water, the hunt changed. Suddenly the Earl King wasn't mounted on a horse, but on a freaking killer whale, its deadly-looking black-and-white coloration stark in the night. Behind him, the other steeds shifted too, their riders screeching with excitement. The hounds changed as well, their canine bodies compressed into the long, lean, powerful shape of large sharks. Then the whole lot of them hit the water in a geyser of spray, and the Harley promptly fell through the surface of the lake, and onto sand just under its surface. The bike slowed dramatically, pushing me up against Karen, nearly pushing her over the handlebars, but she locked her arms straight and held, drawing the bike up onto the shore of the island. She rode the brake until we'd come to a halt, about five feet short of hitting one of the big old trees on the island. See, Karen said. You were right, I said. She looked back up at me, her eyes twinkling. You are so hot right now. I burst out into a hiccuping laugh that felt like it could have veered off into manic or depressive at any second, the pressure and terror of this entire stupid, ugly day finally getting to me, but it didn't. There were no enemy ships right on hand, and no one had launched grenades at the island since the Wild Hunt's attack had begun. There might have been outsiders in the water, but apparently the hunt was occupying their total attention. For the moment, we were alone, and Karen started laughing too. We laughed like that for several moments. We each tried to speak, 
to say something about the day, but it kept getting choked off by the half-hysterical laughter. Grenades, I said, as if a date has to have... Look on Molly's face. No, he's a dog, but I swear that... Santa Claus smacked down. Murphy gasped finally, and it set us both into gales of laughter that had no wind to support them, until finally we were just sitting with her small, warm form leaning her back against my chest in the darkness. Then she turned her head slowly and looked up at me. Her eyes were very blue. Her mouth was very close. Then I noticed something. The second barge, whose tug Murphy had torched with her grenade, was moving. I stood up and climbed off the bike, my eyes widening. Oh, crap, I said. From there, I could see that Shark Face stood calmly on the surface of the lake at the rear of the barge, his cloak twining and writhing all around him. His arms stretched forward in what was clearly a gesture of command. The waters at the rear of the barge boiled with outsiders, most of them at least partly out of the water, and it took me only a second to work out what was happening. They were doing an Evinrude impersonation, slamming their combined mass and preternatural strength against the rear of the barge. The burning tug was still a massive column of smoke and flame in front of the barge, but the barge was definitely moving, and it was close to shore. Eerie green and scarlet light flashed in the depths of the lake, soundless and random. Sharkface had been smart. When the hunt entered the water, he must have sent the lion's share of his outsiders against them, while he and a few others came back up to the surface to ruin the crap out of my potential romantic moment. Oh, stars and stones, I breathed. If they get that boat to shore... The Harley can't get us there, Karen said. Not through this terrain and brush. You can't keep up with me here, I said. Murphy gritted her teeth at that, but nodded. Go, she said. I'll come as fast as I can. And then I thought to myself that if I kept on waiting for things to quiet down and be more appropriate and safer before I took action, I was never going to get anywhere in life. So I slipped a hand behind her head, leaned down, and kissed her on the mouth, hard. She didn't stiffen. She wasn't surprised. She leaned into it, and her mouth tasted like strawberries. I gave two heartbeats, three, four. Then we both drew away at the same time. Her eyes were slightly wide, her cheeks high with color. I'm not going anywhere, I told her. Then I turned and sprinted toward the stretch of shore at which Sharkface had pointed the last barge. Chapter 45 For me, running across the island wasn't a physical effort. It was mostly a mental one. My awareness of the place was bone deep, a total knowledge that existed as a single whole body in my mind, a kind of understanding that some medieval scholars had called intellectus. It came to me on the level of reflex and instinct. When I ran, I knew where every branch stood out, where every stone lay ready to turn beneath my foot. Moving happened as naturally as breathing, and every step seemed to propel me forward a little faster, 
like running across the surface of one of those bouncy cages at a kid's pizza place. I didn't have to run across the island, I just had to think about it, and let my body effortlessly follow my mind. I came out of the woods on the beach above where the barge was headed, which was roughly twenty-three yards, one foot and six and one-half inches from the nearest edge of the what's-up dock. One of the three major pulsing ley lines ran out from the island at almost that exact point, and if the barge managed to ground itself in contact with the line, Chicagoans were going to have a really rough morning commute. Now that the hunt and the outsiders had taken their fight mostly below the waves, it was quiet enough to hear the barge approaching. Someone had already begun chanting on the deck of the barge. I couldn't see them through the smoldering wreckage of the tug out in front of the barge, but voices were certainly being raised in unison in a steady chant of some language that sounded as if it were meant to be spoken while gargling Crisco. Whatever happened to Ia Ia Cthulhu Fatagan, I muttered. No one has a sense of style anymore. Behind the chanting, I could hear the bubbling, sloshing water as the outsiders pushed the barge nearer and nearer. I rested the butt of the rifle on the ground next to my foot, crouched down and squinted out at the boat. It was going to be here shortly, but not instantly, and I was pretty sure I'd get only one chance to stop it. I started gathering power to myself, an action I'd done so many times over the years that it was all but a reflex now, and squinted at the barge. If the ritual was already in progress, then there was a chance that they were simply in a holding pattern, holding up the skeleton of the spell with their own limited energy and waiting until the right moment. Once they were close enough to use it, they dropped their circle and channeled the energy of the ley line, shaping it into the spell's muscles and organs, filling out the frame that was prepared to accommodate it. I had to make sure they never got that chance. The hole in the hull would work, but by the time the barge came within my limited range, it would be too late to drown it. I'd already tried killing its engine once, so I wasn't terribly excited about the prospect of taking out the creatures pushing it. I had to stop it. For destruction, I said aloud, ice is also great and would suffice. I nodded once to myself, rose, and said, Okay, Harry, get this one right. I went down to the shore. Using the butt of the rifle, I inscribed a circle in the mud and closed it with a touch of my hand and a whisper of will. Once I felt its presence snap into place, I took the will I'd been gathering, reached down into the earth, and gathered more, drawing it up like water from a well. I could feel the seething power of the ley line beneath me. Could feel how close I came to it in my quest to gather as much energy as I could before I unleashed my attack. The earth trembled with a subterranean river of dark power, the spirit of violence, havoc, and death expressed as energy, and if I tapped into it, I could potentially direct its terrible strength at the enemy. There would be consequences to an action like that, chain reactions and fallout I couldn't predict, but it would sure as hell get the job done. For a second, I almost did it. There was so much on the line. But you can't go around changing your definition of right and wrong, or smart and stupid, just because doing the wrong thing happens to be really convenient. Sometimes it isn't easy to be sane, smart, and responsible. Sometimes it sucks. Sucks wang, camel wang. 
but that doesn't turn wrong into right or stupid into smart. I had kind of gotten an object lesson in that, so I left that power alone. The magic continued to pour into me, more than I usually used, more than was comfortable. After thirty seconds, I felt as if my hairs were standing on end and sparks were shooting between them. I ground my teeth, dug into the cold power of winter, and kept drawing more. I began directing it down toward my right hand, and cold blue-white fire abruptly wreathed my fingers like the flame from a newly lit gas burner. The burned tug was only about a hundred yards away when I lifted my hand, stepped forward out of the circle, and cried out, Rexus Mundus! And a globe of blindingly intense blue light the size of a soccer ball flew out into the night. It spewed mist from every inch of its surface and flashed through the night like a dying comet. It landed in the water twenty yards in front of the slow-moving barge. There was an abrupt screech as the sphere of condensed, absolute zero cold hit Lake Michigan. Ice formed almost instantly, and large crystals of it shot out in every direction, sharp as spears, kind of like Superman's Fortress of Solitude. One instant it was clear sailing for the barge, the next, the mutant spawn of an iceberg and a giant porcupine bobbed in the water directly in front of it, a barrier of ice the size of a tractor trailer. I could have gone bigger, but there just wasn't enough time. I needed it to happen fast to get that weight into position, but I wasn't a complete dummy. My pointy iceberg was the size of a semi, but the barge could have carried twenty of them. I just had to get the first piece into the right spot. Again I reached for winter, and again I lifted my hand, howling, in Friga! Pure cold screamed from my hand into the air, spreading over the surface of the lake in a field shaped like a folding fan. The surface crystallized and froze, and I poured more and more into it, thickening the ice, spreading it toward the little iceberg. The wreckage of the tugboat hit my obstacle first, and the spears of ice punched through the weakened wooden hull of the tug, nailing the iceberg to it. The barge slowed, and pieces of the tug's rig screamed and bent in protest. Then, as it kept coming, it started hitting the thinnest ice at the edge of the fan. But as it kept coming, the ice got thicker and thicker, providing increasing resistance to the barge's forward motion. It began to grind to a halt. A furious shriek ripped the air. Shark face. I just pissed the walker off big time. It probably says something about my maturity level that it made me grin from ear to ear. I saw him jump into the air, not like a bunny hop, but a full-on kung fu theater leap way up over the barge. His rag-strip cloak spread out like dozens of little wings as gravity turned his jump from an ascent into a dive. I was starting to feel the effort of using so much brute power magic in such a short amount of time, but I had enough left to handle this thing. I prepared a blast of force, ready to swat him away from my barrier of ice and unleash it on him the moment he came within range. I missed. Well, I didn't miss, exactly. But just before the bolt slammed home, Sharkface split into dozens of identical shapes that splintered off in every direction. So one of those shapes got hit with a slap of force that would have rocked a car up onto two wheels, 
and that one went soaring away. But the other forty or fifty crashed down onto my field of ice like cannonballs, smashing through in most places, and some only sending wide cracks through the ice. When that happened, the copies of Sharkface just started tearing it apart with their claws. Thick ice is no joke as an obstacle. Unless you're a walker of the outside, I guess, because these things ripped it apart like it was styrofoam. There were so damn many of them. I started slamming more of them, but it was heavy work, and there were just too many targets. While some of them ripped apart the remaining ice, others began to tear apart the iceberg and the tugboat, rending them into scrap with an inexorable strength and claws like steel knives. I might have hit seven or eight of them, but it just didn't matter. I was the wrong tool for the job, so to speak. This was a much larger problem, and I had no idea how to solve it. The chanting on the barge rolled upward an octave, gaining frenzied volume. Outsiders thrashed through the water, pushing the barge, surging ahead of it to push pulverized chunks of ice out of its way, their howls and weird clicks and ululations like their own horrible music. Other outsiders came rushing toward me on the shore, only to smash uselessly against the glowing barrier of Demon Reach's curtain wall. They couldn't get to me, which seemed fair enough because I couldn't seem to get to them either. I'd slowed them down, cost them maybe a couple of minutes, and that was all. The water near me stirred, and then a shark face rose up out of it, as if on an elevator, slow. His mouth tilted into a small smile. He stood there on the water, perhaps five feet away from me. His eyeless face looked smug. Warden, he said. Asshat, I replied. That only made his smile wider. The battle is over. You have failed. But you need not be destroyed this day. You're kidding, I said. You're trying to recruit me? The offer is made, the walker said. We always appreciate new talent. I'm no one's puppet, I said. The walker actually barked out a short laugh. At what point have you been anything else? You can forget it, I said. I'm not working for you. Then a truce, Sharkface said. We do not need you to fight our battles for us. But if you stand aside, we will accord you respect and leave you in peace. You and those you love, take them to a safe, quiet place. Stay there. You will not be molested. My boss might not go along with his plan, I said. After tonight, Mab will no longer be a concern to anyone. I was going to say something badass and cool, but take the people I love somewhere. Take Maggie. Somewhere safe. Somewhere without mad queens or insane she. And just get out of this entire thankless, painful, hideous business. Wizarding just isn't what it used to be. Not so many years ago, I'd think it was a busy week if someone asked me to locate a lost dog or a wedding ring. It had been horribly boring. I'd had lots and lots of free time, 
I hadn't been rich, but I'd gotten to buy plenty of books to read, and I'd never gone hungry. And no one had tried to kill me or ask me to make a horrible choice. Not once. You never know what you have until it's gone. Peace and quiet and people I love. Isn't that what everyone wants? Oh, hell. The outsider probably wasn't good for it anyway, and I did have one more option. I had been warned not to use the power of the well, but what else did I have? I might have done something extra stupid at that moment if the air hadn't suddenly filled with a massive sound. Two loud, horrible crunching sounds, followed by a single, short, sharp clap of thunder. It repeated the sequence again and again. Crunch, crunch, crack, crunch, crunch, crack. No, wait. I knew this song. It was more like stomp, stomp, clap, stomp, stomp, clap. What else did I have? I had friends. I looked up at Sharkface, who was scanning the lake's surface, an odd expression twisting his unsettling face. I smiled widely and said, You didn't see this coming, did you? Stomp, stomp, clap. Stomp, stomp, clap. This was somebody's mix version of the song, because it went straight to the chorus of voices, pure human voices, loud enough to shake the ground, and I lifted my arms and sang the chorus of We Will Rock You along with them. The Halloween sky exploded with strobes of scarlet and blue light, laser streaks of white and viridian flickering everywhere, forming random flickering impressions of objects and faces, filling the sky with light that pulsed in time with the music. And as it did, the water beetle, the entire goddamn ship, exploded out from under a veil that had rendered it and the water it had displaced and every noise it had made undetectable not only to me, but to a small army of otherworldly monstrosities and their big bad walker general too. The walker let out another furious shriek, his hideous features twisted even more by the frenetic explosion of light in the sky, and that was all he had time to do. The water beetle slammed into the last barge at full speed. The mass differential between the two ships was significant, but this was different from when the barge had hit my iceberg. For one thing, it was almost entirely still, having only barely begun to pick up speed again. For another, the water beetle didn't hit it head on. Instead, it struck the barge from the side and right up by its nose. With less than ten yards to spare before the barge's prow ground up onto Demon Reach's shore, the water beetle brutally slammed her nose away from contacting the power of the outgoing ley line. I couldn't hear the collision over the thunder of Queen's greatest hit, but it flung objects all over both ships, around with the impact, more so on the beetle than the barge. The barge wallowed, stunned, its nose turned away from the beach, its long side being presented to the island, while the water beetle rebounded violently, drunkenly, and crunched up onto her hull in the shadows, listing badly to one side. Mac and Molly were up at the wheel. She had nearly been thrown from the craft, but Mac had grabbed my apprentice around the waist and kept her from getting a flying lesson. I'm not sure she even noticed. Her face was contorted in a concentration so deep it was practically dementia. 
her lips moving frantically, and she held a wand in either hand, moving them in entirely disconnected movements, as if directing two different orchestras through two different speed metal medleys. And as I watched, two other forms bounded up onto the water beetle's rail, then into graceful leaps that carried them over onto the barge, directly into the center of the ritual that was still running at a frantic pitch. Thomas had gone into the fight with his favorite combination of weapons, a sword and a pistol. Even as I watched, my brother whirled into a mass of figures on the deck, blades spinning, blood flying out in wide, clean arcs. He moved so swiftly that I could barely track him, just a blur of steel here, a flash of cold gray eyes there. His gun fired in quick rhythm between strokes of his falcata, scything down the outsider's mortal henchmen like sheaves of wheat. The second figure was gray and shaggy and terrifying. Mouse's lion-like ruff of fur flew out like a true mane as he whirled and lunged into the ritual's participants wherever Thomas hadn't. I saw him rip a shotgun from the hands of a stunned guard and fling it with a snap of his head into another one before bounding forward and bringing half a dozen panicked men to the deck under his weight and smashing them through the circle that had surrounded the ritual. The reduced energy the ritual had been able to use, the framework that the ley line would have turned into a deadly construction, vanished, released into the night sky to be shaken to pieces by the We Will, We Will Rock You chorus. Hey, shark face! I shouted, stepping forward, gathering winter and soul fire as I went. The furious walker whirled back to me just in time to have the heavy, octagonal barrel of the Winchester slam through the ridge of bone that he had instead of front teeth and drive all the way to the back of his mouth. Get rocked, I said, and pulled the trigger. Along with a forty-five caliber bullet, I sent a column of pure energy and will surging down the barrel and into the walker's skull. His head exploded literally exploded into streamers and gobbets of black ichor. His cloak of rags went mad, throwing the headless body into the air and sending it thrashing through the shallow water like a half-squashed bug. Dark vapor began issuing from the frantically twitching body, then suddenly gathered into a single cloud, all in a rush, and shot away, emitting a furious and agonized and terrorized scream as it went, alien but unmistakable. Then the body went limp in the water. The cloak continued flopping and thrashing for a few seconds before it, too, went still. A unified howl of dismay rose from the surface of the lake, from the outsiders, and the V-shaped wakes appeared on the surface retreating from the island in every direction, chased by flickering spears of light and music, and the horns of the hunt began to blare in a frenzy, ringing up from the water's quivering surface. I saw a massive black-and-white form seize a fleeing outsider and roll, while a shadow-masked rider lashed out over and over with a long spear. In another place, a shark exploded from the waves, hanging against the sky for a second, jaws gaping, before plunging down directly atop another outsider, driving it beneath the waves where a dozen wickedly sharp fins abruptly converged. The woods stirred behind me, and Murphy came panting out of them, her P-90 hanging from its sling. She came to my side, staring at the chaos. I couldn't blame her. It was horrible. 
It was unique. It was glorious. It was... Suddenly it felt like my heart had stopped. It was distracting. Molly! I screamed. Molly! Mac heard me through that mess and shook Molly. When she didn't react, he grimaced and then delivered a short, sharp smack to her cheek. She gasped and blinked her eyes, and the sky show and soundtrack abruptly vanished, right in the middle of the guitar solo. Get them out of the water! I screamed. Get onto the shore! Hurry! Molly blinked at me several times. Then she seemed to get it and nodded her head quickly. She and Mac hurried down to the Beatles' slanted deck, to the door to below. She called out and Sarissa and Justine appeared, both looking terrified. Molly pointed them at the island, and the three jumped from the ship to the waist-deep water and started wading ashore. Mouse caught what was happening and let out a short, sharp bark. Mouse doesn't bark often, but when he does, he can make bits of spackle fall from the ceiling. He and Thomas plunged from the bloody deck of the barge into the water and began swimming swiftly toward the island. The cries of the hunt and the frantic outsiders filled the air now, and even as they did, I forced myself to calm my thoughts, to take slow breaths, to focus on my intellectus of the island. I couldn't sense anything specifically, but an instinct dragged my chin around, turning me to stare up toward the crest of the island, where the old ruined lighthouse stood among the skeletal forms of the late autumn trees. Then it hit me. I shouldn't have been able to see the lighthouse or the trees from down here, not on a cloudy night, but their silhouettes were clear. There was light up there. And as my friends reached the shore and hurried over to me, I realized that there was an empty place in my awareness of the island. I would never have sensed it if I hadn't been looking. I couldn't feel anything from around the top of the hill. The walker was just a distraction, I breathed. Damn it! They're not pulling that same trick on me this time. I turned to them and said, I think someone's up at the top of the hill, and whatever they're doing, it ain't good. Stay right behind me. Come on. I was pretty sure I knew who was up there, and I wasn't about to do this alone. So I started toward the top of the hill, taking the agonizingly slow route that I knew would enable my friends to keep up with me. Chapter 46 Whoever was up at the top of the hill had things ready to stop me from getting there. It didn't work out well for them. I knew about the trip lines that had been strung up between the trees at ankle level and knew where the gaps were, more harassment-level opposition from the enemy little folk, I was guessing. The people with me didn't even realize that there were any trip lines. After that was a trio of particularly vicious-looking fey hounds, the little cousins of black dogs. I had taken a black dog on once in my calmer days and didn't care for a rematch. I clipped one of the hounds with a shot from the Winchester while it was crouching in the brush ahead, waiting for me to come a few steps closer, and I set on fire a thicket where another one hid before we got within thirty feet. Ambush predators become unnerved when their would-be prey spots them. Fayhound number three hustled out of a hollow log where he'd been planning to rush out and attack with his buddies and retreated with the two wounded hounds to the far side of the island. 
How did they get on the island? Molly asked as we kept moving. She was breathing hard, both from her efforts on the lake and from the hike up. I thought it kept everyone away. Demon Reach was meant to keep things in, not out. But I didn't want to blab about that in front of mixed company. It encourages everyone to stay away and turns up the heat slowly for anyone who doesn't, I said back. But that's when it isn't being attacked by an army of cultists and a horde of howling freaks from beyond reality. It was busy making sure none of the outsiders could come up onto shore, and none of them could. It just outmuscled an army led by something that could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Mab. Everything has its limits. I checked with my intellectus and realized that Mac and Sarissa were bringing up the rear. That wouldn't do. I still didn't know the role they were playing in this game. Mouse, I called. Take rear guard, in case those hounds circle around and try to sneak up on us. The big furball made a huffing sound, an exhalation somewhere between a bark and a sneeze, but chewier. <laughs> Chewy. I reminded myself to keep track of Mac and Sarissa as we went, but I felt better once Mouse was back there. Intellectus was handy as a reference guide, but not as an early warning system. If either one of them tried anything shady, the shaggy Tibetan guardian was probably the one most likely to notice first anyway. Might as well have him close. Who's up there? Karen asked, her voice low and tense. Fairy queens, I think. Plural. Whoa, Thomas said. Why? Complicated, no time, I said. No one does anything until I do. Don't even talk. If the balloon goes up, go after whoever I light up first. After that, improvise. After that, I continued, increasing the pace a little. The trees near the crown of the island were older, thicker, and taller. The spreading canopy of their branches had shaded out most of the brush beneath them, and the ground was easier to move across, being mostly an irregular, soggy carpet of years and years worth of fallen leaves. The scent of molds was thick as we went through, disturbing them. We emerged into the clearing at the top of the hill, and I stopped in my tracks six inches before I would have come out of the shadow of the forest. Thomas bumped into me. I looked partly over my shoulder with a little push of air through my teeth. He elbowed me in the lower back. The hilltop had been closed in a circle of starlight. I didn't know how else to describe it. I didn't know what I was looking at. Twelve feet off the ground was a band of illumination, glowing rather than glaring, something that filled the hilltop with gentle light, like an enormous ring floating above the earth. It was of precise width, as if drawn with a compass, and I knew that it was exactly one foot thick, twelve inches. The color was something I had never seen before changing subtly, moment to moment, holding silver and blue and gold. But it wasn't any of those things, and... and words fail. But it was beautiful, like love, like music, like truth. Something that passed through the eyes and plunged straight to the soul. Gentle, softly glowing light slid from the outer edge of the circle, like a sheet of water from an elegant fountain falling to the ground in a slow-motion liquid curtain of pure light, hiding what was behind it. I felt the grasshopper move up beside me, her eyes wide. Boss, she whispered, this would make my mom talk in her church voice. What are we looking at? Merlin's work, I breathed. That circle, 
I think it's part of the island's architecture. Wow. I... It's beautiful, Sarissa murmured. I've never seen anything like it, and I've been looking at incredible things my whole life. I spoke something I was certain was true in the same moment that I understood it. It had to be beautiful. It had to be made from beauty. There is too much ugly inside for it to be made of anything else. What do you mean, ugly? Karen asked, her voice hushed. Later, I said. I shook my head and blinked my eyes several times. City to save. I tried to find something about the circle in my intellectus, but I had apparently already learned everything I could learn about it that way. I knew its exact dimensions. I knew it was part of the structure of the massive spell that made the well exist. And that was it. It was like the entire thing had been classified, top secret, need to know only. And apparently I didn't need to know. Which, I supposed, made sense. We were talking about a massive security system. Molly stooped and picked up a rock. She gave it a gentle underhand toss at the wall of light, and it passed through without making a ripple. Safe? she asked. I doubt it. Give me something that isn't a part of the island, I said. I heard her slip her backpack off her shoulder and open a zipper. Then she touched my arm and passed me a granola bar wrapped in plastic. I tossed it at the wall, and when it touched, it was destroyed. It didn't go violently. It simply became a flicker of softly glowing light in the precise shape of the bar of food. Then it was gone. That also was pretty, Thomas noted, in a completely lethal kind of way. Look who's talking, Molly said. It's not all that high, he said. Maybe I could jump it. Molly, I said. She passed me another granola bar and I threw it over the wall. The wall destroyed it in midair. Maybe not, Thomas said. Okay, Karen said. So, how do we get through it? I thought about it for a second. Then I licked my lips and said, We don't. I do. Alone, Thomas said. Sort of defeats the point of bringing us. Also death, bad plan. I think it will let me through, I said. You think? Look, I said. Me and the island are kind of partners. Oh, right, Thomas said. He looked at Karen and said, Harry's a geosexual. Karen arched an eyebrow and gave me a look. You can't go alone, Molly said, her voice worried. Looks like it's the only way I can go, I said. So we do this Ulysses style. I go in, I figure a way to let down the gate, and then we sack Troy. Can you do that? Karen asked. I licked my lips and looked at the wall of light. I'd better be able to. You're tired, Molly said. I'm fine. Your hands are shaking. Were they? They were. They are fine also. I didn't feel tired. Given how much magic I'd been throwing around this day, I should have been comatose with fatigue hours ago, but I just didn't feel it. That wasn't a good sign. Maybe Butters had been right. No matter how much juice I got from the mantle of winter, bodies have limits. I was pushing mine. I passed the Winchester to Thomas and took off my new duster. At his lifted eyebrow, I said, 
Not of the island. Hold them for me. He exhaled and took them. No reruns, okay? <laughs> I said. Be like sneaking into the movies. Karen touched my arm. Just don't say that you'll be right back. You'll jinx it. I am a professional wizard, I said. I know all about jinxes. Having said that, I checked to make sure my shirt wasn't red. It wasn't. Then I realized I was putting this off because if I was wrong, I was about to go join Yoda and Obi-Wan in blue light country. So I took a deep breath and strode forward into the beautiful, deadly barrier. Chapter 47 I lived, just in case anyone was wondering. I stepped through, and liquid light poured over me like warm syrup. There was a little bit of a tingle as it passed over the surface of my body, and then it was gone. As were my clothes, like completely. I had sort of hoped that they would stay. The way Superman's unitard stays mostly invincible because it's really close to his skin. Plus, I hadn't felt like stripping in front of everyone for something so relatively trivial as preserving my garage sale wardrobe, and more important, I didn't think I had time to start playing Mr. Rogers while someone screwed around with my island. City to save. Check out my focus. Of course, going into battle full commando could be problematic. On the other hand... Every single time Mab had come at me during my recovery, every time, I'd been just like this, without resources of any kind except what I carried within me. I wasn't a big believer in coincidence. Had she been trying only to strengthen me generally, or had she been preparing me for this exact situation? Could Mab see that far ahead? Or was this simply a case of superior preparedness proving itself in action? What was it I heard in a martial arts studio at some point? Learn to fight naked and you can never be disarmed. Which is fine, I guess, as long as there aren't mosquitoes. I got low and stayed still and opened my senses. First thing, I was inside a ritual circle, one that was currently functioning, being used for a spell. It wasn't the cheap and quick kind I was used to, I guessed, or it would have been broken when I crossed it. Maybe it had kept its integrity because, as part of the island, I already existed on either side of the circle. There were certain creatures who could move back and forth across boundaries like that without disturbing them in the slightest. Most notably, the common cat. It was one reason practitioners so often kept cats as house pets. From a technical standpoint, they are very magic-friendly. Maybe I hadn't broken it because it had been set up in such a way as to consider the island's warden one of those creatures. Or maybe it was the continual rippling, liquid nature of the circle itself. Whatever the case, I was standing inside an active circle. Possibly the most active circle I had ever seen. Magic hummed through the air and the ground, so much that I felt my hair standing on end and some primitive instinct-level awareness from the winter night's mantle, the same part that had given me so much trouble all day, started advising me to get the hell out of there, along with the rest of the island's animals. That was why my intellectus hadn't been able to tell me what was happening here. As a form of magical awareness, an active circle had blocked my intellectus out. Now it worked just fine for what was inside the circle. 
It was everything outside of it that it could no longer touch. I learned all of that at the same time my regular old five senses registered what was happening. I was not alone. The crown of the hill was covered with fairies. All right, that wasn't literally true. There were twenty of them, plus one other mortal. And Demon Reach. The island spirit made manifest stood in the ruins of the lighthouse, in the opening in the wall that led to the entrance to the stairs down to the well. Its vast form was planted, braced like a man standing against a strong wind, hunched, bent forward slightly, but not in a stance of battle. The spirit did not exist for such things. Instead, I realized, it did only what it always had. It endured. But even as I watched, I saw bits of demon reach flying backward, away from its mass, but slowly, as if a current of thick syrup flowed past the spirit, slowly wearing it away. The spirit stood at one point of an equilateral triangle. At one of the other points stood Lily, the summer lady. She stood with her right arm, the arm that projects energy, upraised. She wore that same simple dress I'd seen her in earlier. It was pressed against the front of her body, and her silver-white hair was blown back as if in a strong wind. There was no visible display of energy coming from her other than that. But the ground between her and Demon Reach was covered in fresh green grass, and I could feel that she was pouring out power against the spirit. Behind her stood a pair of she of the summer court, each with a hand on her shoulder. Behind them were three more, and four more were behind them, each with their hands on the shoulder of someone in front of them, forming a pyramid shape. They were all projecting power forward, focusing it through Lily, making her even stronger than she already was. Maeve stood at the third point of the triangle, with her own pyramid of supporters. She wore leather short shorts, military boots, and a bikini top, all of midnight blue. She stood in the same stance as Lily, the same unseen power flaring from her outstretched hand, but her face was set in a wide, manic smile, and the ground between her and Demon Reach was covered in a layer of frost. The red cap stood at her right hand, one hand on her shoulder. The massive raw head from my birthday party was there, too, and its bony claws, drenched in and dripping fresh blood, rested on her other shoulder. Eight other winter she were behind them, forming a power pyramid of their own. Then I heard footsteps, and a second later, Fix, the summer night, stepped around the corner of my partially completed cottage and walked toward me. He was wearing fairy mail, gleaming, draping over a wiry, hard-muscled frame, and he carried his sword in his hand. Fix stopped between me and the triangle at the top of the hill. Hey, Harry he said quietly. Hey, Fix. Cold? Not so much. You know what's happening here? What must happen, he said. According to who? My lady. She's wrong. Fix stood there for a time, quiet. Then he said, Doesn't matter. Why not? Because she is my lady. You will not raise your hand against her. I stared at Fix, who had suffered under the office of Lloyd Slate, and behind him at Lily, who had been Slate's frequent victim. 
I wondered how many times back then Fix had ached to be able to save her, to have the power to stand up to the winter night. And now he did. There comes a time when no amount of talk can change the course of events. When people are committed, when their actions are dictated by the necessity of the situation their choices have created. Fix had put his faith in Lily and would fight to the death to defend her. Nothing I had to say would change that. I could see that in his face. Go back, he said. Can't. Stand aside? Can't. So, it's like that, I said. Fix exhaled, then he nodded. Yeah. And for the first time in a decade, the winter night and summer night went to war. Fix hurled a bolt of pure summer fire that scorched the ground beneath it as it flew at me. I didn't have time to think, but some part of me knew this game. Dodging the bolt wouldn't be enough. The bloom of heated air coming off that fire would burn me if it even came close. That was why Fix would have the advantage in this match, if he kept the distance open and just threw bolt after bolt. So I called upon Winter to chill the air around me as I ducked to one side. Fire and cold met, clashed, and filled the air with mist. Mist that would give me the chance to close to grips with my foe. Part of me, the part of me that I was sure was me, viewed these tactics with alarm. I was freaking naked and unarmed. Fix had the mantle of the summer night, and it made him just as strong and fast and tough as I was. He was armored and toted a freaking sword, and he'd had ten years of training with the summer court to learn how to fight and use the mantle. Plus, he presumably hadn't spent all day pushing his abilities to the limit. But the winter mantle didn't care about that. It simply saw its enemy and wanted to destroy it. The best way to do that was to get in close and rip out Fix's throat. Except that wasn't how the last winter night had killed the last summer night. Lloyd Slate had iced the stairs underneath the other guy's feet and pushed him down. And Slate had been young and in good shape, whereas the other summer night had been an old man. So I thought it would be smart to assume that the instinctual knowledge of the winter mantle, while it could be handy, was basically that of a starving predator, a wolf in winter. It wanted blood, lots of it, now. And if I played it like that, Fix was going to leave my guts on the ground. Instead of charging ahead, I veered to one side for several steps and then froze. An instant later, another bolt of fire lit up the mist, right through where I would have been if I'd followed the mantle's instinct. Of course, it had to be that way. Winter's night was the mountain lion, the wolf. Summer's was the stag, the bison. Winter was oriented to stalking, hunting, and killing prey. Summer to avoiding a confrontation until an advantage could be had, then savagely pressing that advantage for all it was worth. Fix would have a wealth of instinctive knowledge to draw on if I went after him Winter's way, and would be at his most dangerous the same way as, for example, a student of pure Aikido. He would use the strength of an attack to assist his own defense, turning it back on the attacker. But if I didn't give him that kind of aggressive assault, I would rob him of his instinctive advantage. Screw being the winter night. Before everything else, I was a wizard. So I flicked my wrist, whispered, Obscurata, 
and vanished behind a veil. My veils aren't much good compared to the grasshoppers, or almost anyone else's, really. But when you're standing in a giant fog bank, they don't need to be very good to make you effectively invisible. And I know how to move very quietly. I wouldn't have trusted them against one of the she, but Fix wasn't one. He was a changeling, with one mortal parent and one fey one. But except for the summer mantle, he was as human as the next guy. I prowled ahead, listening, sharpening the acuity of my ears to a far greater level than that of which they were normally capable, and heard Fix's smooth breathing before I'd taken a dozen steps. I froze in place. I couldn't locate him exactly, but... I kept myself from making an impatient sound and consulted my intellectus. Fix was standing thirty-six feet four inches away, about twenty-two degrees to the left of the way my nose was facing. If I'd had a gun, I was pretty sure I could have shot him. Fix had frozen in place, too. Bah! His mantle was probably advising him to be patient, just as mine was screaming at me to stop waiting, stalk him, and pounce. I took advantage of it for maybe a minute, consulting my intellectus and moving fifty feet to one side, where I could pick something up off the ground. Then I went back and waited, but he still hadn't stirred. This wouldn't work if he stood his ground. I had to make him move. I retreated a few more steps into the mist and spoke away from him, hoping the lousy visibility in my veil would confuse the exact origin of my voice. I get Lloyd Slade a little better now, you know, I said. The mantle, it drove him, made him want things. Lloyd Slate was a monster, came Fix's voice. I hated to do it, but I had to push his buttons. He was as human as the next man, I said. It just made his desires louder and louder. There wasn't anything he could have done about it. Do you hear yourself, Harry? Fix called. There was an edge in his voice. You sound like a man making excuses or justifications. Yeah, but I'm not Slate, I shot back, my voice hotter. Slate was some pathetic bully. I had as much power as a hundred Slates way before I cut his throat. Fix's breathing came faster. He had it under control, but he was scared. The Harry Dresden I knew never would have said something like that. That was ten years of persecution complex and a war ago, Fix, I told him. And you haven't got room to get all righteous with me. I know you're feeling things, too, just like I am. Time to sink the right barb to goad him into movement, aggression. What do you see when you look at Lily, man? She's gorgeous. I have a hard time thinking about anything else when she's there. Shut up he said in a quiet voice. Seriously, I continued. The dialogue came easily, too easily. The winter mantle was talking to a part of me that did not have much in the way of restraint. That hot little ass? I mean, gosh, just thinking about it. If he could see me now, I'd be a little embarrassed. Shut up, he said again. Come on, bros before hoes, man. That summer mantle got a herd instinct going? Because for something as sweet as that, I'm thinking we could share if... If my intellectus hadn't been focused on him to let me see what was coming, I'd have been burned alive. I flung myself to one side as he turned and hurled another bolt of fire at me.
I had to gather more winter around myself to protect my vulnerable hide, thickening the mists even more, and Fix seemed to key on the surge of cold. He pivoted toward me, took two steps, and leapt with his sword held in both hands. Thirty-seven feet. That was how far he jumped, and it had come effortlessly. He could have done more. I knew exactly how much force he pressed the ground with when he left it, exactly what angle he jumped at. My intellectus could track the air and the mist he was displacing as he leapt through it. I took two steps away just as he leapt. I felt sick, like I was fighting a blind man. Fix landed exactly two feet short of where I'd been, and his sword came down through the space where I'd been standing. If I'd still been there, he would have split me into two gruesome halves. But I wasn't. I was standing behind him, within inches of his back, and before he could rise, I struck. A moment before, I'd used my intellectus to locate an old nail on the ground, about four inches long, partly coated in rust. Thomas or I must have dropped it while walking to or from the cottage, back when we'd been beginning repairs on it and building the What's Up dock. The nail had lain out through several seasons, only lightly touched by them. I put my thumb behind its head, used the strength of the winter mantle, and drove it straight through mail that had never been designed to stop such a small point, and two inches into the muscle of Fix's shoulder blade. Fix let out a scream of shock and pain and swung his sword at me, but with cold steel piercing his skin and his access to the summer mantle disrupted, he had only his own reflexes, strength, and skill to rely on. He hadn't trained in them without the power of the summer night to back them up, and he hadn't learned in the brutal school of hard knocks that Mab had put me through. The sword slash was slowed and clumsy, and I struck him twice, once on the wrist, breaking it with a clear snap, sending the sword to the ground, and once on the jaw, not quite as hard, sending Fix to the ground in a senseless heap. Night takes night, I called into the cloudy night air. Check. The struggle between the Queens and Demon Reach had already been a silent one, but now the air abruptly went still. I couldn't see them, but I knew that Lily had turned her body partly away from Demon Reach, toward me, breaking her connection with one of the two she supporting her. Demon Reach, for its part, had altered its facing to square off against Maeve. I could sense that the little bits of its body that had been eroding away were now moving in the opposite direction, reaccruing to its main mass. Fix? The summer lady called, her voice vaguely confused. Then it was touched by sudden, cold fear. Fix? What are you doing? Maeve snarled. You stupid cow! I cannot defeat the Guardian alone! Lily ignored her. I sensed her move her hand, an almost absent gesture and a sudden wind brushed the fog Fix and I had created from the hilltop, as easily as a young mother sweeping fallen Cheerios from a toddler's tray. Holy crap! I knew the ladies were powerful, but I hadn't realized what that meant in practical terms. Making that much air move that precisely and that suddenly is hard, and it would take a serious investment of energy to make it happen. I could have done it, but it would have been enough heavy lifting to make me want a cold beer and a nice sit-down when I was finished. If I'd had to do it two or three times in a row, I'd have been too tired to lift the beer. Lily had done it with a comparative flick of her fingers. 
and there I was, standing naked on the hilltop over the unmoving form of Fix. I still had my veil up, but it was so rudimentary as to be useless against someone as savvy as the she. I shouldn't have bothered to hold on to it at all, but some irrational instinct made me condense it instead to a small field of blurry energy around my hips. He's alive, Lily, I said quickly. We need to talk. The whites showed all the way around Lily's eyes. What? she demanded, fury swelling in her tone. What did you say to me? Whoa. On my worst diplomatic day, I still shouldn't have garnered a reaction like that from what I'd said. Lily, calm down. Fix is alive. But I think you're still you over there, and I don't think you've been given the whole truth. Let's talk before things happen that everyone regrets. How dare you? She snarled, her rage turning incandescent. Literally, fire burst from her hands and wreathed her forearms. How dare you? I held up my own hands in front of me, empty. I was pretty sure I looked confused. Hells, bells, Lily, what the hell? I do not want to fight here. Lily screamed, and summer fire engulfed her, causing her courtiers to leap back away. Gold and green and starlight silver, the fire danced around her, mesmerizing and swelling. Suddenly I saw the same rage that I'd seen in Titania's eyes, but that had been the smoldering coals left over after the passing of years, after mourning and grief had eased. The power Lily held on to now came from the same kind of passion, but it was fresh and white-hot, and it wasn't going to cool any time soon. Then I realized what was going on. Maeve had extended her other hand toward me, and her fingers were dancing merrily. She gave me the briefest flash of a look, and it was poisonously amused. I reached into the air in front of me and felt it there, an elegant little glamour. Simple enough that Maeve could have done it in her sleep, complex enough to slip by anyone not looking for it, even one of the she. I'd been talking, but it hadn't been my words getting to Lily. Maeve had chosen my words for me. I don't know what she'd said, but she'd picked something exactly right to drive her summer counterpart mad with rage. Lily's gentler, more compassionate nature had been used against her. Maeve had employed her simple little glamour with exquisite timing, at the one instant when there was no way the relatively inexperienced Lily would have expected it when she was full of concern for the fallen fix. With a sinking feeling, I realized that the passionate young lady of summer was no Titania. She had all the heat, but none of the restraint, the balance, and there was no way in hell that she was going to be able to think, to reason, to hold back her fury. Destroy him! she screamed. Trees shook and rocks cracked as she spoke. The sound of it ripped at my ears, and I felt a sudden hot wetness in them. Destroy Harry Dresden! She threw forth her hands, and a wall of fire, twenty feet high and as wide as a football field, roared toward me. Chapter 48 For a fraction of a second, my brain squealed like the last little piggy running all the way home. 
a spinal-level fear reaction. I had an experience with fire once. It's the kind of memory that sticks pretty hard. Fire's tough to defend against. That's one of the reasons it's always been my favorite form of attack. Even if you don't actually set your target on fire, you can still roast it by heating up the air around it, unless it just throws away everything to get out of your way, in which case it isn't thinking about doing anything back to you. As weapons go, fire is top drawer. But fire's tricky and fickle. Without focus, it's just chaos, the random release of stored chemical energy. It isn't enough to just have fire. You've got to know when and where and how to use it to best effect. And Lily didn't. I threw myself down over the unconscious fix and focused, thrusting my hands out to either side, shouting, Defendarius! As I formed a shield around us in a bubble, the firestorm roared down onto us, washing over us like an ocean tide. My shield held the fire back, but it couldn't stop it entirely, and heat began to burn through. That was why I reached for winter and filled the little bubble around us with the cold. That wave of fire was too massive for me to overcome, but I didn't have to overcome it. It was spread out over such a huge area that all I had to do was beat a relatively tiny portion of it, to hold out against it like a large stone on a beach. I didn't have the strength to beat it, but I did have the strength to hold it away, and to keep just the air within my shield from becoming an oven. The fire washed over us, and I held on to the shield for a few seconds more, as long as I thought I could. Without my bracelet or my staff to help direct the energy, a few seconds were all I could do, but it was enough to survive. It left me on my hands and knees, gasping on a small circle of frost-covered earth, but I made it, and so did Fix. Go me. Maeve's mocking laughter rang out over the hilltop. Hot air touched the side of my face and grew gently, along with an approaching light. I looked up to see Lily walking toward me over the scorched earth, naked now but for the flames curling around her body, her own clothing burned away in the firestorm. Her eyes weren't there. There were only a pair of searing fires burning where they had been, wisps of orange and scarlet flame rising up from them as she came closer. Her silken white hair rose into a wavering column like a flame itself, lifted by the hot air and colored golden green and orange by the light of her fiery nimbus. Behind her, the other summer she were shadows, with fire dancing in the reflection of silvery weapons, and with the echoes of it flickering in their hands and upon their brows, power and weapons alike spreading out around me to leave me no escape but at the flick of a hand from Lily, they stopped and withdrew back to their original positions near the tower. I guessed that she didn't want to incinerate her summer buddies along with me. I started to lift my hand to ready another shield, but my other arm couldn't take the weight of my body, and I nearly collapsed. That was it, then. I was out of gas. I managed to get myself up onto my knees and sat back on my heels, panting, then I tugged the nail out of Fix's back, gripped it grimly, and faced Lily. She stopped about six feet away from me, covered in living fire, and stared down, her eyes like spotlights. He's okay, Lily, I said. Fix is okay. God, Lily, 
Can you even hear me? Evidently, she could not. Lily lifted a hand, and a minuscule sphere of white-hot light formed in the air above it a tiny star. Now there, that was focus. I couldn't have stopped something that concentrated without a major amount of preparation. I could appreciate it in a professional sense, even if it was about to kill me horribly. And suddenly I felt very stupid. What the fuck had I been thinking? The queens of fairy, even the least of them, were elemental powers. Something that was simply out of the league of any mortal. I should have tried to contact my grandfather in the Grey Council. Should have at least put out a scream to the White Council, even if they were less likely to help. And I should have sent Michael and his family, and Maggie, out of town the second I'd realized the danger. I'd saved the day before, maybe often enough to make me overconfident. I sneer about the White Council being arrogant all the time, but I'd walked into the exact same stupid trap, hadn't I? Confident of my ability to handle anything that came along, I'd gathered together my little band of enablers and cruised right into this disaster. Lily, I said wearily, listen to me. We've both been set up by Maeve. White fire stared at me. The adversary, I said. It's in her. It's been in her for a long time. Think. It makes the things it takes act against their natures. And you know what it's done for Maeve? I leaned forward, holding my weary hands, palms up. It's let her lie. She can lie her ass off and never blink an eye. Think. How much of your trust in her, of your awareness of what's going on in the world, is based on knowing that she can't speak an untruth? Fire stared and did not consume me, so I kept talking. Don't take me at my word, I said. Just look at what she is doing. And Lily spoke, her voice burning with the unleashed power of summer. We are working together. We are destroying the largest source of dark energy and corruption in this world the source that you are so desperate to protect that you call outsiders to defend it. Oh, God. Lily didn't know what was in the well. She understood that it was a source of dark energy, but not why. I kept forgetting that she had had the job for only a comparatively tiny amount of time. Before I'd killed Aurora and left poor Lily holding the mantle of the Summer Lady, she'd been a young woman. No older than Molly, only without Molly's skills and training. She'd been putting her life back together while dealing with the massive power of her mantle, taking a crash course in fairy leadership, struggling to learn. And if someone had been there to feed her lies as part of her basic education in the supernatural, someone whose word she had trusted, God only knew how much of her knowledge had been twisted and colored. Who told you I called up outsiders? I asked. Maeve? So arrogant, Lily said. You reek of arrogance and deception, like all wizards. Even the famous Merlin who built this abomination. Her eyes narrowed. But as complex as it is, it is still made of mortal magic. This circle that we used to stop your interference, it's part of the architecture here. 
All we had to do was feed power into it to close this place against your allies while we tore it down from the inside. If you keep going, I told her, you are going to destroy yourself, Lily, and everyone you brought with you, and a lot of innocent people are going to die. Finish it, Lily, Maeve called. I told you they would lie. Mortals always lie, and that is why we must stand together. We cannot allow ourselves to be divided. Put him down, and we will complete what we have begun. Lily, please, I said. Don't take my word for it. Don't believe me. But be certain. Find out for yourself. Then you'll know. You don't have to do this. The summer fire vanished abruptly. Lily stood over me, her hair mussed, her naked body so beautiful it hurt. She spoke in a quiet, dreadfully numb voice. You can't tell me that, she said. Not you. Do you think I wanted this? Do you think I wanted pain and death and fear and war? Do you think I wanted this mantle, this responsibility? Her eyes welled, though her expression didn't change. I didn't want the world. I didn't want vast riches or fame or power. I wanted a husband, children, love, a home that we made together, and that can never happen now. The tears fell, and as the heat, the fury, came back into her voice, the fire gathered around her again. Because of you. Because you killed Aurora. Because you made me into this. You raise your hand against my champion, my friend, and when you are defeated, you dare tell me what I must and must not do? Lily, please, I said. You have a choice. Maeve was laughing again in the background, an Arkham Asylum kind of laugh that echoed across the bare, burned ground. Now, Lily said, her burning voice bitter, now you give me a choice. The mini-star flared to life in her palm again. Thus do I choose, you son of a bitch. Night of winter, burn and die. I got it, I think. Or at least I got most of it. Lily had spent her life a victim because of her luminous beauty. Lloyd Slate had been the last man to abuse her, but I doubted he was the first. All her life she had been shut away from making choices, but she clearly had not wanted to be part of the world of fairy. As a changeling, she could have chosen to become a full fairy being at any time, and she hadn't. Then, when I killed Aurora, I had even taken the choice to remain human away from her. I hadn't meant to do that when I killed Aurora, but that fact made no difference in the outcome. I hadn't just killed Aurora that night. In many ways, I'd effectively killed Lily, too. I'd thrown her into a world where she was lost and afraid. A grieving and furious Titania had doubtless not been the supportive mentor figure Lily had needed. And even if she'd been a newly minted immortal, she must have been horribly angry and sad and afraid and lonely. Easy prey for Maeve. Easy prey for Nemesis. I wasn't sure whether there was anything about that entire situation that I could have changed, even if I'd known that it needed changing. 
but I still felt like I was the one at fault. Maybe I was. It had been my choice that changed everything. Maybe it was fitting that Lily kill me, in turn. Her fiery eyes seared into mine as she launched the little star at my heart. Chapter 49 There was a flash of silver, and the little star bounced off of the mirror-bright flat of Fix's long sword. It soared into the earth a dozen yards away and hit the ground with a flash and a howl of heated air, creating a brief column of white flame that presumably had been intended to replace my head and neck. Fix was holding himself up on one elbow and held the sword in his left hand. He looked like hell, but he made a single deft rolling motion and came onto his feet as if he didn't weigh anything. And he came to his feet between Lily and me. Lily, Fix said, what is wrong with you? Eyes of flame regarded him. You, you're all right? I said that, I said. My voice might have squeaked a little. My heart rate was up. Harry, shut up, Fix said. Lily, look at him. He isn't a threat to anyone. I guess I must have looked kind of bad, but still. Hey, I said. Fix twitched his hips and kicked me in the chest. It wasn't hard, but in my condition it didn't need to be. It knocked me over. Sir Knight, Lily said. I... Fix, it burns. Stop this, he urged quietly. Let's get out of here. Find someplace quiet for you to meditate until you've got it under control again. I need to... He tried to hurt you. Fix's voice hardened. The ground is burned black, Lily, he said, and there's frost all over my mail. There are burns all over his arms and shoulders, but I wake up fine, lying in the only grass left on the hilltop. He held up his sword. The last six inches or so of the blade were simply gone, ending in a melted mess. The point must have been lying outside the area my shield had covered. But it was hot enough to do this. Forget what anyone said. Who was protecting me, Lily? She stared at Fix, the furious fire still curling around her, lifting her hair, burning from her eyes. Then she closed them with a groan, and the fires went out. Lily turned her head sharply away from me. This is too much, I heard her whisper. I'm going to fly apart. My lady? Fix asked. Lily made a snarling sound, turning eyes that still flickered with embers toward me. Stay where you are, Sir Knight, she said, spitting the last word. If you move or lift weapon or power against our purpose, I will not show mercy a second time. Then she turned and swept back toward the pyramid formation of she assaulting Demon Reach. Her feet left clear imprints in the soot and ash on the ground, and little fires flickered up in the wake of her steps, dying away again when she had passed. She did not say a word, just lifted her hand again, and again something like an invisible sandblaster started pouring into demon reach. I watched, too drained to move more. I did, I noted, have burns on my arms. I didn't feel them. They didn't look like anything epic, but they were there. Fix, I said. 
Thank you. He looked at me, his expression guarded, but nodded his head slightly. It seemed I was in your debt, Winter. His eyes sparkled just for a second. Couldn't have that. I found myself laughing weakly. No. No, it might break something. It broke my damned wrist, he snorted. My jaw isn't happy either. Good punch. I cheated, I said. Our business, there's no such thing, he said. I should have known you were goosing me, talking like that. Most of the fighting I've done, there hasn't been much in the way of taunt and insult. Raise your standards. There's almost always time for an insult or two. He smiled, though it was a bit pained. He waggled the fingers of his right hand experimentally. Are you done? I exhaled slowly and didn't answer. How much of what you told her is true? He asked. What did you hear? I asked him. Pretty much everything after you took the knife out of me. Nail, I corrected him, and held it up so he could see. It still had his blood on it. He looked a little pained. Harry, would you mind? No, I said, and wiped the blood into the earth, scrubbing it off the nail. Thanks, he said. He squinted at the wall and then at me. How the hell did you get in here? Trade secrets, I said. How did you guys get here? I know you didn't take a boat. Flew in, Fix said. Shapeshifters. I dropped from a hang glider over the lake and parachuted in. Damn, you got extreme. I'm getting there, he said. So you landed here and put the circle up? Trade secrets, he said cautiously. You realize we still aren't sitting in the same dugout, right? I can do the frenemies thing. It's kind of traditional. But we are not on the same side. No, you're on the wrong side, I said. Maybe more than one. That's what every conflict sounds like, he said. Not everyone can be equally right, Harry. But believe you me, everyone can be equally wrong, I said. Fix, this is about more than winter and summer. He frowned at that. Tell me this, I said. I'm not asking for anything specific, anything that I might be able to use against you later, as if Maeve would let me have a later. Just tell me. Has Maeve ever asked you to take something at her word and just told you something was true, straight up? Fix's frown deepened. And you thought to yourself, hey, that's odd. She never just tells anyone anything straight up. His lips parted slightly and his eyes fixed on Maeve. And you thought that if anyone but one of the ladies had said it, you would wonder if she was lying. But she didn't leave any wiggle room, so it had to be the truth. So, he asked very quietly. So let me ask you this, I said. If you assume that she can lie, even if it was just at once, how does it change the picture? Fix might have had some foolish idealism going, but he'd never been anywhere close to stupid. Oh, he breathed. Um, remember when Lily opened the door to Arctis Tor for us back when? Sure. When we got inside, the Lananshi was popsicled in Mab's garden, I said, because something had invaded her and influenced her actions. Mab was in the middle of some kind of exorcism based on the model of an ice age. And? And what if this invader got into the water before Mab caught it, I asked. What if it got into Maeve? That's crazy, he said. 
Mab's the one who's gone mental. Is she? I asked him. Is it so crazy? Remember that meeting at Max? Remember how we found out that Mab had cracked a gasket? Maeve told... He stopped speaking suddenly. Yeah, I said. A minute ago, you told Lily to ignore the words and look at the actions. You know as well as I do which speaks louder. You know who I am and what I've done. So I'm going to ask you one more question, I said. Whose idea was it to be here tonight? Lily's or Maeve's? The blood drained from his face. Oh, fuck. I bowed my head. Then I said, Fix, I saved you because you're a decent guy, and I don't care if we're on different teams. I don't want you dead. Yeah, he said quietly. It speaks pretty loud. But maybe you knew I'd think that. Maybe you did it so that you could play me. Maybe you're giving me way more credit for cunning than I'm due. You know how I work. How often do I get to a neat, elegant solution that ties everything up? Can you look at me right now and honestly say to yourself, Dresden, that wily genius, this must be part of his master plan. I spread my hands and looked up at him expectantly. Fix looked at me, dirty, naked, shivering, burned, bruised, covered in soot and ash. Fuck, he said again and looked back at the ladies. I don't think Maeve did anything to Lily's head, I said. I don't think she needed to. I think Lily was insecure and lonely enough that all Maeve needed to do was act sort of like a person. Give Lily someone who she felt understood what she was going through. Someone she thought would have her back. A friend, Fix said. Yes. Everyone wants to have a friend, he said quietly. Is that so bad? Thelma and Louise were friends, I said. I pointed at the triangle. Canyon. The muscles along his jaw jumped several times. Even if... Even if you're being honest, and you're right, and I'm not copping to either, so what? Those coteries with them are their inner circles. They'll obey, without question. You've got nothing left to fight with, and I sure as hell can't take them all on alone. I didn't want to say it, to give anything away to a potential enemy. Nemesis could have taken Fix, for all I knew. It could be there inside him right now, smirking at the rapport it was establishing with me. That was the ugly fact. But sometimes you have to ignore the math and... and follow the wisdom of your heart. My heart told me that Fix was a decent guy. Fix, I know about this island. It's kind of my stomping grounds. That's how I got through. And I know that if Maeve has her way, this island is going Mount St. Helens and taking Chicago with it. He stared at me, frowning, pensive. My daughter is in town, I said in a whisper. She'll die. He blinked. You have a... Then he rocked back a little as he realized what I'd entrusted him with. Oh, Christ, Dresden. I took a deep breath and pressed on. The hunt is out there, taking it to the outsiders right now, I said. And they're winning. And my crew is here, outside the circle. Murphy, Molly, Thomas, Mouse. 
If I can take the circle down, we aren't alone. When did we happen? he asked in a flat, hard tone. I looked up at him and saw laughter at the corners of his eyes. Sometimes the wisdom of the heart is not at all a bad thing. I won't let anything hurt Lily, he said, for any reason, period. Agreed, I said. Maeve's the bad guy. He tested his right hand again and got a little more motion out of it before he winced. I don't know where this will get you, he said, but as far as I could tell, this was just a ritual circle, like any other. How so? When we landed, Maeve sent some hounds and some little folk after you and went straight for that lighthouse, and the Guardian just popped up out of the ground where it is now. Maeve assaulted the spirit, just like right now. She kept it busy while Lily walked a circle of the hilltop, singing. I've seen her set up circles like that a thousand times, but once she'd gone all the way around, kaboom, up came the wall. I grunted. Then it's a pre-installed defense that can be triggered like hell's bells, not like a ward. It is a ward, a huge one. But if anything of the island passes through the circle without disturbing it, and anything that isn't of the island is destroyed, I followed the logic through and sagged. What? Fix asked. Then there's no way to break the circle, I breathed. It's like a time lock safe. It isn't coming down until sunrise. Meaning what? I swallowed. Sunrise was too late. So I gathered whatever scraps of strength I had left in me and pushed myself slowly, wearily to my feet. Meaning, I said, we're on our own. Fix eyed the center of the clearing. He passed me a silvery knife he drew from his belt and said, There you go with that we again. Chapter 50 I started walking. It was iffy for a couple of steps, but I got the hang of it. Is there a plan? Fix asked, keeping up with me. Maeve, I kill her. Which had been Mab's freaking order in the first place. He glanced aside. You know she's an immortal, right? Yeah. His eyes narrowed. What do I do? They've got the Guardian pinned down, I said. I think one of those crews has got to stay on it, or it'll break loose. Otherwise, Maeve would have been stomping on me right next to Lily. Fix nodded. She never passes up the chance to tear the wings off a fly. He frowned. What happens if the Guardian gets loose? I wasn't sure. Demon Reach had enormous power, an absolute dedication to purpose, and little sense of proportion. I had very little idea of its tactical capabilities. It might or might not be able to actually help in a fight. I was sort of hoping it wouldn't. Imagine trying to kill specific ants in a crowd of ants with a baseball bat. I was pretty sure that if Demon Reach ever started swinging at someone, I wanted to be over the horizon at the very least. In fact, I realized that was probably the problem here. Demon Reach existed on an epic scale. It was neither suited to nor capable of effectively dealing with beings of such relative insignificance. 
standing off a walker and a small army of outsiders had not been a huge problem for the island. But Maeve and Lily had slipped inside its guard. They and their personal attendants were sparrows attacking an eagle. The eagle was bigger and stronger and capable of killing any of them, and it didn't matter in the least. Not only that, but Demon Reach was a genius loci, a nature spirit. The Fae were intimately connected to nature on a level that no one had ever been able to fully understand. One could probably make an argument that Demon Reach was one of the Fae, or at least a very close neighbor. Either way, the mantles of the ladies of winter and summer would carry a measure of dominion and power over beings like Demon Reach. Clearly, they were not sovereign over the guardian spirit, because it was withstanding them. Just as clearly, they had something going for them, because it wasn't trying to crush them, either. I'm not sure, I answered. But the point here is that if we jump Maeve, Lily is going to be too busy keeping a lid on the Guardian to get involved. The two of us, Fix said, are going to take on all ten of them? Nah, I said. I take Maeve. You get the other nine. What if they don't cooperate? Chastise them. Fix snorted. That'll be quick, one way or the other. And it's going to mean war if the summer night assaults nobles of the winter court. Not at all, I said. They aren't nobles. They're outlaws. I just outlawed them by the authority invested in me and stuff. I also hereby declare us a joint task force. We're a task force? As of now, I said. Fix bobbed his head amiably. If we dance fast enough, maybe we can sell that. Then what? If we're both alive, we'll figure it out. We took a few more steps before Fix said, You can't take Maeve, wizard. Not in the shape you're in. Not even if she was alone. No, I said, I can't. But maybe the winter night could. Ever since I'd gotten out of my bed in my quarters in Arctis Tor, I'd felt the power of the winter mantle inside me and held it back. I'd felt the primal drives that were its power, the need to hunt, to fight, to protect territory, to kill. Winter's nature was beautiful violence, stark clarity, the most feral needs and animal desires and killer instinct pitted against the season of cold and death. The will and desire to fight, to live, even when there was no shelter, no warmth, no respite, no hope, and no help. I'd fought against that drive, repressed it, held it at bay. That savagery was never meant for a world of grocery stores and electric blankets and peaceable assembly. It was meant for times like this. So I let winter in, and everything changed. My weariness vanished, not because my body was no longer weary, but because my body was no longer important. Only my will. My fear vanished, too. Fear was for prey. Fear was for the things I was about to hunt. My doubts vanished as well. Doubt was for things that did not know their purpose, and I knew mine. This was a winter matter, a fairy matter, a family matter, and it was precisely correct that only beings of fairy resolve it. I knew exactly what I had to do. There was a throat that needed ripping. Harry? asked Fix. Uh, 
Are you okay? I looked aside at him. As hunting partners went, Fix didn't look like much, but I'd seen him in action before. He was no one to underestimate, and I needed him. Once I didn't, things might change, because he was on my island, and that wasn't something I could let slide. But for now, I could do worse than to have him at my side. I'm a little hungry, I said, and smiled. Here, don't need it. I tossed the knife to him, point first. He caught it deftly by the handle. I saw the minor shifts in shadow on his neck as his shoulders tensed up. Remember, you've got iron. I didn't sneer at him, because what would be the point? But I did roll the nail back and forth between my fingers and heard it scraping on ice. I looked down and found that ice had condensed out of the water in the air and formed over my fingertips. I put the nail between my teeth so that I could hold up my fingers. As I watched, icicles began to form, guided by raw instinct, stretching out from my fingertips. I flexed my fingers a few times and saw the edges form, the ice hard and razor sharp. Nice. I debated. Armor too? Too heavy. This needed to happen fast. Besides, I wouldn't want the armor to be in the way for what would come after. That was going to be the good part. Time to play, I said around the nail. I took four steps, building up to a run, and leapt into the air toward Maeve. Fifty feet, no problem. It was glorious, the freedom, the certainty, and I could not imagine what had made me so squeamish about embracing winter in the first place. Bad things kept happening to me. It was high fucking time I started happening to them. Maeve must have sensed something at the last instant, despite her focus on demon reach. I was a fraction of a second away before she moved with the serpentine quickness of the she, throwing herself to one side. My claws missed her throat by inches. They did slice off one of her dreadlocks, and it whirled through the air as I hit the ground, legs absorbing the shock as my feet dug into the muddy ground near the lighthouse. There was an instant of complete shock from Maeve's coterie, and I used it to slice at the redcap's eyes, just as Fix landed on the raw head's shoulders and overbore the creature, sending it toppling forward to the ground. I felt my claws hit. The redcap screamed and reeled away from most of the blow, darting back, brushing past one of the she from the botanic gardens behind him. The she had a blank, confused look on his face as he tried to fight his way out of the concentration of supporting Maeve in her suddenly interrupted spell. No time to think. Claws of bloody ice flashed at him, and I opened his throat to the windpipe. He went down with a choked scream, and I stepped on his chest to fling myself at the two behind him, one a twisted figure inside a droopy gray cloak and hood, the other a lean, gangling thing with the head of a boar, covered in tattoos and bone beads. I stomped a foot down onto the cloak, slammed my clawed hand into the body behind it, and ripped out something ropey and hot and slippery. The boar-headed thing tore at my body with its tusks, and I felt hot, distant pain on my ribs. I drove a foot up between its legs in a kick that lifted it six inches off the ground and took off an ear and half its face with my claws. I sensed Fix at my back and heard him grunt, Down! I dropped to my knees and bounced back up again. In the time I was down, his sword flicked out over my head, drove into the chest of the boar thing, and whistled out again, taking heart's blood with it. 
Then there was a roar, a sound that came from something truly enormous, and someone slammed a tree trunk into my lower back. It took me off my feet and sent silver pain through my body. I landed in a roll and came up to mostly steady feet, one hand supporting some of my weight, the other up in a defensive posture. It was the rawhead. Rawheads are parasites, creatures that assemble bodies for themselves out of the bone and blood of freshly dead beings. They were more common when every farm and village did some slaughtering each day, back before grocery stores and fast food. As I'd noted before, this one was enormous, bigger than a couple of large steers, twelve feet tall and weighing at least a ton. The cloak had been torn from it, and now it looked like a bizarre sculpture of bones of various creatures, drenched in fresh blood. It had the skull of something big, maybe a hippo or a rhino, and luminous lights danced in the empty eye sockets. It drew in a huge, wheezing breath and roared again. Fix was picking himself up off the ground, bounding up as if he hadn't been hurt at all. But the Red Cap and four other she were stalking toward him with weapons drawn. Fix faced them squarely, blade in hand, a small smile on his plain face. My, 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 Maeve said. She stepped around the leg of the rawhead into sight, giving me a frankly appraising stare. Who would have thought you would dirty up so well, wizard? I mean, the claws, the blood, the eyes. She shivered. It gets to me. I've always had a thing for bad boys. I smiled around the nail. Funny, because I've got something for you, too. Yeah, she asked and licked her lips. You finally gonna nail me, big guy? You've been so coy. I'm done teasing, I said. Maeve slipped both hands behind her back, arching her body, thrusting her chest toward me. It wasn't a particularly impressive chest, but it was well-formed and pale and lovely and hidden beneath entirely too much bikini for my taste. A snarl bubbled up out of my throat. That's right, Maeve said, her wide eyes unblinking. I know what you're feeling. The need to fight, to kill, to take, to fuck. She took a pair of slow steps toward me, making her hips shift back and forth. This is right. It's exactly what you should be feeling. I flexed the fingers of my free hand and prepared to strike. She just had to come a little closer. Can you imagine this all the time, wizard? Maeve purred. Steel began to ring out back where Fix was, but I ignored it. Two more steps. Can you imagine feeling this strong all the time? Can you imagine being so hungry? She took another step and another deep breath. And feeding that hunger, sating it, quenching it in flesh and screams. She slid her left hand out from behind her back and ran her palm slowly over her stomach and sighed. This flesh, I would not give it to you. I would fight, dare you to do your worst. You could unleash your every aching need, and that would be just the beginning. I was breathing hard now, though I hadn't been a moment before. 
My eyes had locked onto the interplay of muscle and skin over her vulnerable belly. The claws would tear through her gut so easily there. Or I could use my teeth. Or just my tongue. Sex and violence, Maeve purred. She had taken a couple more steps toward me, but I wasn't sure when or why it mattered. Hunger and need. Take me here on this ground. Don't give me pleasure, wizard. Just take. Let it out, the beast inside you. I wish you to. I dare you to. Her fingers popped the snap on the little shorts. Stop denying yourself. Stop thinking. This feels right. Hell yeah, it did. Maeve might have been one of the she and fast and have all kinds of magic powers, but she wasn't stronger than me. Once I took her to the ground, I could do as I pleased with her. I felt my mouth water. Some might have come out of one corner. Maeve stepped closer and breathed. You came for my throat, didn't you? She let her head tilt bonelessly to one side and slid her hand up her lithe body to push her hair back and away from her neck. Her hips were making small, slow shifts of her weight, a constant distraction. Her throat was lean and lovely. Here it is. Come to me, my knight. It's all right. Let it out, and I will make everything worth it. Her throat. I had wanted it for something, I thought. But now I just wanted. That would be how to do it. Set my teeth on her throat while I took her. If she struggled or didn't struggle enough, I would be able to start ripping my way toward the blood. This is how it is supposed to be, Maeve purred. Knight and lady together, fucking like animals, taking what we please. Her mouth turned up into a smile. I thought you'd never let it in, let it in deep where I could touch. Her lovely face took on a feigned youthful innocence. But I can touch it now, can't I? I growled. I'd forgotten how to do whatever that other thing was. All I could think about was the need, claim her as a mate, take whatever I pleased from her, make her mine. Except, wait. A fluttering surge of pure terror went through me, and it was energy enough to let me rip the winter from my thoughts to push it back. It didn't want to go. It fought me every inch of the way, howling, filled with raw lust for flesh and for blood. My ribs suddenly ached. My head spun a little. I suddenly needed that hand on the ground to keep my balance. Maeve saw it the second I regained control. Her eyelids lowered, almost closed, and she breathed. Ah, <sighs> so close. But perhaps there is still time. Is that your staff, wizard, or are you just happy to see me? I bared my teeth and said, Maeve. This is perfect, she said. In one night, I'm going to unleash the sleepers, slay a starborn, put an end to this troublesome mortal city, and begin a war between summer and winter.
by the time the real assault on the gates begins, winter and summer will be hunting one another in the night. And be so busy gouging out one another's eyes that they'll never see what is coming. All thanks to me. And you, of course. I couldn't have done this at all without you. She leaned a little closer as she spoke that last, and I ripped at her throat with my ice claws. I was exhausted, and it was slow, entirely lacking in the focused power and precision I'd felt under the influence of winter. She bobbed her head back a fraction of an inch, and the swipe missed and sent me down into the dirt. Maeve let out a little peal of laughter and clapped her hands. Then she flicked a couple of fingers negligently toward me and said to the rawhead, Tear him to pieces. The rawhead took two lumbering steps forward and reached down toward me with bony, bloody claws. But before he could grab me, there was a rush of footsteps, and a four-legged form, consisting entirely of what looked like mud, slammed into its rearmost leg. The mud creature hit the rawhead hard. The power of its impact cracked bones and blew the leg out from beneath the rawhead. It bellowed a ground-shaking roar. A ton of bloody bones fell, and the mud creature, white teeth flashing, kept after it. Snarling and a nimbus of blue light gathered around its jaws. I looked up to see more mud creatures rushing up the hill, though the others were bipedal of various sizes and shapes. The first one to reach me drew a steel sword from a muddy scabbard and went after the raw head as it fell, Falcata being used with the brutal power strikes normally employed with a freaking axe. Silver eyes flashed in the blobby, mud-covered face. Thomas. Maeve snarled and stepped toward me, bringing her right hand out from behind her back. She gripped a tiny little automatic in her fingers, though God only knew where she'd been concealing it. She half-lifted it, but before she could shoot, gunshots rang out, sharp and clear. One of them hit the ground maybe three feet away, and Maeve bolted aside, vanishing behind a veil as she went. The smallest mud figure came to my side, lowering a mud-covered P-90. She hooked a little hand beneath one of my arms, her blue eyes reddened and blinking rapidly. With surprising strength, she dragged me back from the rawhead while Thomas and Mouse fought it. The others hurried up to join Karen, and while Karen covered us, Muddy Mac got a shoulder underneath me and with a grunt of effort picked me up in a fireman's carry. Come on, Karen said. The cottage. While she kept her P-90 at the ready and Mac toted me, the other two mud figures, Sarissa and Justine, hurried along beside us. A moment later, Mac dumped me gently, more or less, onto the floor of the cottage. Karen kept her gun pointed at the door. Karen! I managed to gasp. Her eyes didn't waver from the door. Got tired of waiting on you. I'm here. I spit the nail out of my mouth and into my hand. How? I asked. Then I eyed them all and said, Mud? You covered yourselves in mud. Everywhere, she confirmed. Nostrils, eyes, ears, everywhere the light could touch. We figured out that if you completely covered something, it could make it through that wall. God, I'm going to shower for a week. Oh, that was clever. The defense mechanism wasn't a thinking being, capable of making judgment calls. It was simply a machine, albeit one made of magic 
a combination detector and bug zapper. By covering themselves with mud, they tricked it into thinking they were of the island. Outside the cottage, the raw head bellowed, and Mouse's snarling battle bark rang out defiantly. This is insane, Sarissa breathed. The stones of the cottage have protections on them, I said. Not sure how well they work, but they should help. I looked back at Karen. Where's Molly? Out there, playing invisible, girl. There was the sound of a heavy impact, and Mouse let out a terrible, pained-sounding yelp. Then it was quiet. Karen's breathing started coming faster. She resettled her grip on the weapon. Oh, God, Sarissa said. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. I would have gotten terrified, too, but I was just too tired for it to stick. There was no warning, nothing at all. The rawhead shoved its arm into the cottage, seized Karen by the gun, and hauled her out. The weapon barked several times as she went. And then it got quiet again. We have to run, Sarissa said in a whisper. Harry, please, we should run. Open a way into the never-never. Get us out of here. I've got a feeling we wouldn't like the part of the never-never this place borders, I said. Oh, Sir Knight, Maeve called from outside. Come out, come out, wherever you are, you and everyone with you. Or I'm going to start playing with your friends. Hey, why don't you come in here, Maeve? I called back. We'll talk about it. I waited for an answer. I got one a minute later. Karen let out a pained, gasping sound. Damn it, I muttered. Then I started the climb to my feet again. Come on. What? Sarissa asked. No, I can't go out there. You're about to, I said quietly. Mac? We go out, Mac said. She'll kill us. If we don't, she'll kill us anyway, starting with Karen, I said quietly. Maeve likes hurting people. Maybe we can string her along until... Until what? Sarissa asked. Sunrise? That's hours away. Justine put her hand on Sarissa's shoulder. But we'll stay alive a little longer. Where there's life, there's hope. You don't understand, Sarissa said. Not for me, not for me. Karen let out another gasp of pain, and I ground my teeth. Sarissa, I said, we don't have a choice. Lily just about roasted the top off the hill in a moment of peak. Maeve can do worse. If we stay in here, she will. Die now, or be tortured to death in a few hours, she said. Those are our choices? We buy time, I said. We buy time so that I can think and maybe figure some way for us to get out of this clusterfuck. Now get up, or so help me, I'll carry you out there. A flash of anger went over Sarissa's eyes, but she got up. All right, Maeve, I called. You win. We're coming out. I held up my hands, palms out, and walked out of the meager makeshift protection of the ruined cottage. Chapter 51 Maeve was enjoying her victory tremendously. She stood on a pile of stone fallen from the lighthouse, next to the summer lady and her coterie, who were still focused upon restraining demon reach. On the ground in front of her lay Thomas, Karen, and Mouse. Mouse had been hog-tied and his muzzle held shut with thick bands of what looked like black ice. 
He wasn't struggling, but his deep, dark eyes were tracking everyone who moved. Karen sat with her hands tied behind her back, scowling so ferociously that I could see the expression even through the mud. And my brother lay on the ground, bound up like Mouse was, but it didn't look like he was conscious. The raw head loomed over them, minus one of its arms. The arm lay over on the ground, a jumble of brittle, cracked bones held together by withered strands of some kind of reddish fiber. The raw head didn't have an expression to read, but I thought the glow of its eyes looked sullen and satisfied. The red cap was standing off to one side. One side of his face was a bloody mess, and he had only one good eye now. He was holding Karen's P90 casually, with much of the mud knocked off of it. Next to him, two of the she held Fix's arms behind his back. The summer night had a bruise forming on the entire left side of his skull. But Molly was not visible. So, I might have been dealt a bad hand, but I still had a hole card out there somewhere. Maeve hopped down from the fallen stones, still holding that little automatic in her hand and smiling widely. You made it interesting, Dresden, I'll give you that. Your merry little band is just so... She kicked Karen in the small of the back, drawing nothing but a hard exhale. Feisty. She eyed the people standing with me. Now, let's see. Who do we have here? Maeve made a gesture with one hand, and the air suddenly felt thick. Mud started plopping off of everyone covered in it, as if it had begun to rain again and gotten wetter and runnier. Let's see, let's see, she murmured. Ah, the bartender. Irony there. Getting a good view, are you? Mac stared at Maeve without speaking. Please allow me to make sure you don't get bored, Maeve said, and shot him in the stomach. Mac grunted and rocked back onto his heels. He stared at Maeve, his expression completely impassive. Then he exhaled a groan and fell to one knee. Oh, Maeve said, her eyes glittering. That just never gets old. Justine made a quiet sound and went to Mac's side. Maeve's eyes fastened on her. And the vampire's crumpet. Luscious little thing, aren't you? And so close to Lady Wraith. You and I are going to have a long talk after this, darling. I just know you're going to start to see things my way. Justine didn't look at Maeve and didn't answer. She didn't look frightened, just concerned for Mac. Maybe because Justine was not the most balanced and danger-aware person I knew. Or maybe her poker face was just way better than mine. Maeve's eyes stopped on the last person with me, and her smile became positively vulpine. Well, well, well. Sweet little Sarissa. Isn't this luscious? There's nothing I have that you don't want to ruin, is there? Maeve, Sarissa said. She didn't seem frightened either, just tired. Maeve, for God's sake, how many times have we had this talk? And yet you keep spoiling things for me. Sarissa rolled her eyes and gave a helpless little lift and fall of her hands. Maeve, what could I possibly have ruined for you? Did finally moving out of that studio apartment destroy your life? Did getting my nursing degree somehow diminish your power? 
Did I steal some boyfriend of yours that you accidentally left breathing after the first night? It always goes back to that, doesn't it? Maeve said, her tone waspish. How important you think men are. And here you are trying to impress Mother by betting this one. It was work, Maeve. Therapy. I could see how therapeutic that dress was at his party. My dress? You were wearing rhinestones and nothing else. Maeve's face contorted in rage. They were diamonds. Karen looked back and forth between them with an expression of startled recognition. Harry, she said quietly. Yeah, I got it, I said. I turned to Sarissa, who looked younger than Molly. Mab's BFF, huh? I asked her. You said that, not me, she said quickly. Right, I said. You're just a young, single, rehabilitative health professional. This decade, sneered Maeve. What was it last time? Mathematics? You were going to describe the universe or some such? And before that, what was it? Environmental science? Did you save the Earth, Sarissa? And before that, an actress? You thought you could create art. Which soap opera was it again? It doesn't matter, Sarissa said. She saw me staring at her and said, It was before your time. I blinked. What? She looked embarrassed. I told you I was older than I looked. Finally, I realize who you remind me of. I sighed, looking back and forth between Sarissa and Maeve. It must have been the scrubs that threw me off. Maeve is always dressed like a stripper, and she's always had piercings and the club lighting and the crazy Rasta hair. I looked back and forth between the two. Hell's bells, you're identical twins. Not identical twins, they both said at exactly the same time, in exactly the same tone of outrage. They broke off to glare at each other. How does that work, exactly? I asked. I was curious, but it was also an effort to buy time. I've yet to meet a megalomaniac who doesn't love talking about him or herself, if you give them half a chance, especially the non-mortal ones. To them, a few minutes of chat in several centuries of life is nothing, and they let things build up inside them for decades at a time. You two were born changelings, weren't you? What happened? I chose to be she. Maeve spat. And you chose humanity, I asked Sarissa. Sarissa shrugged a shoulder and looked away. Ha! Maeve spat. No, she never chose at all. Just remained between worlds, never making anything of herself, never committing to anything. Maeve, Sarissa said quietly, don't. Just floating along, pretty and empty and bored. Maeve went on in a sweet, poisonous tone, unnoticed, unremarkable. Maeve, said Lily in a harsh voice, looking up from where she stood. The summer lady kept a hand extended toward Demon Reach, and her face was covered in sweat. I can't hold it alone all night. Hurry. Maeve whirled toward Lily, stamping her foot on the ground. This is my night. Do not rush me, you stupid cow. Always so charming, Sarissa noted. Maeve turned back to Sarissa, and her right arm, the one holding the gun, twitched several times. Oh, keep it up, darling. See what happens. You aren't going to let me live anyway, Maeve, Sarissa said. I'm not stupid. And I am not blind, Maeve spat back. 
Do you think I did not know about all the time she has been spending with you? All the intimate talk, the activity together? Do you think I don't know what it means? She's doing with you what she always meant to do with you, using you as a spare, preparing you as the vessel for the mantle, preparing my replacement, as if I were a broken piece of a machine. Sarissa looked pale and nodded slowly. Maeve, she said, her voice very soft. You're... you're sick. You've got to know that. Maeve stopped, tilting her head, and her hair covered most of her face. Somewhere, you have to realize it, she wants to help you. She cares, in her way, Maeve. Maeve moved her left arm alone, pointing a finger straight at me. Yes, I can see how much she cared. It isn't too late, Sarissa said. You know how she lays her plans. She prepares for everything, but it doesn't have to happen that way. The Lananshi was sick and Mother helped her. But her power alone isn't enough to heal you. You have to want it, Maeve. You have to want to be healed. Maeve quivered where she stood for a moment, like a slender tree placed under increasing strain. We need the Winter Lady now, Sarissa said. We need you, Maeve. You're a vicious goddamn lunatic, and we need you back. Maeve asked in a very small voice. Does she talk about me? Sarissa was silent. She swallowed. Maeve said, her voice harsher, Does she talk about me? Sarissa lifted her chin and shook her head. She won't say your name, but I know she fears for you. You know that she never lets things show. It's how she's always been. Maeve shuddered. Then she lifted her head and stared venomously at Sarissa. I am strong, Sarissa, stronger than I have ever been, here, now, stronger than she is. Her lips quivered and twitched back from her teeth into a hideous mockery of a smile. Why should I want to be healed of that? She cut loose with one of her psychotic laughs again. I am about to unmake every precious thing she ever valued, more than her own blood, her own children. And where is she? Maeve stuck her arms out and spun around in a pirouette. Her voice became pure vitriol. Where? I have closed the circle of this place, and she may not enter. Of course, these stupid primates sussed out a way through it, but she... The queen of air and darkness could not possibly stoop to such a thing. Not even if it costs her the lives of her daughter and the mortal world, too. Oh, Maeve, Sarissa said, her voice thick with compassion and something like resignation. Where is she, Sarissa? Maeve demanded. There were tears on her cheeks, freezing into little white streaks, forming white frost on her eyelashes. Where is her love? Where is her fury? Where is her anything? While that drama was going on, I thought furiously. I thought about the mighty spirit who was my ally, who was being held immobile and impotent. I thought about the abilities of all my allies and how they might change the current situation if they weren't all incapacitated. Molly was the only one at liberty, and she had worn herself out over the lake. 
She wouldn't have much left in her. If she appeared now, the Fae would defeat her handily. She couldn't change this situation alone. Someone would have to set things into motion, give her some chaos to work with. I just didn't have much chaos left in me. I was bone-tired, and we needed a game-changer. The mantle of the winter night represented a source of power, true, but Maeve had damn near talked me into joining her team when I'd let it have free reign. I wasn't going to help anyone if I let myself give in to my inner psycho-predator. If we weren't all inside the stupid circle, at least I could send out a message, a psychic warning. I was sure I could get it to my grandfather, to Elaine, and maybe to Warden Lucio. But while I was sure a mud coating could get us out of the circle, there was no way the Fae would give us time to coat ourselves and do it. We were effectively trapped in the circle until sunrise, just like a being summoned from the Never-Nev- Wait a minute. Circles could be used for several different things. They could be used to focus the energy of a spell, shielding it from other energies. They could be used to cut off energy flows, to contain or discorporate a native being of the Never-Never. And if you were a mortal, a genuine native of the really real world, they could be used for one thing more. Summoning. The hilltop was one enormous circle, one enormous summoning circle. She is not here, Maeve was ranting. She sends her hand to deal with me? So be it. Let me send her a message in reply. The little automatic swiveled toward my head. I shouted as swiftly as I could, putting whatever will I had left into the shortest and most elemental summons there is. Mab! 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 I summon thee! Chapter 52 It's impossible to know how something is going to arrive when you summon it. Sometimes it's huge and dramatic, like it was with Titania. Sometimes they come in a burst of thunder or flame. Once this thing I'd summoned arrived in a shower of rotting meat, and it took me a month to get the smell out of my old lab. Less often they simply appear, like a slideshow image suddenly projected on the wall, drama-free. Mab came in a bell tone of sudden, awful, absolute silence. There was a flash, not of light, but of sudden snow, of frost that suddenly blanketed everything on the hilltop and gathered thick on my eyelashes. I reached up a hand to flick the snowflakes out of my eyes, and when I lowered it, Mab was there again in her crow-black dress with her midnight eyes and ebon hair floating three feet off the ground. The frost was spreading from her, covering the hilltop, and the temperature dropped by twenty degrees. In the same instant, everything on the hilltop ceased moving. There was no wind. There were no fitful drops of rain, just pure, brittle, crystalline silence and a sudden bleak, black presence that made me feel like hiding behind something very quietly. Mab's gaze took in the hilltop at a glance and stopped on Lily and her supporting coterie. Mab's left eye twitched once, and she spoke in a low, dreadfully precise voice. Cease this rudeness at once. Lily suddenly stared at Mab with wide eyes, like a teenager who had been walked in upon while making out in the living room. 
The confidence of her stance faltered, and she abruptly lowered her hand. There was a sigh, as of completed labor from her crew. I checked Demon Reach. The Guardian Spirit had ceased to look slow-motion windblown, and simply stood in the opening to the lighthouse, motionless. Lily stared at Mab for a few seconds. Then she lifted her chin in defiance and took a few steps, until she stood shoulder to shoulder with Maeve. Mab made a low, disgusted sound and turned to face me. I have heeded your summons, yet I would not enter this domain unless specifically bidden. Have I your permission to do so? Yes, I said. Yes, you do. Mab nodded her head slightly and descended to the ground. From me, she turned to Demon Reach. I thank you for your patience and your assistance in this matter. You could have reacted differently, but chose not to. I am aware of the decision. It will not be forgotten. Demon Reach bowed its head, barely, a gesture of acknowledgment, not cooperation or compliance. Once she had seen that, something seemed to ease out of Mab. It was hard to say what gave me that impression, yet I had the same sense of relief I would have felt upon seeing someone remove his hand from the grip of a firearm. Mab turned back to me and eyed me up and down. She quirked one eyebrow, very slightly, somehow conveying layers of disapproval toward multiple aspects of my appearance, conduct, and situation, and said, Finally. There's been a lot on my mind, I replied. It seems unlikely that your cares will lighten, Queen Mab replied. Improve your mind. I was going to say something smart-ass, but said mind noted that maybe I could wait until my bacon was entirely out of the fire before I did. I decided to pay attention to my mind and bowed my head in Mab's direction instead. I felt like I'd gotten a little smarter already. Baby steps. Then Mab turned to Maeve. The Winter Lady faced the Queen of Air and Darkness with cold fury in her eyes and a smile on her lips. So, Maeve said, you come in black. You come as a judge. But then you always did that with me. But it's just a game. How a game? Mab asked. You have already judged, passed sentence, and dispatched your executioner. You have duties. You have neglected them. What did you expect? From you, Maeve said bitterly, nothing. Nothing is precisely what I have done, Mab said, for too long. Yet to lose you presents a danger of its own. I would prefer it if you allowed me to assist you to return to your duties. I'm sure you would, Maeve sneered. I'm sure you would enjoy torturing me to the brink of sanity to make me a good little automaton again. Mab's reply was a second slower coming than it should have been. No, Maeve. Maeve ground her teeth. No one controls Maeve. Frost formed on Mab's soot-black lashes. Oh, child. The words had weight to them and finality, like the lid to a coffin. I will never be your good little hunting falcon again. Maeve continued. I will never bow my knee to anyone again. 
especially not to a jealous hag who envies everything she sees in me. Envy? Mab asked. Maeve cut loose with another one of those lithium-laced laughs. Envy! The great and mighty Mab, envious of her little girl, because I have something you will never have, mother. And what is that? Mab asked. Choice! Maeve snarled. Stop! Mab snapped, but not in time. Maeve bent her elbow to point her little gun casually across her body and, without looking, put a bullet into Lily's left temple. No! Fix screamed, suddenly struggling against the she holding him. Lily froze into absolute stillness for a second, her beautiful face confused. Then she fell like the petal of a dying flower. Lily! Fix screamed, his face contorted with agony. He fought wildly, though he couldn't escape, lunging toward Maeve, paying no attention whatsoever to his captors. For their part, winter and summer fay alike seemed stunned into near paralysis, eyes locked onto Lily's fallen form. Mab stared at Lily for a long second, her eyes wide with an echo of the same shock. What have you done? Maeve threw back her head and howled, mocking triumphant laughter, lifting her hands into the air. Did you think I did not know why you prepared Sarissa, hag? She half sang. You wrought her into a vessel of fairy. Rejoice, thy will be done. I didn't know what the hell she was talking about for a second. But then I saw it. Fire flickered to life over the late summer lady. It did not consume Lily. Rather, it gathered itself into green and cold light, a shape that vaguely mirrored Lily's own, arms spread out as she lay prostrate upon the frost-covered earth. Then, with a gathering shriek, the fire suddenly condensed into a form, the shape of something that looked like an eagle or a large hawk. Blinding light spread over the hilltop, and the hawk suddenly flashed from Lily's fallen form directly into Sarissa. Sarissa's eyes widened in horror, and she lifted her arms in an instinctive defensive gesture. The hawk-shaped summer fire, the mantle of the summer lady, plunged through Sarissa's upraised arms and into her chest at the heart. Her body arched into a bow. She let out a scream, and green and gold light shone from her opened mouth, like a spotlight, throwing fresh, sharp shadows across the hilltop. Then her scream faded into a weeping, gurgling moan, and she fell to the earth, body curling into a shuddering fetal position. Mantle passed, Maeve tittered. Nearest vessel filled. The seasons turn and turn and turn. Mab's eyes were wide as she stared at Maeve. Oh, oh, Maeve said, her body twisting into a spontaneous little dance of pure glee. You never saw that coming, did you, Mother? It never even occurred to you, did it? Her own eyes widened in lunatic intensity. And how will you slay me now? Whither would my mantle go? Where is the nearest vessel now? Some hapless mortal, perhaps, ignorant of its true nature? The instrument of some foe of yours, in alliance with me, ready to steal away the mantle and leave you vulnerable? Maeve giggled. I can play chess too, mother. Better now than ever you could. 
and I am now less a liability to you alive than dead. You do not understand what you have done, Mab said quietly. I know exactly what I have done, Maeve snarled. I have beaten you. This was never about the sleepers or this accursed isle or the lives of mortal insects. This was about beating you, you hidebound hag. About using your own games against you. Kill me now and you risk destroying the balance of winter and summer forever, throwing all into chaos. Sarissa lay on the ground, moaning. And it was about taking her away from you, Maeve gloated. How many mortal caterwauls or sporting events will the Winter Queen attend with the Summer Lady? And every time you think of her, you remember her, you will know that I took her from you. Maeve's black eyes went to Sarissa for a moment. The blame for this lies with me, Mab said quietly. I cared too much. I realized something then in that moment when Mab spoke. She wasn't reacting as she should have been. Cold rage, seething anger, megalomaniacal outrage. Any of those would have been something I would have considered utterly within her character. But there was none of that in her voice or face. Just regret and resolution. Mab knew something, something Maeve didn't. Remember that when this world is in ashes, mother, Maeve said, for you cannot risk my death this night, and I will not lift a finger to aid you in the night to come. Without the winter lady's power, your downfall is simply a matter of time, and not much of that. After this night, you will not see me again. Yes, Mab said, though to which statement was unclear. I have choice, mother, while you will be destroyed in your shackles, Maeve said. You will die, and I will have freedom at last. To fulfill one's purpose is not to be a slave, my daughter, Mab said. And you are not free, child, any more than a knife is free, because it leaves its sheath and is thrust into a corpse. Choice is power! Maeve spat in reply. Shall I make more choices this night to demonstrate? She lifted the little pistol again and pointed it at me. Karen drew a sharp breath, and I suddenly understood what was happening. I understood what Mab knew that Maeve didn't. Sarissa wasn't the only fairy vessel on the hilltop. She was simply the one Maeve had been meant to see. There was one other person there who had been spending time with a powerful fay, who had a relationship with one that was deeper and more significant than a casual or formal acquaintance, whose life had been methodically, deliberately, and covertly reshaped for the purpose, who had been extensively prepared by one of the she. Maeve, I said in a panic, don't. You're killing yourself. You haven't won. You just can't see it. Maeve cackled in delight. Can't I? Being able to choose to tell lies isn't a freaking superpower, Maeve, I said. Because it means you can always make the wrong choice. It means you can lie to yourself. Maeve's smile turned positively sexual, her eyes bright and shining. Two plus two is five, 
she said, and rotated the gun sideways, the barrel still pointed at my eye. Mab moved her little finger. Karen's hands flew out behind her back in a shower of broken chips of black ice. She tore her little holdout gun from a concealed ankle holster. No! I shouted. Two shots rang out, almost simultaneously. Something hissed spitefully past my ear. A neat, round, black hole appeared just to the side of Maeve's nose, at the fine line of her cheekbone. Maeve blinked twice. Her face fell into what was almost precisely the same expression of confusion Lily's had. A trickle of blood ran from the hole. And then she fell, like an icicle in a warm sunbeam. Damn it, no, I breathed. Deep blue fire gathered over the fallen winter lady. It coalesced with an ugly howl into the outline of a serpent, which coiled and then lashed out in a strike that carried its blazing form fifteen feet to the nearest corner of the ruined cottage, where Molly, behind her veil, had been crouched and waiting for a chance to aid me. The serpent of winter cold plunged into her chest, shattering her veil as it struck and my apprentice's expression was twisted in startled horror. She didn't even have time to flinch. It struck, and she fell back against the side of the cottage, her legs buckling as if the muscles in them had forgotten how to move. Molly looked up at me, her expression bewildered, confused, and she barely managed to gasp out, Harry? And then she, too, collapsed to the ground, shuddering and unconscious. Oh. God, I breathed. Oh, God. Molly. Chapter 53 Two queens of fairy lay dead. Long live the queens. Everyone was shocked, still. I turned to the retinues of the fallen queens and said, Let Fix go. Now. They released the smaller man, and he went at once to Lily's side, his face still wrenched with grief. You will put down anything you took from my friends, I told the Fay in a level voice. Then you will withdraw as far down the hill as the wall will allow. If I see any of you try anything violent, you will never leave this island. Am I understood? I didn't look like much, but Mab was looming right over one of my shoulders and Demon Reach over the other, so they took me seriously, even the rawhead. They all moved away, breaking into two groups as they went. Harry, Karen said, what just happened? Is Molly all right? I stared hard at Mab. I don't know, I said to Karen. Can you and Justine get them both into the cottage? Just... Make sure they don't swallow their own tongues or something. I looked over at Justine. How are you doing, Mac? Mac gave me a weary, shaky thumbs up. Justine looked up from tending to him. I don't think there's too much bleeding, but we need to get this dirt washed off of him. There's a pump by the door to the cottage, I said. I looked around and frowned at Demon Reach. Hey, make yourself useful and help him carry the wounded inside. Demon Reach eyed me. But it did so, lumbering forward to pick Molly and then Sarissa up, very carefully, the way a person would carry an infant, one in each arm. Then it walked over to the cottage, carrying them. Karen, meanwhile, went to Justine, 
and between the two of them they were able to get Mac on his feet and hobbling into the cottage. I went and managed to drag Thomas over my shoulder. I toted his unconscious form to the cottage, too, and told Mouse, Stay with him, boy. Mouse made a distressed noise and looked over at Molly. He sat down on the floor halfway between the two of them and looked back and forth. Just have to have a little camp out until dawn, I said. We'll take care of them. Mouse sighed. Harry, Karen began. Gun, I said quietly and held out a hand. She blinked at me, but she checked it, engaged the safety, and handed it over. Stay here, I said, moving toward the door. Harry, what are you— Stay here, I snarled, furious. I took the safety off and left the cottage to stalk over to Mab. As I crossed to her, her black gown and hair became storm-cloud gray, then silver, then white again. Yes, my knight, she asked me. I started walking around the base of the tower away from the cottage. Could you please come this way? She arched a brow but did, moving over the ground with the same approximate weight as moonlight. I walked until we were out of sight of the cottage and the fade down the hill. Then I thumbed back the hammer on the little gun, spun, and put the barrel against Mab's forehead. Mab stopped and regarded me with luminous, unblinking eyes. What is the meaning of this? It's still Halloween, I said, shaking with exhaustion and rage. And I am in no mood for games. I want answers. I have turned villages to stone for gestures less insulting than this one, Mab said in a level tone. But I am your guest here and you are clearly overwrought. You're goddamn right I'm overwrought, I growled. You set me up. That's one thing. I walked into it with open eyes. I get it, and I'll deal with it. But you set Molly up. Give me one good reason not to put a bullet through your head right now. First, Mab said, because you would not survive to finish pulling the trigger. But as threatening your life has never been a successful way to pierce your skull... I will provide you with a second. Miss Carpenter will have difficulty enough learning to cope with a lady's mantle without you handing her mine as well, don't you think? Right. I hadn't thought about that part. But I wasn't feeling terribly rational. Why? I demanded. Why did you do it to her? It was not my intention for her to replace Maeve, Mab said. Frankly, I would have considered her a better candidate for Summer. You still haven't told me why, I said. I meant Sarissa to take Maeve's place, Mab said. But one does not place all one's hopes with any one place, person, or plan. Like chess, the superior player does not plan to accomplish a single gambit, a particular entrapment. She establishes her pieces so that regardless of what her enemy does, she has forces ready to respond, to adapt, and to destroy. Molly was made ready as a contingency. In case something happened to your own daughter, I asked. Something had already happened to my daughter, Mab said. It was my intention to make Sarissa ready for her new role, much as I made you ready for yours. That's why you exposed her to all those things alongside me? I have no use for weakness, wizard. The situation here developed in a way I did not expect. Molly had originally been positioned with another purpose in mind, but her presence made it possible to defeat the adversary's gambit. Positioned, I spat. 
Gambit. Is that what Molly is to you? A pawn? No, Mab said calmly. Not anymore. That rocked my head back as surely as if she'd punched me in the nose. I felt a little bit dizzy. I lowered the gun. She's a kid, I said tiredly. She had her whole life ahead of her, and you did this to her. Maeve was always overly dramatic, but in this instance she was quite correct. I could not risk killing her if I did not have a vessel on hand to receive her mantle, and the lack of the Winter Lady's strength would have been critical. It is one of the better plays the adversary has made. You don't get it, do you? I said. I do not, she said. I do not see how what I have done is substantially different from what you have been doing for many years. What? I asked. I gave her power, she said, as if explaining something simple to a child. That is not what I've been doing, I spat. Is it not? Mab asked. Have I misunderstood? First, you captured her imagination and affection as an associate of her father's. You made her curious about what you could do and nurtured that curiosity with silence. Then, when she went to explore the art, you elected not to interfere until such time as she found herself in dire straits, at which point your aid placed her deep within your obligation. You used that and her emotional attachment to you to plant and reap a follower who was talented, loyal, and in your debt. It was actually very well done. I stood there with my mouth open for a second. That... that isn't... what I did. Mab leaned closer to me and said, That is precisely what you did. The only thing you did not do is admit to yourself that you were doing it, which is why you never availed yourself of her charms. You told yourself lovely, idealistic lies and you had a powerful, talented, loyal girl willing to give her life for yours, who also had nowhere else to turn for help. As far as your career as a mentor goes, you grew into much the same image as Dumorne. That... that isn't what I did, I repeated harder. What you're doing to her will change her. Did she not change after you began to indoctrinate her? Mab asked. You were perhaps too soft on her during her training, but had she not already begun to become a different person? A person she chose to be, I said. Did she choose to be born with her gift for the art? Did she choose to become someone so sensitive that she can hardly remain in a crowded room? I did not do that to her. You did. I ground my teeth. Consider, Mab said that I have done something for her that you never could have. What's that, exactly? I have put her beyond the reach of the White Council and their wardens, Mab said again, as if explaining something to an idiot. While they might howl and lecture as much as they wish about an apprentice wizard, they can do nothing at all to the Winter Lady. I took a deep breath. That was also true. You've made her life so much harder, I said quietly. I wasn't saying it to Mab, really. I was just sounding out loud the chain of argument in my head. But so have I, especially after Chichen Itza. You trusted her with your mind and your life, Mab said. 
I took that as a statement of confidence in her abilities. You will be working frequently with the Winter Lady. It seemed to me that this would be a most appropriate match. And her duties? I asked. What is the purpose of the Winter Lady? That is for her to know, Mab said. Know this, my knight. Had I not considered her an excellent candidate, I would never have had her prepared. She has the basic skills she will need to master the power of the mantle, especially if one she trusts is there to advise and reassure her. You should have spoken to me about this first, I said. You should have spoken to her. Mab moved so quickly that I literally never saw it. The gun was suddenly, simply gone from my hand and was being pushed into my face, in exactly the same spot where Maeve had been shot. I, Mab said coolly, am not your servant, Dresden. You are mine. Demon Reach, I said. If our guest pulls that trigger, take her below and keep her there. The guardian spirit's vast shadow fell over us, even though there was nothing actually casting it, and Mab's eyes widened. Servant, I said. I don't like that word. I suggest that you consider where you stand and choose a different term, my queen. And you will be gentle with that girl, or so help me, I will make you regret it. Mab's mouth quirked very slightly, her eyes more so. She looked up at me almost fondly, exhaled, and said, Finally, a night worth the trouble. She lowered the gun and calmly passed it back to me. I took it from her. Have you any other questions? she asked. I frowned, thinking. Yeah, actually. Someone called Thomas and told him to be ready at the boat when I first got back to town. Do you know anything about that? I arranged it, of course, Mab said in a voice that sounded exactly like Molly's. As a courtesy to the Ancient One, just before your party started. At that, I shuddered. Molly's voice coming from that inhumanly cold face was just wrong. Lily, I said. She waved her hand over my chest, as if she could detect the influence of the adversary. Mab's lips pressed into a firm line. Yes? Could she? I asked. Of course not, Mab said. Were it so simple a task, the adversary would be no threat. Not even the gatekeeper at the focus of his power can be absolutely certain. Then why would she think she could? I asked. Then I answered my own question. Because Maeve led her to believe that she could. All Maeve had to do was lie, and maybe sacrifice a couple of the adversary's pawns to make it seem real. Then she could have Lily wave her hands at her and prove to her that Maeve was clean of any taint. And Lily wasn't experienced enough to know any better. After that, Lily would have bought just about anything Maeve was selling. Obviously, Mab said, her tone mildly acidic. Have you any questions you cannot answer for yourself? I clenched my jaw and relaxed it a couple of times. Then I asked, Was it hard for you, tonight? Hard? Mab asked. She was your daughter, I said. Mab became very silent and very still. She considered the ground around us and paced up and down a bit, 
slowly, frowning, as if trying to remember the lyrics of a song from her childhood. Finally, she became still again, closing her eyes. Even tonight, with everything going to hell, you couldn't hurt her, I said quietly. Mab opened her eyes and stared down through a gap in the trees at the vast waters of Lake Michigan. A few years back, you got angry. So angry that when you spoke, it made people bleed from the ears. That was why. Because you figured out that the adversary had taken Maeve, and it hurt to know that the adversary had gotten to her. It was the knife, Mab said. Knife? Morgana's Othame, Mab said in a neutral tone, but her eyes were far away. The one given her by the Red Court at Bianca's masquerade. That was how the Lananchi was tainted, and your godmother spread it to Maeve before I could set it right. Oh, I said, I'd been at that party. Mab turned to me abruptly and said, I would lay them to rest upon the island, the fallen ladies, if that does not offend you. It doesn't, I said, but check with the island. I shall. Please excuse me. She turned and began walking away. You didn't answer my question, I said. She stopped, her back straight. Was it hard for you to kill Maeve? Mab did not turn around. When she spoke, her voice had something in it I had never heard there before and never heard again. Uncertainty. Vulnerability. I was mortal once, you know, she said very quietly. And then she kept walking toward her daughter's body while I stared angrily, sadly, thoughtfully after her. The rest of the night passed without anyone getting killed. I sat down with my back against the outside wall of the cottage to keep an eye on my guests down the hill, but when I blinked a few seconds later, my eyes stuck shut and then didn't open again until I heard, distantly, a bird twittering. Footsteps came crunching up the hill, and I opened my eyes to see Kringle approaching. His red cloak and gleaming mail were stained with black ichor. The hilt of his sword was simply missing a chunk as if it had been bitten away, and his mouth was set in a wide, pleased smile. Dresden, he said calmly. Kringle. Long night? Long day, I said. Someone during the night had covered me with an old woolen army surplus blanket that had been in a plastic storage box in the cottage. I eyed him. Have fun? A low, warm rumble of a laugh bubbled in his chest. Very much so. If I don't get into a good battle every few years, life just isn't the same. Even if it's on Halloween, I asked. He eyed me, and his smile became wider and more impish. Especially then, he said. How's the leg? I grunted and checked. Butters' dressing had stayed on throughout the events of the night. The constant burning sting was gone, and I peeled off the dressing— to see that the little wound on my leg had finally scabbed over. Looks like I'll live. Hawthorn dart, Kringle said. Nasty stuff. Hawthorn wood burns hot and doesn't care for creatures of winter. His expression sobered. I've a message for you. Huh? I asked. Mab has taken the new ladies with her, he said. She said to tell you that the new winter lady would be returned safely to her apartment in a few days.
after some brief and gentle instruction. Mab is on excellent terms with the smart elves, and anticipates no problems with your apprentice's new position. That's good, I guess, I said. It is, Kringle replied. Dresden, this is the business of the Queen's. I advise you not to attempt to interfere with it. I already interfered, I said. Kringle straightened, and his fierce smile became somehow satisfied. I like to live dangerously, do you? He leaned a little closer and lowered his voice. Never let her make you cringe, but never challenge your pride, wizard. I don't know exactly what passed between you, but I suspect that if it had been witnessed by another, she would break you to pieces. I've seen it before. Terrible pride in that creature. She'll never bend it. She'll never bend, I said. That's okay. I can respect that. Could be that you can, Kringle said. He nodded to me and turned to go. Hey, I said. He turned to me pleasantly. The whole winter night thing, I said. It's made me stronger. True enough, he said. But not that much stronger, I said. You could have beaten me last night. Oh, Kringle's smile faded, except from his eyes. And I've seen goblins move a few times, I said. The Earl King could have gotten out of the way of that shot. Really? You meant me to have the Wild Hunt. No one can be given a power like the Wild Hunt, Dresden, Kringle said. He can only take it. Really, I said as dryly as I knew how. That got another laugh from Kringle. <laughs> you have guts and will, mortal. It had to be shown, or the Hunt would never have accepted you. Maybe I'll just punch you out whenever I feel like it then, I said. Maybe you'll try, Kringle replied amiably. He looked out at the lightning sky and let out a satisfied breath. It was Halloween, Dresden. You put on a mask for a time, that is all. He looked directly at me and said, Many, many mantles are worn, or discarded, on Halloween night, wizard. You mean masks? I asked, frowning. Masks, mantles, Kringle said. What's the difference? He winked at me. And for the briefest fraction of a second, the shadows falling from the tower and the cottage in the gathering morning behind us seemed to flow together. The eye he winked with vanished behind a stripe of shadow and what looked like a wide scar. His face seemed leaner, and for that instant I saw Vatterung's wolfish features lurking inside Kringle's. I sat up, staring. Kringle finished his wink, turned jauntily, and started walking down the hill, humming, Here Comes Santa Claus, in a rumbling bass voice. I stared after him. Son of a bitch, I muttered to myself. I stood up and wrapped the army surplus blanket around myself before I walked into the cottage. I smelled coffee and soup, and my stomach wanted lots of both. There was a fire going in the fireplace, and my coffee pot was hanging near the fire. The soup kettle was hanging on its swinger, too. The soup would be made from stock and freeze-dried meat, but I was hungry enough not to be picky. Everyone else there probably felt the same way. Thomas was sacked out on one of the cots, snoring. Justine had spooned up behind him, 
her face pressed into his back. They both had clean faces and hands, at least. Mac was snoozing on the other cot, bare to the waist, his chest and stomach evidently washed free of any dirt and any blood or any injury as well. Sarissa was gone, Molly was gone, Fix was gone. I felt confident they had left together. Karen sat at the fire, staring in, a cup of coffee in her hands. Mouse sat beside her. When I came in, he looked over at me and started wagging his tail. You leave the blanket? I asked quietly. Once we got the fire going, she said. I suppose I could go get you your duster now, though. I'd look like a flasher, I said. She smiled very slightly and offered me two mugs. I looked. One had coffee, the other very chunky soup. She passed me a camp fork to go along with the soup. It isn't much, she said. Don't care, I said, and sat down on the hearth across from her to partake of both. The heat gurgled into my belly along with the food and the coffee, and I started feeling human for the first time in a while. I ached everywhere. It wasn't at all pleasant, but it felt like something I'd come by honestly. Christ, Dresden, Karen said. You could at least wash your hands. She picked up a towelette and leaned over to start cleaning off my hands. My stomach thought stopping was a bad idea, but I put the mugs aside and let her. She cleaned my hands off patiently, going through a couple of towelettes. Then she said, Lean over. I did. She took a fresh towelette and wiped off my face, slowly and carefully. There were nicks and cuts. It hurt when she cleaned one of them out, but it also felt right. Sometimes the things that are good for you, in the long run, hurt for a little while when you first get to them. There, she said a moment later, you almost look human. She paused at that and looked down. I mean... I know what you mean, I said. Yeah. The fire crackled. What's the story with Mac? I asked. Karen looked over at the sleeping man. Mab, she said. She just came in here a few minutes ago and looked at him. Then, before anyone could react, she ripped off the bandage, stuck her fingers into the wound, and pulled out the bullet. Dropped it right on his chest. No wound now, I noted. Yeah. Started closing up the minute she was done. But you remember the time he got beaten so badly in his bar? Why didn't it regenerate then? I shook my head. Maybe because he was conscious then. He did turn down the painkillers. I remember it seemed odd at the time, Karen murmured. What is he? I shrugged. Ask him. I did, she said, right before he passed out. What'd he say? He said, I'm out. I grunted. What do you think it means, she asked. I thought about it. Maybe it means he's out. We just let it go, she asked. It's what he wants, I said. Think we should torture him? Point, she said and sighed. Maybe instead we just let him rest. Maybe we should let him make beer, I said. What about Thomas? Woke up, ate, she frowned and clarified. Ate soup. Been asleep for a couple of hours. That big bone thing really clobbered him. There's always something bigger than you, I said. She gave me a look. More true for some than others, I clarified. She rolled her eyes. So, I said a moment later. So, she said. Um, should we talk? About what? 
Mouse looked back and forth between us and started wagging his tail, hopefully. Quiet, you, I said and rubbed his ears. Bad guy made of bones and he gets the drop on you? Charity giving you too many treats or something? That fight should have been like Scooby-Doo versus the Scooby-Snack ghost. Mouse grinned happily, unfazed, still wagging his tail. Don't be so hard on him, Karen said. There's always someone bigger. Then she shook her head and said, Wow, we are such children. We'll grab at any excuse not to talk about us right now. My soup did a little flip-flop. Um, I said. Yeah, I swallowed. We... we kissed. There's a song about what that means, Karen said. Yeah, but I don't sing. She paused, as if her soup had just started doing gymnastics, too. Then she spoke very carefully. There are factors. Like Kincaid, I said, without any heat or resentment. He's not one of them, she said. Not anymore. Oh, I said, a little surprised. It's you, Harry. Pretty sure I'm supposed to be a factor. Yeah, she said, just... Not against. She took my hands. I've seen things in you over the past day that concern me. Concern you? They scare the holy loving fuck out of me, she said calmly by way of clarification. This winter night thing. You're not changing. You've already changed. I felt a little chill. What do you mean? Tonight? Hell, Karen, when haven't we done monsters and mayhem? We've done it a lot, she said. But you've always been scared of it before. You did it anyway, but you thought it was scary. That's the same thing to think. So, I asked, what was different about it tonight? The way your erection kept pressing into my back, she said wryly. Uh, I said, really? Yeah, a woman kind of notices. I hadn't. Gulp. It's just... Karen, look, that thing hardly ever does something that isn't ill-advised. Doesn't mean it's going to make the calls. I will never understand why men do that, she said. Do what? Talk about their genitals like they're some other creature. Some kind of mind-controlling parasite, she shook her head. It's just you, Harry. It's all you. And part of you was really loving everything that was going on. And that's bad, I asked. Yes, she said. Then she made a short, frustrated sound. No, maybe. It's a change. Do changes have to be bad? Of course not. But I don't know if this one is bad or not yet, she said. Harry, you are the strongest man I know, in more than one sense of the word. And because you are, it means that if you do change... You think I'd be some kind of monster, I said. She shrugged and squeezed my hands with hers. I'm not saying this right. It's not coming out right. But I felt you when we were with the hunt. I knew what was driving you, what you were feeling. And in that moment I was down with it, and that scares me too. So am I too much of a monster, or are you? I asked. I'm getting confused. Join the club, she said. You're saying that the problem is you think I could go bad, I said. I know you could, she said. Anyone can. And you've got more opportunity than most. 
And maybe you shouldn't be rocking your emotional boat right now. When Susan broke your heart, right after she was changed, you went into a downward spiral. If that happened now, with the kind of things you're facing, Harry, I'm afraid you might not be able to pull out of it. That much sure as hell was true. You aren't wrong, I said. But we haven't even gone on a date yet, and you've already skipped ahead to the ugly breakup? There are factors, she repeated in a firm, steady voice. Like what? I asked. Like this thing with Molly, Karen said. There's no thing with Molly, I said. There's never going to be a thing with Molly. She sighed. You're a wizard. She's a wizard. Now you're the winter knight, and she's the winter lady. Karen, I began. And I'm going to get old and die soon, Karen said very, very quietly. Relatively soon. But you're going to keep going for centuries. And so is she. The two of you are close, and even if nothing ever happens, it's one more thing, you know? We held hands, and the fire crackled. Oh, I said. She nodded. So there are things stacked against us, I said. What else is new? You are the captain of disaster in the supernatural world, she acknowledged. But I'm the one who has repeatedly taken relationships into icebergs. I've done it enough to know that you and I are the Titanic. We're people, I said, not some fucking ship. We're also people, she said. A kiss when we're both ramped up on adrenaline is one thing. A relationship is harder, a lot harder, she shook her head. If it ends in tears, I'm afraid it could destroy us both. And there's a lot on the line right now. I don't think this is something we should rush into. I need time to think, to... I just need time. I swallowed. She still wasn't wrong. I didn't like what she had to say, not one bit, but... She wasn't wrong. Is this where you tell me we need to be friends? I asked. She blinked and looked up at me. She touched my face with her fingertips. Harry, we're... We went past that a long time ago. I don't know if we can, if we should be lovers. But I'm your friend, your ally. I've seen what you want and what you're willing to sacrifice to make it happen. She took one of my hands between hers, pressing hard. I feel lost since they fired me. I don't know what I'm meant to do or who I ought to be. But what I do know is that I've got your back. Always. Tears fell from her blue eyes. So, goddammit, don't you start taking the highway to hell, because I'm going to be right there with you, all the way. I couldn't see her after that. I felt her head underneath my chin, and I put my arms around her. We sat together like that for a while. Things are going to get bad, I said quietly. I don't know how or when exactly, but there's a storm coming. Being near me isn't going to be... sane. Let's just agree that I'm not all the way together and save us both some time arguing, she said. Always, Harry. I'm there. End of story. Okay, I said. One condition. What? That's not the end of the story, I said. I mean, maybe neither one of us is ready, but we could be, one day. And maybe we will be. 
Optimistic idiot, she said, but I could hear the smile. And if we get to that place, I said, you don't chicken out. You don't run away, no matter how it looks to you. We set course for the fucking iceberg, full speed ahead. She started shaking. She was weeping. And the sex, I said. It will be frequent, possibly violent. You'll be screaming. Neighbors will make phone calls. She started shaking harder. She was laughing. Those are my conditions, I said. Take them or leave them. You are such a pig, Dresden, Karen said. Then she drew back enough to give me a look through tear-stained blue eyes. Maybe you'll be the one screaming. You sure about this? Asked Thomas. Out here by yourself? Cold isn't really an issue anymore, I said, untying the first of the lines from the water beetle to the what's-up dock. I was wearing some of his clothes from the ship. The sweats were too short, and the shirt was too tight, but the duster hid most of that. And I've got supplies for a week or so, until you can make it back. You sure that tub's going to make it back to town? Put three patches on the hull after I got her off the beach and the pumps are working, Thomas said. We should be fine. What about you? That thing the island said was in your head. Another reason to stay here, I said. If Molly's the one who can help me, I'm on my own for now. But Demon Reach seems to be able to make it leave me alone, at least while I'm here. Pretty much means I need to stay until Molly gets herself back together. My brother exhaled unhappily and squinted up at the noonday sun, south of us, hidden behind gray clouds. Heard from Lara on the radio. And? Both her team and Marcone's found rituals in progress at the two sites. They broke them up. Someone really wanted this place to get screwed up. Or something, I said with a melodramatic waggle of my eyebrows. He snorted. You joke around, but I can't help but think that Fix is going to hold you responsible for some of what happened last night, he said. He might show up to explain that to you. He shows up here, there's nothing he can do, I said quietly. I can take him on neutral ground. Here, it won't even be a fight. Still, Thomas said, out here, alone? I think it's important, I said. I've got to know more about this place and what it can do. The only way to do that is to invest the time. And it's got nothing to do with facing Molly's parents, he said. I bowed my head. It isn't my place to tell them. Molly should decide who they hear it from first. Once she has, yeah, there's going to be a really hard talk. Until that time, I need to be here. And it's got nothing to do with facing Maggie, Thomas said. I looked away, out at the gray water of the lake. Fix knew that Maggie existed. If he wanted to hurt me... She's with Michael because he's got an NFL lineup of angels protecting his house and family, I said. And Supermutt, too. Am I going to be able to provide a real home for her, man? An education? A real life? What's her college application going to look like? Raised on Spooky Island by a wizard with GED? Please help? I shook my head. And when the fallout from the White Council about Molly and about this place starts hitting, it's going to be a nightmare. I might as well have a target tattooed on her forehead as keep her near me. Michael is awesome, Thomas said. Hell, I wish he'd raised me. But he isn't her dad. 
I had sex with her mother, I said. That's not the same thing as being her father. Thomas shook his head. You'd be a good dad, Harry. You'd spoil her, and you'd indulge her, and you'd embarrass her in front of her friends, but you'd do right by her. This is me, I said, doing right by her, for now. Maybe someday things could change. Thomas eyed me. Then he shook his head and said, Kids change into adults way faster than it seems like they should. Don't take too long deciding how much change is enough. Hell, he was right about that much, at least. I sighed and nodded slowly. I'll keep it in mind. I know, he said and smiled at me, because I'm not going to shut up about it. I rolled my eyes and nodded. Good, don't. I offered my fist for bumping. Thomas ignored me and gave me a rib-cracking hug, which I returned. Glad you're back, he whispered. Loser. You're going to start crying now, wuss, I said back. See you in a few days, he said. We'll get the cottage finished off, make it someplace Maggie won't need to learn shape-shifting to survive in. Just don't forget the books, I said, or the pizza for the guard. Won't. He let go of me and hopped up onto the ship. Any messages? Molly, I said. When she gets back, ask her to send Toot and Lacuna to me, and tell her that when she's ready to talk, I'm here. Thomas nodded, untied the last line, and tossed it to me. I caught it and started coiling it. Thomas climbed up onto the bridge and took the ship out, chugging away at the sedate pace he would use until he cleared the stone reefs around Demon Reach. Karen came out of the cabin and stood on the deck. Mouse came with her, looking solemn. She leaned back against the cabin's wall and watched me as she went. I watched, too until I couldn't see her anymore. Thunder rumbled over Lake Michigan, unusual in November. I settled the new black leather duster over my shoulders, picked up the long, rough branch I'd cut from the island's oldest oak tree a few hours before, and started back up the hill toward the former lighthouse and future cottage. I had preparations to make. There was a storm coming in. This is James Marsters. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Cold Days by Jim Butcher. This program was executive produced by Patty Peruse, produced by David Rapkin, and directed by Bob Walter. Cold Days is a production of Penguin Audio, a member of Penguin Group USA Incorporated. Copyright 2012. All rights reserved. The book, Cold Days, is available wherever rock books are sold.